everyone. Welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 415. I'm your host, Chris Zellner. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Bix and Span. And Bix, we have a 2000 show this week. And there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I don't think we should waste any time. That's right. It is a Patreon-requested show. And uh, we are joined by said patron as he put down the $100 to be part of the show again. As he's done it numerous times before, we're always glad to have him on. We are joined by our friend Mark Cole. Mark, uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Bix. All right. As we always do, before we start the show proper, we always ask the patron that's on with us why they picked this week. And you have an uh, interesting reason why you picked this week. So go ahead and tell us. Well, as you mentioned in the tease uh, on, this, on last week's show, this is out of my 80s wheelhouse. Um, partially that's because a lot of times I'm running out of interesting, uh, 80 shows to do when I go to look at what's still, <laughs> still available. Cause needless to say, after seven or eight years, however long it's been, a lot of the obvious 80 stuff's been taken care of. I was surprised last week that you guys hadn't done the 88 bash yet. That was kind of a surprise. So I was trying to think what other things could I talk about? And this era is when, like, I was doing some uh, behind-the-scenes independent work for a couple of different promotions. Uh, I don't think any of them were mentioned in the newsletter this week. Uh, partially because if we did have any shows, I wasn't there because I was in San Diego for Comic-Con. And 2000 is the first time out of, I think, the first four or five years that I went to Comic-Con that I went to TGA to see Lucha for the first time. So when we get to the Lucha section, we can get more into how that all happened, the trip. I don't remember a ton of the actual matches. I mean, I have bits and pieces of my memory, but I do remember a lot of the stuff that went around the trip. So hopefully that'll be some some fun stories there. Yes, yes. Uh, Tijuana, a place I've always wanted to go watch a wrestling show and... uh you went down there at an interesting time in Tijuana history, so uh, yeah, we'll definitely get into that as uh, we move along here in the show. And you mentioned it, so it's something that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning of the show, but yes, eight full years of Between the Sheets, folks. Can you believe that? Eight full years. It came, it's, it's crazy to think that we actually uh, made it this long, but here we are, and uh We'll be starting year nine next week. So eighth anniversary between the sheets. Crazy. So happy anniversary, Vix. Mazel tov. It's also, <laughs> it's also interesting that shows you the power of being weekly, that you're on number – this is show 415. 415. I've, I've been doing my pod for more or less around the same time, and I think I'm on, like, episode 117. So <laughs> – that's weekly versus not weekly. That'll that'll uh, add your numbers up quick. Well, you know, we've only missed like two weeks, two or three weeks total in eight years, which we've always made it up the best we can. But once you get in the routine of doing it, I mean, it makes it easier. Well, I've also said it helps that you guys have a format and well, one, there's two of you and there's Given the format, you always know there. there's always another week in history to talk about whatever week you choose. It's the same with uh, with our friend Joe and his comic book podcast. It's like 
there's always books for them to review and there's always stuff for them to talk about. So they always have a weekly show. I've always been of the opinion that if I don't have a good idea or if I haven't been able to get the guest I want, I'd rather just not do a show for a couple of weeks and then maybe I'll do like three in a month just because that's the way it goes. And then I'll go like another six weeks without doing any. It helps that I have, I have the other podcast now that's like sort of single form mini pod where I just talk about one subject for, you know, 20 minutes or a half an hour that I can do whenever I want. That's not beholden on me trying to get a guest. And you guys certainly know the, the perils of lining up guests and having them, (laughs) I'll say, (laughs) you know, Things happen at the last minute, you know, scheduling, being sick, especially, you know, since since lockdown, you never know when somebody's going to, you know, turn up on the disabled list or something like that. So, you know, I've had I've had people like call me five minutes before we're ready to go. And it's like that happened with uh, when I had Pat Rose on, you know, a couple of months ago, we were all ready to go in about. 15 minutes before he's like, Oh, my son's car broke down. I have to go pick him up. Can we do this in a couple of days? Fine. Not a problem. You're doing me a favor, but you know, so then it's like, okay, got to reschedule work, blah, 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 blah. So it is what it is. It gets done when it gets done. So, you know, you know, I've got some stuff lined up, hopefully coming up in the future. Um, but until then I'm happy to just sit and wait. There you go. All right, well, let's get going here as we go to the week of July 19th through the 25th of 2000. And we start with the state of the Wrestling Observer. As we've seen with so many people in wrestling, the workload of trying to put out so much product on a weekly basis has taken its toll. With both WFWCB doing two primetime shows weekly and ECW with nowhere close to the staffing doing two weekly shows, we've seen evidence of fatigue in announcers, wrestlers, and production. And it's no different from this from this end, trying to do so many things at once. Dave's been asking around a lot about what people like and least like about the publication and what he least likes about it. To create an easier publication to produce weekly and alleviate as much as possible the negative that doing an 18-page weekly publication and a daily radio show, not to mention a website, which is clearly a work in progress, and nor do so much having to rely on people who, for better or for worse, in many cases, it isn't in their blood to do anything more than to keep things going rather than bring about changes necessary for everything to be successful. Dave's own workload has also at times put him in the same position, and rather than hit the wall, some choices had to be made. It's basically trying to find a balance to keep this publication as strong if not stronger than ever, while at the same time not finding to stay awake doing other things. And talking with people about the Observer, the thing everyone says is the biggest plus is the uh, hold on, hit the button. There we go. Is the analysis. You can get the news itself in many places, but the analysis and tying things together historically is the strongest point. And it's also the stuff that Dave enjoys doing the most. The other thing people keep mentioning is that news on the web is here today and gone. But one of the reasons such time percentage of readers, far fewer than they've ever imagined, switch from subscribing to the print version to the online version, it's because people said they saved their copies and looked back. Despite the obvious advantages both to Dave, no posts and printing costs, and theoretically for the readers, getting the observers faster without having to worry about the inevitable post office screw-ups, it's important to cover the major news and emphasize it. To Dave, what isn't needed, particularly now, are pages of results and detailed television rundowns. They're available elsewhere. And really, TV shows are forgotten as soon as the next one comes up. The happy medium tip right now is to keep results of the major league shows as well as any major shows from any groups. 
We'll run down all the major details of television shows, both here and in Japan. But as far as breaking down matches that don't mean anything or angles that don't mean anything to almost anyone the day after they happen, it's almost like a waste of space. Last week's issue, the first attempt to do this in a more sane manner, showed it can be done on a somewhat slow news week and 12 pages. Because the postage cost, if it can't be done in 12 pages during the week, it might as well be 18. And the cutting down the results of some of the detailed TV rundowns, it'll result more space for letters, and there'll be more of a concentration on reporting on the big stories as opposed to trying to get so much largely trivial news in, which are usually more interested in the results of indie shows. This week, the plan was for 18 pages, but for whatever reason, we didn't get either SmackDown or Thunder results in a press time. Dave expects to cut slightly back in MMA coverage. Hardy, har, har, har. Although the Pride Promotions is out there running dome stadiums and are drawn larger from the pro wrestling fan base, has today be considered one of the major wrestling companies and will be covered as such. If USC gets back, ever gets back in that realm, it will be as well. But Dave can't see doing much with USC aside from coverage of pay-per-view events. The pay-per-view rundowns for all companies will stay the same because people do look back at pay-per-view shows. And we will run down the Japanese pay-per-views from the big companies as that becomes more a part of that culture. The idea is to keep everything that anyone looking back for that week will want to know in the future. But it's stuff that probably won't be as important looking back doesn't need to be here, particularly since it's available everywhere. The major companies, whether it be FWCW, ECW, All Japan, PWN, and New Japan coverage, I'm probably no, I guess, won't be affected as far as news goes. This is all in the experimental phase, and your feedback on it is definitely welcome. Well, Bix, uh, interesting to read this here, um, especially the MMA part, <laughs> because as the 2000s goes along, we get the MMA observer come into form, basically, where it's basically the wrestling that gets cut, and we get more of the MMA stuff. But uh, what's your thought process on Dave's uh, mentality at this time here? I mean, honestly, to me, the most interesting thing is him talking about people not really subscribing to the online version of the newsletter when uh, it was always fairly obvious the main reason people weren't doing that to the original online version of the newsletter was that the price was either the same I'm looking on Wayback Machine, I'm not finding anything that has the actual pricing yet, or it was close enough to the same that it just was pointless yeah you know, like this was not you know, and there was no bonus content you know, even though the Observer Hotline's going on at the same time, it's not like you got the hotline audio updates or anything like that included. You were basically just getting the newsletter for the same price as print, and in 2000, you know, 99, 2000, because that's when the website started, that just wasn't going to be enough for most people. People where I'm thinking of archiving and having searchable versions and all that at the time. Well, the thing is, is that, I mean, really, not many of us thought about archiving anything, you know, in the 2000s, which, boy, that, that, now, now looking back, (laughs) especially me, you know, and all the stuff, all all the work I did, I mean, Jesus, uh, that's one of the biggest regret I think I ever have. Archiving any of that stuff like I should have. It's kind of funny. It almost actually mirrors the wrestling industry. This is like Dave in 1978 deciding that we don't need to save our TV tapes. It's like, I mean, he's not erasing the Observer every week to print a new one, but it's like, I don't see any value of keeping these. And it's like, this is the same thing promoters thought. And now it's like, oh, we all wish. I mean, I, you know, I still have 
in my house somewhere, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of observers from when I first started getting it until when I stopped getting it. So, you know, that I always, I jokingly say I still have, I still was an observer subscriber for more years I've been alive than not being a subscriber. So it's like, I still have, you know, back to 90, I think is when I first started, you know, and admittedly now I have them all, you know, I have everything before that digitally, you know, if I need to. So, you know, I, I mean, but then again, I'm a collector, so I was going to be keeping them anyway, the same way I kept all my comic books and all my magazines. You know, it's just that part of, of being a subscriber is the same as everything else for me anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who I used to collect, um, newspapers. I used to collect uh, the sports sections of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution until it got to the point where I need room. <laughs> so I'm going to trash this stuff. You know, and luckily now we have newspapers.com and all these other newspaper archive websites that we can I can go back to and look at that stuff again. And but in a much easier way, too. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Much easier way. Um, my thing here is what Dave's sacrificing is. I think the result stuff. I mean, I get it, but doing in doing this show, especially in starting in this era and going into the two thousands, Dave not doing TV reviews, especially like tape TV shows like SmackDown, m- makes it interesting to try to do this show here we're doing yes you know and even on this show we're going to do this week i mean he doesn't do a full detailed smackdown review so there's stuff that we notice that he misses on you know in doing this show that should have been mentioned you know so i think giving giving up detailed tv reviews is was a mistake there are other ways you can cut i think i mean here's the thing that he really well, in got 2000, into, it was a mistake. If he were well, to he jump too, that now, it would not be a mistake. He got too deep in the 2000s in analysis of shit. Especially he, like uh, financial stuff. It and gets business. weedy, yes. Very weedy. Extremely weedy. I mean, it, 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 I understand what he's trying to go for. It's like he's trying to be more of a serious reporter in that way reporting on wrestling as a business, but sometimes you have to go for the essential stuff and TV reviews are essential stuff because people want to hear what you think, you know? Well, yes. And also he needs to save extra room in every obituary for talking about how loud, uh, Kensuke and Akira Hokuto fucked in North Korea. Well, I mean, he has his certain go-tos, but yeah. And then it got to the point where, I mean, let's not forget. I mean, we, we, you know, we do this here all the time on the show when he just damn, you know, has Alvarez do his SmackDown reviews. You know, I mean, they didn't even review SmackDown. Yes. So, and, and aren't we still waiting for his, like some obituaries that he either never finished or never got around to? Oh, like, what I remember, was it? I, I remember, er, Ernie Lane Part there were, Two. There were a couple that like it became a running joke. You know that? Yeah. Oh, ne- maybe next week Dave will finally finish this review. And you, you know, I've. I'm fairly vocal these days of being sort of anti-observer. 
but you know, it's like more and more, especially reading more and more stuff and starting to see holes. And we, you know, we all used to think that Dave's obituaries were sort of like the best thing he did. And then to start seeing more and more of them with like glaring holes or his definite preferences and biases at work, you know, that's one of the things that soured me on the newsletter. What I used to think was the strength I was seeing more and more as not necessarily weakness, but not as good as I used to think it was. Well, I mean, it's just he's changed. And, I mean, especially now, and it's it's just the way it is, you know? I mean, that's what happens when you deal with, with people. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's just what happens to people. So. Which, is, which is one of the reasons I haven't been a subscriber for a couple of years. You know, I reached my saturation point, and I just said, this wasn't for me. Any. Much like likely watching current wrestling, I decided this wasn't for me. And the main thing I was still getting the observer for was the historical stuff. And once I realized the flaws in that, it was sort of like, why am I, why am I still getting this when I'm not e- either I'm not reading it or I'm reading them like a month later. And like, you know, we joked about the MMA newsletter, you know, I was one of those people in the two thousands who at least jokingly suggested, can't we just have, can't there be two newsletters and I subscribe to the Wrestling Observer and not the MMA part. Like, why am I paying for the half of the newsletter that I don't read? Yeah, that was that for sure. Yeah. We're also in the era, because we're in the era of the Yada show, where it's not the newsletter, but it's like a big complaint about the Yada show was the MMA coverage, but not for the same reason. Because on Yada, the whole thing is like, well, wait a second. Yes, we know you're, you know, Yada is owned by the then owner of the UFC. But, Chris, tell everyone we was on for three hours before Wrestling Observer Live every day. Eddie Coleman. With an all-MMA show that was 50% mm-hmm. longer than Observer Live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just felt like it didn't but, make sense. It's like, look, there's another show for this right here. But it's, da- it's what Dave was wanting to talk about. Yes. So, well, you know. I mean, if we're going by what was most popular from listener feedback, it was having John Cena on to talk about nutrition. Or Tom Zink. Well, that too. But, but yes. I wish I could find exactly the pricing on the online newsletter. Um, on This is the original version of the website. This is the pre-live audio wrestling version of the website. Um, which also, something else to mention... Uh, this was from some weird media comp- like digital media company Dave made a deal with, the original site, and it seems like he did not really read closely whatever he signed with them, because then there started to be, like, Observer stuff syndicated to other websites, like maybe was it Yahoo, I think, that he didn't know about, and then, like, Zach Arnold started writing stuff that was credited as being to the Observer that Dave had no idea was happening all through the this, like, separate company, and eventually Dave got away from them and went over to Live Audio Wrestling for a while, and they were involved in some form until the, uh... I mean, it was LiveAudioWrestling.com slash WO. It was just a redirect to that. Then that changed eventually, but I think they were still involved in some form until the figure four merger in 08. Yeah. But yeah, by the way, that 15th anniversary just passed too. There you go. 
Well, let's go to the World Wrestling Federation now. We start with SmackDown. No, notes on the July 20th SmackDown show in front of a sellout of 11,866, paying 329,731. That's how you know Dave's was changed when he says notes. So we have to go to the torch for the other information, such as this. Mick Foley started to show the promo, received a big hometown ovation. Foley said Rock scared him on Raw, and he was worried that Rock was more concerned with beating up Chris Benoit than winning the match. He announced that Devitata could change hands on DQ to pay-per-view. Chris Jericho came out, cut a promo on Triple H. Chris Benoit's Shaman Man walked out, cut a promo on The Rock. And Triple H and Stephanie walked out, argued with Jericho. So you know what that means. Foley announced that Rock and Jericho would face Benoit and Triple H as the main event. So Mick Foley is doing the Teddy Long gimmick. Years before Teddy Long did it. Holla holla. Next, we get three-way with Eddie Guerrero, Perry Center, and Dean Malenko for the European title. Uh, this was as good as you're going to get in the time they were given. Well, well-executed finish, a strong push for Saturn in the post-match, um, which Eddie retained. Uh, back, backstage, we oh, excuse me, at a bar, Edge and Christian claimed they're bigger drinkers than the Acolytes. Well, I guess we're going to find that out. Triple H told Autograph Seeker where he could find The Rock, and Joe, quote-unquote Joe, informed the Acolytes about Edge and Christian. That, of course, would be Big. just Joe. Just Joe. Yeah. Hey, hey uh, the boys in the back eh, are... Uh... <laughs> yes, They're, they're talking Joe. about you, yeah. Well, which, Can by the way, be- everyone, uh, I'm going to try to queue stuff up, maybe, but the uh, award-winning WWE Network has changed their online interface completely, including removing chapter marks. Yeah, so Bix is going to do more work now. <laughs> uh, Kane beat Kurt Angle by disqualification. Although fast forwarding end, works better now than it did before. In the end, Angle hit Kane with a chair shot for the DQ. Dave said all stuff with Angle is necessary and effective to get him to the next level. The Kane match was tons better than the match in Oakland. Then we get Steve Blackman beating Al Snowder in the hardcore title when Taz interfered. Hardy's and Rikishi beat TNA and Val Venus. Good action. Val's an underrated interview and underrated worker but still seems to be missing that one thing to make him be taken as a top guy. Dave noticed that Lita's pants are a lot higher on SmackDown than Raw, as SmackDown has remained a toned-down show. (laughs) Network versus cable, folks. So wait, is her thong not visible at all, or what's Probably, yeah. Probably, yeah. Okay. Um, I did pull up Just Joe. When are we ever going to have Just Joe? Let's see what happens here real quick. All right. Joe Legend, for those who don't know. Hey, guys. What the hell are you doing? Who are you? I'm just, I'm just Joe. I'm just Joe. Hey, well, Joe, I guess you didn't know, huh? Joe, I guess you're new here, so I'm going to do you a favor. Joe, door, door, Joe. Oh, Oh, yeah, he just walked in from the side without going through the uh, door with no wall around it. Kids, man. You are just begging for a kicking. What? Knock! Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, okay. now that you're here, you can leave. But I just wanted to tell you that Edge Joe, and Christian. Leave. But Edge and Christian were just there. Right? Leave, Joe. Okay. Oh, these kids, man. What's wrong? 
Okay, who is this, who's this Joe guy? I mean, we've seen him on Sunday Night Heat throwing things up, but what's he doing here tonight on SmackDown? Uh, was it ever explained, by the way, who this gimmick was supposed to be making light of? No. It's clearly someone that got a huge label. And presumably someone who just showed up one day, maybe someone from developmental that other people didn't know, I would think. But yeah, possible. That's how they do things. And the gimmick was just, he was this stooge who just went around to everyone starting trouble, like, hey, the boys in the back are talking about you. That's how they do things, so it probably was. Even though Chris and Wiles wrestling The Rock on the pay-per-view, they still portrayed as Triple H was Rock's real main foe, and this was a transition show. The father trying to get his son an autograph act was actually ECWA promoter Jim Katner. <laughs> How about that? Hmm. Jim Katner getting uh, extra work on uh, on SmackDown. Well, yeah, it's been wrestling since 1967 or whatever. <laughs> uh, Big Boss and be undertaken by Countout. Oh, excuse me, I jumped ahead. Uh, so the Rock signed autograph for fans. Benoit Shane jumped from behind. Triple H walked in and shook hands with Shane. Then we get Bull Buchanan being the Godfather when Stevie Stephen Richards interfered because this is of course uh, RTC censor. Yes. Big Boss Man beat Undertaker by countout when Kurt Angle lured Undertaker out of the ring. Backstage, Angle attacked Undertaker with a huge wrench. Uh, also interesting to note when Ang- when Undertaker Angle was hitting Undertaker's knee with a wrench, there was a clanging sound of metal on metal. So he was likely hitting a protective knee brace. Sure. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lita's fans are all the way up. Well, there you go. All right. Um, next, we get Edge and Christian at the at the bar, and they jumped Acolytes from behind and left them lank. So the Acolytes went to the bar, but... Uh, oh, so there's Joe. No, that's Charlie so Haas. That's, that's Charlie Haas. Well, he's wearing a black shirt like Joe. With the same haircut. Let's watch this. Let's, let's, let's watch this go down here. Well, let me cue it up to the crowd. Oh, yeah, okay. There we go. No, it's more forgiving now. Yeah, I see um, where, were we ta- where was this taped? Are they in New York City? No. Um, I mean, I see a Mets flag wherever there's... Uniondale. Place. Yeah, they're in Long Island. They're in Uniondale. Okay, so there's... Well, I say if, if they said Foley got a hometown pop, I would have seen Long Island. Uh, this is probably one of those places across the street from Coliseum. Yeah. JV's Pub, Uniondale. Or or does this not exist anymore? I don't know. All right. Probably doesn't exist anymore. We're totally partying in here. Yeah, party scene to the max. And speaking of partying, I really thought the Acolytes were going to show up. What cowards? Total act of cowards. Is that Billy Real is the one who's constantly trying to mug for the camera? Eh, probably so. Well, he's on the list of guys in this, so. Maybe we should just give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they showed up, they got stopped at the door, they got thrown up before they even made it up to the bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? We should ask somebody and see if they've seen them. Hey, fellas. Hey, fellas. Hey, fellas. See any big uh, beer swilling, um, cigar chomping? Foul-smelling, really mean guys. To tell you the truth, no, but you guys rule. You guys do rule. You guys, yeah. do. You guys are awesome. awesome. Barkeep. Some Budweisers for our new compadres over here. Oh, yeah. Keep those umbrellas coming. Here's under the guys. 
Michael, you're definitely going to get that autograph, believe me, because There's the rock doesn't have his worth. He says he's going to be here. He'll be here. It might take him a few minutes, but trust me, he's definitely going to be here to give you that autograph. Really appreciate it. So, no, he's playing a security guard here. Yeah, but that's Jim Catner. No, but he, he is wearing the yellow Nassau Coliseum security guard shirt and everything. Got his hair like Jameson. I assume I assume that's not Jeff Peterson because I know he's already oh, sick no. at this point. Well, also Jeff is older than this kid. Tall, yeah. I was just say I met I met him a couple times when he worked in Maryland, but yeah. But I just saw like a tall, skinny kid for a second. I was like, but that's not him. No, no, no. You too, Michael. Oh, so he's a security guard, but it's, he's introducing his son to the rock. Okay. Okay. What are we? I thought we, I didn't think we were playing the whole thing. Well, I mean, we weren't, but it's what it's whatever. But anyway, okay. So anyway, there's that. Um, well, we didn't get uh, Andrew Christian jumping the acolytes, so yeah, I guess that was separate from that. All right, so let's see here. Great replay of a Jim Kettner's facial expression there when Benoit walks in. <laughs> he almost looks like the lo- like Jerry Briscoe's long lost cousin or something. Yeah. A triple H just casually walking in. <laughs> there you go. All right, see. Yeah, Dwayne looks like a s- smaller guy's beating you up, huh? So maybe had Rock and Jericho against Triple H and Benoit. Real good action week did you finish. Dave didn't think it was gotten over well. If that same thing were to happen on the pay-per-view, that Benoit would have got the strap. It was no but once again the last scene of the show involving Rock and Benoit on both shows the week before was Benoit being laid out and even tapping out to his own hold, something Rock never did, even though he was in the hold numerous times in the buildup. Dave doesn't think Rock, as the world champion and top bayface in the company, should tap even a non-match. But he wouldn't have had Benoit do it either right before their pay-per-view match. Well, it is what it is. SmackDown drew a 4.43 rating of the numbers over the weekend. Saw Livewire do a 1.1. Superstars, 1.4. And Sunday Night Heat do a 2.65. Oh, God. I just realized, too, from seeing Kane saving Undertaker here. Hey, I forgot how much they rushed that Kane heel turn here. Yes. They wrestle at SummerSlam. Yes. All right. The uh, indie workers that were in the bar were the Haas brothers, Russ and Charlie, Billy Real, and Patty O'Brien. Who's Patty O'Brien? Maybe you know his cousin, Patio Furniture. <laughs> oh, terrible. Patio Furniture. Um, I think it's just, just some guy that was a, one of the wrestlers that was around. Um, oh. He was trained by Dylan Knight. And John Rambo. Yeah. I didn't notice anyone that tall. It says he's 6'7". Yeah, well, maybe he was crouched. Oh, he worked the Iron Sheik on an ISPW show. (laughs) Well, we go from SmackDown to the pay-per-view. And what many consider the throwaway show between King of the Ring and SummerSlam, the WWE put on arguably their best pay-per-view show of the year. Were fully loaded on July 23rd from their Union Arena in Dallas. After the first six matches, it seemed like just an average show. But the final two matches were a strong, a pair of main event matches on any pay-per-view show in a long time. 
The show was totally built around three matches. Rock versus Chris Benoit, Triple H versus Chris Jericho, Undertaker versus Kurt Angle, with the idea that Benoit, Jericho, and Angle were being put in key positions against three major established stars of the company. During the show they had, during the undercard matches on the video wall, a flashy screed over and over listing the three main events, which was annoying to a home viewer and probably slightly distracted the live crowd from the undercard matches going on in the ring, with the attention being diverted. And all the guys in their biggest break matches lost. Looked at it from a straight win-loss perspective, it seemed like WCW booking of the past few years or New Japan booking of their April Tokyo Dome built around heavyweights versus junior heavyweights is the undercard theme. But they didn't say anyone could say in matches of quality Rock Benoit and Triple H Jericho that anyone lost by either wrestler and certainly not the audience. Obviously, you can't say that for Undertaker versus Kurt Angle. In hindsight, they still can't think of anything positive to say about that match. It's a question of whether uh, and how the losses are played and how Benoit and Jericho position from this point on. In the case of Benoit, it was clear on television the next night that fans took him as more of a threat to the Rotten there before. So it appeared to be a success in elevating him with a loss because of the batch quality. Helmsley, who made a strong case for positioning as this year's wrestler of the year, hard to argue with his being on top for some of the biggest money shows in the history of the industry and forced our matches with Jericho three times now, foliage wise, Rock and Benoit even near four star matches with Takamichi Noku and Rikishi on television. Ika's performance in the Royal Rumble with match with Foley in his match against Jericho, which is going to have a hard time living up to the standard of the two previous single matches on television. He went into the match with a sciatic nerve problem, giving him a lot of lower back pain and some numbness in his leg. The pain from SmackDown match on the 18th was a flare up of the previous injury and had lots of intense treatment leading up to the match. His back was said to have been pretty stiff going into the ring, but he said it been a lot less pain than earlier in the week. They stole the show with a match year caliber performance, which wasn't Jericho's flashiest, but may have been his best RM major social singles match in American rings. Rock and Benoit were far behind. But a match that even was more solidly executed. The announcement Jim Ross was top of the line, particularly in attention after Benoit's loss to establish the match as the beginning of a few for the ages, as opposed to simply a very main event where the champ won and now it's time for a new challenger. The reverse dusty finish by Mick Foley was good, but it did seem like the finish and the restart with Rock scoring the rock bottom for the pin was too quick. All right, well, let's go over the show. All right, so our opening match was Matt and Jeff Hardy and Lita. Beating Test Albert and Trish Stratus in 13-12. A good opener. Matt had one very rough spot early where he slipped on the ropes a couple of times trying to execute a spot. Test and Albert really improved as far as work goes, where it kind of lost in the shuffle as huge guys who aren't particularly charismatic. Lita has superstar potential in her tomboy role, where she could be the first real hero to the teenage girl fan base as a real person, as opposed to the fantasy figure of China. They have to be careful because the reason her moves look so spectacular is partially because she has a male base for her lucha spots, and then the women in WF can make her look, stuff look as good. And like China, being put in a lot of singles matches against men will only emphasize what she lacks. While her work with Stratus was better than anyone could hope for, given Stratus' very limited training, although she clearly has a will to slur, and even saw her somewhat limited ring time. Still, though they were the focal point, they need to only be in for a limited time. Michael Hayes and Dr. Tom Pritchard worked with them earlier in the week and set up and running their spots. They did a three-on-two su- suplex spot where Hardy's lead a suplex Albert and Stratus. Albert pressed Jeff and dropped him over the top rope to the floor. Tested the meltdown on the mat, but Jeff delivered a swan on the test. Lita did a tremendous turn out DDT, then on test, and a real good plunge on Albert as well as hooking around on top on test for a near fall. Finally, test powerbombed and tagged in, tr- child powerbombed him and tagged in Trish. 
Leo superplex Trish with both standing on top rope, which is kind of scary to watch given Trish's lack of experience. Lita scored the pin on Stratus after the moonsault. After the match, Albert clothesline Lita and Tess laid out both parties on high kicks, leaving Trish just whip Lita with the belt two and three quarter stars. Okay. Um, Mark's the one who's rewatched this in the last few days. I have not. I'm sure Chris hasn't. But nope. what always stuck out to me about this match, besides that Stratus made a good accounting of herself in her first real match, was that this is one of the best performances of Tess's career. The way he bases for Lita and makes all of her stuff look good is a huge part of what sells the match. And that always stuck out to me. Tess probably has the best, is in the best run of his career in this era, this time period. As a worker. Yes. I mean, Mark, what did you think watching it in the last few days? Yeah, I thought it was fine. I mean, I was vaguely, I mean, I probably haven't watched this since the first time it aired, you know, 23 years ago or whatever. But the one thing I was sort of surprised about is how much, for lack of a better term, intergender interaction there was. Like if there wasn't a strict men versus men, women versus women demarcation that no. I may have probably ex- misremembered from this time. Like we didn't get it yet, except obviously for China. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that I really forgot was, boy, if this was her first major match, the outfit they gave Trish was not, it's, I guess, not what we've con- what we came to later expect Trish's wrestling outfit to be. I was just like, it looked like she was in a bra and panties match. Well, that's what her gimmick was basically at that time. I know. It's, it's just, you know, I had forgot, you know, again, when you don't watch it, you know, in 20 years and you, you see all the more recent stuff, you kind of forget. The tweets. I mean, I'll, from this era, I remember the, like the duster and the cowboy hat more than like that. She's not wearing like the just wearing like pants as she is like in some oh, of the other in clips. the SmackDown clips. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, she. I mean, she was definitely more the eye candy in this era. But you can tell she's game. You can tell she's up for anything. In the ring, that is. Y- yeah, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I mean, also, it's like, I mean, to go with what Mark said, too, like, because the, I mean, the booty shorts as a standard women's wrestling attire thing doesn't really happen until Victoria a few years later. And it takes, t- I mean, it, and it takes at least several years before it becomes kind of a standard thing. And so it also stands out here that Trish is just wearing her manager gear, so she's wearing the booty shorts. Yeah. Which is not something it, she would wear later when she was actually a full-time wrestler. It's also funny that Dave is once again, you know, using, I guess what we would say, coded language, calling Lita the tomboy, appealing to everyday, you know, it's, once again, it's Dave. I don't think that's that coded. I get what you're saying, but I feel like he would use the word attainable or something like that if that was what he meant. You don't think it's just the, she's not. She's not a Playboy model. Like, I mean, yes, she is a, I mean, she is kind of a tomboy in this, in this era. Like, I'm not sort of disputing the word, but it is funny that, especially given the way that Dave writes, especially in this era, that you can also see it as meaning, you know, yeah, that he doesn't say, like, more obtainable or, but yeah, the teenage role model thing, I think, is interesting for girls, not just the, like, 
the certain demographic of guys. Well, she comes off as relatable and like a tomboy friend to guys, but she doesn't come off as threatening to girls. That's the thing. Like, it's like, that's what helps the dynamic, I think, in terms of why she and the Hardys are over together. I forget. Yeah, her and Matt are not a couple yet in storyline, right? That's not to like a one, oh two? Uh, oh one. Yeah. So that, you know, I think that helps. But yeah, as far as young girls, though, he was always big on this on the Yada show in that era. And he's right. I mean, look at look at the impression she left on girls who were fans in that era. She is the one that was the favorite. You know, and people like to joke about it. But like, I mean, look at the AJ Lee thing. You know, who was her favorite wrestler? Who was Lita? And then, consequently, for a period of time, who was the favorite of young girls when she was on the roster? AJ Lee. And then you get, you know, and then you move it forward and you get Bailey, get well soon, Bailey. You know, the, it seems like they eventually they always did seem to have they wanted to have at least one of that sort of type of character, I guess, which makes sense from a marketing point of view. Yes. Yeah. And these days, obviously, they have a lot of different types in all sorts of ways. You know, it's not like before, too, where, you know. If you're not the Vince type, you're going to stand out regardless. You know, now the women on the roster are much more diverse in a number of different ways. Yeah. All right, let's continue. All right, so Dave talks about they had two short early show skits with several segments. And one, Undertaker kept chasing Kurt Angle around backstage. It's kind of silly because Undertaker was on his motorcycle and Angle was running away. Yeah, Undertaker couldn't catch him. Later, Angle was fooling around with Undertaker's bike, and Undertaker came chasing him. Undertaker doesn't move so well, so at least his not catching him that time was believable. Actually, Angle was able to let Undertaker run around some wood and went from being chased to hitting him in the knee again for, with a wrench. The other skill was Stephen McMahon getting all sorts of flowers, presumably from Kurt Angle. When Bruno Lauer was carrying more flowers, Triple H confronted him about where they came from. Triple H said he was going to kick Angle's ass, but instead got his ass kicked by Jericho. Aside from that, this was a pure wrestling show. All right. So next we go to Taz beating out Snow in 520. Little heat. Fans live, so this is something of a popcorn match. There was even a boring chant at one point. Snow did a good job in the basic match, getting near falls and after a leg drop off the top and moonsault. He went for head, but Taz could the from behind. Gave him a capture suplex and his choke submission, which Snow broke the first time but couldn't break a second time. Star on a quarter. Was this for a title of some kind? No, or no, no, no title. Okay. Just a match. Perry Saturn won the European title from Eddie Guerrero in 810. China chased Terry away from the ring and Saturn chased China away. Ayla very good here with Huracan Ronas coming from all directions. Saturn had a small cut on top of his head. Finished off Saturn clothesline China through the Spanish announce table. Terry came back out, and Saturn gave Eddie a low blow and an elbow drop on top rope to this back for a clean pin. Two and a half stars. And by the way, yes, that triple main event thing on the screens is very distracting when they show it. Yes. Acolytes defeated WFTAC champions Edge and Christian by DQ in 529. They did a bit earlier in the show where Christian was pretending to have the heaves and brought in a doctor and Commissioner Mick Foley, who they were able to work. But just for match time, Foley called Christian Yanta pretending to throw up. 
climbed the wall so he could see into the bathroom stall, and Christian was so busted. Edge and Christian, in their mind, weren't running out of Texas. They told about the JFK assassination, which took place in Dallas in 1963, saying he would have killed himself if he had to spend any more time in Dallas. Wow. That was weird for, that was weird for two reasons. First, most of the WF audience was not even close to being born. And second, that isn't a subject really right for a lot of comedy. <laughs> yeah. Bradshaw came out and probably his most inspired might work in a long time. Talk about this being the building where Dick Murdoch, Bruiser Brody, the free birds, and the Von Erich perform. What? It was Reunion Arena. Okay, but Dave, it, well, that's right. Dave gets, Dave gets Murdoch as some of a hero to Bradshaw because Dave can't ever recall Murdoch even wrestling in Reunion Arena. This is at the tail end of his career during his short stint in WF, which Dave's wrong. He would have wrestled, wrestled there for WF. Exactly, yeah. Um, it was fast-paced and seemed to be building towards a decent match that had been ended abruptly with a terrible weak finish when Edge hit Farouk with one of the belts right in front of the referee. There was said to be a strong consideration putting Edge Christian over, but the decision apparently was made because this DQ finish did play to the main event stipulation, and because Edge Christian had gotten the best of the feud in almost every turn, leading up to the match. Finish still ruined the match. Star and a half. Just a cheap finish. And, uh, Cheap finish. They really didn't need it. Just put them over. They did. Edgy Christian did do some good bumping for them in that match. Well, I'm pretty that's, sure they did. That's that's <laughs> about that's about all I can say about it. Was you know, and you can, you know, and Jr. saying the kind of stuff you'd expect him to say about you know them being in Dallas and blah blah blah. I mean, you know, it was. I mean, Dave pretty much is right that this is a very sort of blah first half the card. It's like. Nothing horrible, really, but nothing memorable either. Yeah. All right, let's continue. As we go to our next match, Val Venus over Rikishi in fourteen ten of a cage match. They both worked hard, but Rikishi is really a dancing gimmick with the stink face spot, which doesn't lend well towards long matches. Val appeared to bust in his eye open hard way since the cut was at the side of the eye instead of the usual forehead. Rikisha does bonsai, but Venus got his foot in the ropes. Rikisha went to escape the cage, but Trish slammed the door in his head. Same building 18 years ago in the Flair Carry Von Eric match, Terry Gordy did that to Carry. It popularized that finish, although Dave bets almost nobody in the building even remembered that finish. Val did the money shot for near fall. Lita came out and took Trish's shirt off and began whipping her back to the dressing room with a belt. Val fell into Teddy Long as someone on a lame looking ref bump. Rikishi then climbed to the top of the cage, which would be a good nine feet, and teasing it literally forever, came off the top with a splash. That was one scary-looking spot. Because you're talking about a 400-man, 400-pound man, excuse me, doing the same spot a 240-pound Jimmy Snooker gave Jeff Jarrett a concussion doing. The ring may have broken or was at least damaged because of some of the bumps later in the show had a clanging sound to them. Best sign that was TNA equals Bradshaw and Rikishi. As Rikishi was going to leave, Taz came out and hit him with a TV camera, and Venus got the pin. Two and three-quarter stars. Yeah, we need to see big Rikishi jump off the top of a steel cage here. And hear what him landing sounds like. Yes. Champion. Why, Moses on the mat. Look at the height of Rikishi. Now, this was sparsing like a 
It's just the ring is clearly not meant to take that a man of that size coming from that height. That's just cra- a crazy spot. It's also it's interesting. Big. It's interesting yeah. too that he did it from the middle, not from the corner. Yeah, like he climbed up and then walked across and then did it from, you know, sort of like if he was doing like, you know, not he didn't do the superfly splash from the corner the way we would normally attribute it. That's sort of the interesting thing Probably. too. Probably it was easier that way, although it was probably uh, well. And that's how Venus was positioned too. And it's yeah. scary for him to walk across that cage at that size. Holy shit! So, yeah, Bob. I mean, you would something like that. You would think be would be remembered. It ain't. I think that. You know? I I don't remember that. I mean, I remember the uh, what the bump. Off the cage into the back of the pickup. Yeah, that. I mean, that 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 was a big deal. But I mean, still, this is a four hundred pound man jump off the top of a cage. You know. That's I mean, crazy. I feel like people probably remember him doing the splash off the stage onto Venus from a few weeks earlier on SmackDown more than they remember this. Yeah, it's just crazy how this isn't remembered more for being an impressive spot like it was. I mean, honestly, I don't even. I didn't even remember what was on this pay per view. When when I saw that it was this week, I was like, I didn't even, you know, this is from that era where things start to blur together, and, yeah. and unless it's unless it's something super noticeable, and yeah, you would think that bump, you know, again, here's Jericho versus Hunter, and I'm like, okay, it's like this is not one of their matches that I remember them having, even though it yeah. may have been the best one that they had. Yeah, exactly. All right, Shane McMahon challenged Rock to a non-title match wearing a Rock Just Bring a T-shirt. That T-shirt actually reminded that Rock is basically copying Scott Hall's catchphrase. Rock came out, which gave them one of the chances to go into the dressing room and tear up all of Rock's clothes. Uh-huh. Under well, Big Kurt Angle, 734. What? Who, who's his idol, Chris? Who's idol? Ben Was. Oh, Dynamite Kid. What was Dynamite Kid known to do, known to do in the locker room? Tear up people's clothes. There you go. Undertaker pinned Kurt Angle 734. Undertaker destroyed him early, refused to pin him on two occasions. Angle came back, worked on Undertaker's knee for a few minutes before Undertaker made the comeback, hitting the choke slam and high power bomb for the pin. They had a real good exchange of punches mid ring, but other than that, there was nothing to say positive about this match, and Angle really was booked to not look competitive. It was exactly what Dave expected, but he was still dumbfounded when it was over. Three quarters of a star. The guy just went king in the ring. You're doing you're doing this big angle coming up with him in Triple H. How does this happen? I mean, that's the thing that you know. We were talking about Triple H. It's surprised that Triple H lets this happen. Yeah, let's get like a against Undertaker, especially because Undertaker is so limited at this time that it's the only one where you know Angle won't just benefit from the quality of the match. So he kind of has to win, and he doesn't. Yeah. Speaking of Triple H, Triple H beat Chris Jericho in a last man standing match at 2311. 
Jericho hit a springboard draw kick early and was dom- dominated early. Triple H cut him off by uh, wrapping all, taking all the rat, excuse me, cut him off by hot shining him onto the security barricade and dropping him on the steps. Triple H pulled all the wrapping off Jericho's ribs, worked injury, and suplexed him on the floor. Jericho came back with Triple H got his knees up on the lion salt. Triple H used a sleeper with a body scissors. They p- tried to paint the picture of Jericho being tough as he struggled to get up to nine. He got up after the pedigree at nine. Triple H used a chair to the ribs and back. Jericho came back with a chair shot. Triple H bladed big time. Jericho missed a drop kick and a face brush on the chair, and then Triple H took a Harley race bump out of the ring. Triple H came back with the pedigree on the ring steps, but Jericho backflipped him over to the floor. Both hit each other with TV monitors for a double nine count. Jericho blocked the pedigree, hit the walls, but Triple H made a rope break. But since this was last man standing, Jericho didn't have to break. Finally, Stephanie came in, Triple H dropped the, and Jericho dropped the walls on Triple H and put it on Stephanie. Triple H recovered and hit Stephanie with a clothesline to the back. Triple H then pulled out a sledgehammer from under the ring. Jericho managed to get it and used it on Triple H's guts. In the brawl outside, and Triple H back suplexed Jericho through the American announce table. Both guys were down for the nine count. Triple H rose, then collapsed, won the match. Four and a half stars. And Wade notes that the finish of this match was going to be different, but China and Terry broke a ringside table earlier tonight that was supposed to be used by Triple H and Jericho. Oops. Well, let's watch this finish and see how much we think Jericho got out of it. Keeping in mind, obviously, they had been competitive and brawling back and forth up to this point. H is bleeding a lot. Sledgehammer. Yeah. Right there. What's Jericho going to do here? The game is. He's hopeless on our team. What are you doing? What in the hell is Jericho doing? Jericho barely able to stand. But the game is gone. A low blow. A low blow from the game. They're on the timekeeper's table. credit jr does hammer home for the next few weeks at least on tv triple h was up at 10 and down at 11 like she was immediately 
yes, they do try to put this over the way you would want them to. But it's their first match and Triple H has lost the title. It's their first match that's not a title match. It feels like Jericho should have won. It's a last man standing match. It's not a pinfall job. No, you stayed out even longer. (laughs) You know, know, what I thought was interesting, and I don't know if he did this on purpose, but as they're both lying there, Hunter does have his arm over Jericho as if, yes, this is a Texas death match, but by the way, I'm theoretically pinning him too, even though that's actually not part of the story. But when you watch it, it does look like he's got the arm draped over him as if he's pinning him. In yeah. A way, yeah. Well, because also remember, things would get dice. Like, even from people like Meltzer, who were very high on Triple H's work at the time, would still analyze the hell out of the things he was doing to protect himself in the booking and the finishes. I mean, the one I always remember, there was a tag. It was Triple H and X Pac against maybe Jericho and someone. And Triple H ate the pin. But it was off of, like, a miscommunication where Triple H is, like, climbing the turnbuckle and X-Pac gets into the ropes. And that knocks him down and he gets crushed and that leads to the pin. And I remember Dave and Brian pointing out on Observer Live, like, really, it's X-Pac that beat Triple H. Not Hysterico or whoever it was. So, if that was informed based on things they were actually hearing at the time about the things Triple H was doing... Yeah, I can see this being a deliberate thing to make it look like he's spinning Jericho. I also wonder, was it deliberate that when they did that back suplex spot that Hunter landed on the table and Jericho landed on the floor so that theoretically Jericho did take more punishment? Or is that just how they landed and it was a happy coincidence? I'll Uh, pull it back up, but I think it's just how they landed because they had to go off of the tiny little timekeeper table. Yeah, I didn't think it was on purpose, but when you look at it, it's sort of like... He smartly made Jericho take more punishment. Oh, I do terms, think it's just, you mean in terms of the finish making sense? Yeah, in terms okay. of the, the 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 internal diegetic logic of I'm landing on the table, but he's landing on the floor, so he's taking more punishment. Yeah, but isn't the wrestling logic at this point the the person who goes through the table is taking more punishment? But he's also not. But he's also not going "quote unquote" through the table. He's taking like a back bump on the table, whereas Jericho's taking the bump on the concrete. I mean, Triple H Ross doesn't even, even take much of a bump onto the table either. <laughs> no, and Ross said that Jericho his Jericho's head bounced off the concrete. Yeah. Although, okay, you think- know what? Actually, Triple H is under him. He is. I mean, he's in in rest, like in, not in terms of the way the finish is laid out, but he is protecting him. Like he is. Yeah. All right, the Raw pin, Chris and Juan, 2209, the WF title. These two had a real tough path to follow. Tremendously well-executed match. In that sense, it was better than the previous match, although the other match had a better finish. Built better and had more games associated with it. The one had Raw with the title belt for near fall. It was too early in the match for the fans by that one. Then when he sharpshooter where Raw got out, Shane pulled down the ropes and Raw took a bump over the top. Raw came back with a dragon screw into a figure four. Shane destroyed the referee and Benoit made the ropes. Shane clotheslined Raw twice outside the ring. At one point after they brought in the stands, Benoit suplexed Raw back up the security barrier inside. Raw got near falls with a DDT and a powerbomb-like maneuver, dropped backwards into a hot shot. 
Then one guy near fall with a diving headbutt. Rocket the spine buster in people's elbow. But Shane distracted Earl Hebner and Benoit kicked out. Benoit got near fall with a top row superplex. What appeared to be the finish was Shane hitting Hebner with a chair. Rock then got the chair and Hebner added that he didn't see it as he was recovering. With Hebner down, Rock got Benoit on the crossface and they did a total dusty finish with Hebner crawling over and signaling for the bell. But Rock had won with the move. Instead, Hebner told Howard Finkel that he thought Rock hit him with a chair and DQ'd Rock awarded the title Benoit in 1928. Fans were starting to pelt the ring, seeing what they thought was a title change using a dusty finish not so fast Foley came back out and said that even though the title could change hands by DQ he didn't see a DQ and on the match continue then Watt came out rolling German suplex for a near fall got the cross face with Rock made to the ropes Rock scored a pin rather suddenly at the rock bottom in 241 restarted match excellent main event but still hard to make sense of out of a storyline where Benoit, the heel, who's in his first ever main event, gets laid out on Monday, taps out on Thursday, gets locked in his own hole for an apparent loss in a pay-per-view, but handed the belt only to get pinned cleanly a few minutes later. Four and a quarter stars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder who's uh who's in, in the ears of the creative about this type of thing. Who's in the meetings? Hmm. Yeah, there you go. Alright, so I guess we're going to watch this. I mean, do we want to play any of this, or do we need to? I don't know you got... I mean, you just had it set up. I just didn't know. Right, I'm leaving it up to you. Nah, I think we'll be alright. But Mark, I mean, you watched this. The reverse Dusty. Uh, <laughs> it worked, I guess. It's, it's funny to see that finish, because I had just been talking this week about... Uh, I think maybe the first time I saw uh, sort of that version live, which was at the... Uh, Bash 86 in Philadelphia, which I believe you were on our pod once talking about a couple years ago, where uh, Tommy Young did the thing where he was crawling across the ring, but slapping, so it made it look like Hawk was pinning Flair when Flair had, either Hawk or Flair had thrown the other over the top rope earlier, blah, 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 blah. So it's like, you know, that's 15 years later seeing that finish again it's just it's always weird it's like when you see the, a ref crawling to pin like you know something bad's gonna happen but i mean the match is fine you know, there's nothing wrong with it other than the finish the war i mean the 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 guys in the match are fine i guess i should say I mean, those two had great chemistry yeah they did and Dave's thinking that this is going to begin a long-term feud between the two well <laughs> no and it, which was kind of a shame too, also because like Rock clearly liked working with him. Rock was yes. always stepping up his own game when he worked with Benoit. He clearly saw Benoit as someone who was making him better. Yeah. Um. Where was that? But going they at? obviously didn't see, they didn't see Benoit as that guy. For I mean, here and there, but not someone that's always going to be at that level. Yeah. Now then, they also do the thing where. Until Rock's gone. Yeah. But they also do the thing... Was it Unforgiven where they do another Benoit gets announced as champion finish? It's later in the year. And then they do a thing after a while where, like, when they're trying to build him up as a contender again, it's like, Chris Benoit has been announced as WWF champion twice. <laughs> like, yeah. as if that somehow helps. No. Oh, going back to the Benoit... Or going back to Jericho thing for a second... Earlier, Dave had said this may be Jericho's best match in North America or America, one of the two. And he, so, and he gives it four and a half. So I'm wondering, 
what would he have thought was a better match that he had? Like one of the J Cup matches? Because I'm trying America, to think. So it'd be probably. Uh... Or does he? Or because I can't imagine anything he did in Mexico he would have thought was better than this. So I, I guess he 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 would have to mean Japan. So I assume he probably means the J Cup. Mm, right. He might mean Ultima. Yeah, but, but he used the North American caveat. Right. That's what. I'm, that's what I mean. It's Jacob like Jacob ain't Jacob ain't North American. No, 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 no. no. Asking which non-American matches Dave would have thought was better. Yeah. What what match that Jericho had not in North America was better than this four and a half star match that he just had? Um. So he's probably thinking the Benoit J Cup match and the one Ultimo match were uh, from when is it like July '95? Yeah, that's like possible. Yeah. No, it's just it's just funny that way he worded it. Maybe because I mean I think other than yeah, like there's one or two matches at this point you don't think of him having that many super 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 high rated right. matches in in Japan. I mean later that's different, but at this point, not really. Other than the couple obviously that we that we mentioned, and it was just something that I that was interesting when he said that. Yeah, I'm trying to think what it would be. Um, it has to be one of those two. I guess. I don't I mean, I'm trying to find something. Uh, this one I'm looking at only goes back to 2019. Uh, okay, here we go. This this will work. All right, so uh, he get, Dave gave uh, War Third Anniversary Show four and a half stars. Jericho and Ultima. Mm-hmm. This was four and a half stars. No Mercy 2000. Well, I'm not going after the fact. Uh, I'm pulling up Jacob on Cage Match. <sighs> these were the highest matches he ever given by this time. Okay. This match and uh, Ultima. Of course, they get higher as the years go on. Well, and as we've heard Dave say recently, that, you know, four and a quarter, four and a half, you know, are basically the same thing, you know, and four and a half and five are kind of basically the same thing. I believe that's what he said in that interview. So, you know, it's all, at least at this point, much, again, you know, A plus is A plus. Plus, yeah. also with Dave too, with his star ratings, the ratings only reflect the thought at the time. Yeah, right. Okay, he gave the Benoit J Cup match four and a quarter. So yeah, he, presumably he means the ultimate match. Yeah. So, all right. Well, preliminary estimates are that fully loaded drew four hundred fifteen thousand buys, which is about a one point oh four buy rate, and being about thir- five point three four million company gross. Any figure of three hundred fifty thousand would have be considered a success because they were putting so- so-called unproven drawing talent in the main slots. And also because Benoit was not hyped to portray it as the Raw's biggest challenge, as much as simply a transition challenge for getting back to Triple H. Yet this show actually appears to have drawn. And remember, there can be major discrepancies between the first announced estimates and final numbers, which actually aren't for sure until 90 days after the fact. That this drew slightly more buys than Raw and Triple H drew for their six-minute judgment match of Judgment Day, which is 400000 Which, by the way, Mark's- holy shit, does Dave completely forget he has a parenthetical going on here. Yeah. In March... <laughs> Rock's eight pay-per-view main event that topped the 1.0 mark, putting him at the supposed age 28 in fifth place of all-time records behind Hogan, Flair, Austin, and Brett. 
Officially, Batlash on April 3rd drew right 700,000 buys, which will be one of the largest of all time and biggest so-called non-major card. The fact that Batlash greatly drew Aldrey King in the ring and that Fully Loaded did about the same shows that the idea of the major and non-major events, at least outside of Rumble, Mania, and SummerSlam, is no longer an issue when it comes to getting people to buy, as they buy based on the card, not the name of the show with those noted exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there you go, everyone, you know. As much as we all hated that finish at WrestleMania that year, it was the right thing for business because they popped what I think ends up being the second largest non-WrestleMania buy rate in the history of the company. And, uh, boy, did that ring true 23 years later with the finish of WrestleMania this year and how business has been since then. Yeah. <laughs> we all pissed them on that night. Look at them now. <laughs> so, yeah. And also, who was booking that finish? This year, the guy who won in the 2000 finish, yeah. and who got a nice hefty check, maybe bigger than what he expected uh, for backlash. Yeah, so makes you wonder. Yeah, does doesn't it? All right, Raw on the 24th was a decent show, but somewhat weak on the wrestling end. Foley in his opening promo uh, put the pay per view show over and emphasized the quality of the two main events. That's different between WCW. WCW had better matches, not many but a few, during the score period than either of the two main events on the fully loaded show. But they weren't pushed as such when they were going on, never pushed as such after the fact, and never elevated anyone. Does anyone recall the Hubertu Guerrero Blitzkrieg match? Again, that there you go. I mean, that is a huge was a huge difference in WWF and WCW in that era. Was how well, they it- portrayed, you know, their whole shows. Compared to WCW, only talking about the main event and, you know, what a glorious night for the business and blah, 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 blah. Well, there's also the thing where WCW may have had better matches, but they are also on the undercard, whereas WWF's good matches are almost in the main event. So it's like, I mean, are they really going to go, yeah, like you said, are they going to go on Nitro and talk about how, you know, how great Eddie versus Ray was at Halloween Havoc when... You know, you've got to spend more time talking about Hogan and Piper or whoever it was that year. I mean, I understand, year. but you need to find that – you need to find that medium. Oh, definitely. And, yeah, it's – and, again, the guys at WCW having these great matches should have been elevated sooner or at all more than they were. But, you know, that's WCW, everybody. Exactly. But there is also a business reason, though, because you're trying to sell replays as well. Yes. Exactly. All right. Anyway, the Rikishi uh, steel cage jump was now 16 feet. The over under the exaggerated height, led to be about nine, was 19. Fully called Triple H Jericho, one of the greatest matches of all time, and Benoit and Rock is one of the greatest time matches in the history of the company. Fans were lukewarm for those comments, except when Foley mentioned Rock's name. Hmm. Okay. Um. This whole this whole thing went in. Went more than a quarter. Went about uh, 20, 25 minutes, hmm. naturally. So, Stephanie came out, blah, blah, blah. She demanded Foley give Benoit a rematch later that night. Uh, Foley said for once he found uh, Stephanie attractive, but now if it was Jericho's opinion, she slapped him. He threatened to fire and fire her, but instead decided the first time they have a brother-sister tag as Shane and Stephanie would face a po- two opponents of his choosing. He guaranteed that Benoit Triple H interfered. He'd fire them all. 
Well, there you go. All right, Steve Blackman beat Road Dog in five twenty-seven. They're taking the hardcore title. X Fox joined Russell on our commentary. X Fox said he and Dog made a friendly challenge over who was a better singles wrestler. The match included a chair, garbage cans, karate sticks. In the end, Blackman thrust hit the chair in Dog's face, scored the pin. Fox said he challenged Blackman to a hardcore title match on SmackDown. See who the real karate master is. So there's that. Uh, backstage, Triple H entered Stephanie's locker room. Stephanie told Triple H about fully making her wrestle. Triple H was upset, threw flowers against the wall. Stephanie cried as she told him those flowers were from her to him. Here we go. We're getting deeper and deeper into that story. It is funny how sort of young Stephanie looks at this point. In the, I mean, it's only 2000, but, and, you know, she presumably hasn't started having a lot of surgery yet, but it's just like, she just looks so young. It's, she looks more like the girl in the WWF catalog commercials than she would as like evil Stephanie a few years later. Well, she's 23. She's 23 here. Yeah, yeah. she is young. She's almost 24. And yes, I mean, she's not big Steph yet. But it's so funny for just, you know, walking out in just her like plain white t-shirt or, you know, her logo t-shirt and like track pants. It's, you know, just she looks so like innocent and cute, even though she's already, no. you know, becoming so mean Stephanie. Well, it's pre-plastic so surgery. It's pre-working out and supplementing with Triple H. It's, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot that changes. Yeah, I know. It's just funny. She doesn't look as much like Vince as she would look like Vince. And that's where we're going to where we're going to end that conversation. I mean, as far as the facial features. No, I know, I mean, I, but anyway. <laughs> Alright, so um Lita, Shane, Lita, Shane, Lita, Shane and Steph come out. Lita comes out. Shane didn't care who Lita's partner was. He would defend his sister. Big Show's music didn't play. Shane immediately panicked and ran to the back. Big Show followed. That just left the women. So that leaves Lita being stepped by DQ in one minute. Crowd went nuts and Steph got to run the ring. Trish ran on 45 seconds, not Lita off the top rope. Trish with Lita, Stephanie kicked her. Stephanie's music played as she left arm and arm with Trish with a smile on her face. Presume it's a DQ ending since no decision was actually announced. Okay. And since we're, on, since we're on cable, Lita's thong is back. Yeah. Um, they know that Stephanie didn't look bad given the very limited bumping she did. Um, yes, but when is... she took that snap mare, though, she did not flatten out. She did not throw her arms down at all. Like, she's clearly... Not instinctually bumping at all, yeah. Well, they just took a bump for both of them on that right there. Um, this is elevating Lena to, to be in the mix with Stephanie. Yeah. You know? And now we have so, our first Stephanie-Trish interactions, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so next we get Bull Buchanan with Stephen Richards painting the Godfather with hose in 436. Since Godfather lost his that the hose were banned from ringside forever. During the match, fans chanted, save the hose. Ross said, next thing you know, there'd be bumper stickers and an 800 number. At 350, Richard Superkid won the hose and slapped another one. He nailed Godfather with a chair and the ref tended to the fallen hose. Bull didn't hit a top row leg drop for the win. <laughs> Uh, so this is Dave's thoughts. Uh, so Bull lost Richards will have to stop censoring things, which Wade didn't know. Really bad match. Godfather had the new twin sign. Elaine and Diane 
Klimaszewski and his entourage. They didn't last very long, did they? Um, Ross went on about the First Amendment. Somehow Dave's not sure when the First Amendment ties in with the freedom to be a pimp. <laughs> the announcer sold the hell out of the step, and the fans lied treated this dislike but treated this like that because the hose were at stake. It was a main event match. <laughs> well, we got hose on the line, you know, that's what happens. Undertaker destroyed Kurt Angle again. Instead <laughs> of a chokeslam about one minute when the show came out in the guise of wanting shame, but instead they all turned on the Undertaker and laid him out. They attacked him again backstage, and Shane broke a, broke a cinder block over his knee. By WF logic, Big Show and Taz, that means Shane should be romantically involved. Oh, sorry, that's Stephanie. I mean managing. Taker and his return as opposed to having them having a grudge working a program over such a heinous act. Does that make Stephanie patty? <laughs> All right, so uh, Chris Jericho came out. All right, so real, real quick, Dave knows somewhere in here, probably due to time, time constraints, a plan to announce European title match with Saturn against Crash Holly was canceled. What's well, up for them? Mm-hmm. Um, Jericho called a Triple H to deliver one hell of a promo, putting Jericho over for the great match. But then said Jericho wasn't in his league. <laughs> uh, they had a dress room brawl. Earlier in the show, they put more heel Triple H. Stephanie's another said as he destroyed the room full of flowers he thought she was getting from Jericho Angle. But they're actually flowers she gave to him. She did her worst acting job on that one in a long time. Ever since those horrible boyfriend girlfriend skits with Andrew. Aww. All right. Um, as we continue here, looks like Rikishi and Taz is going to be a SummerSlam program. Was so those it? people that were wanting that? <laughs> I don't think so. They, I think Rikishi was hurt. Uh, Edge and Christian won a three-way with Dudley's and Hardys. Trish threatened to sue Foley for sexual harassment. Dave wonders where he got that. Where they got that idea from? Lena's Trish today. Strap match. We saw Stephanie save Trish with a belt shot on Lita. And Strats get the win. Lita came off like a star more on this show than any of the date, but she also took the bump for the shot. Well, that's not good. All of these strap matches while they're in Texas. You think Michael Hayes is on the booking committee at this point? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so what was said here was Trish said she said she was offended being forced to a strap match and said called Foley a pervert who likes seeing women whipped. And if it continues, she was going to sue for sexual harassment. All right. So that's where that is. Uh, Way noted that uh, Stephanie uh, shot Lita to the face with a bell, showed a lot of light. Gee, wonder who will get blamed for that miscue. Early in the match, Lita ripped off Trish's top. The camera got a good cleavage shot of Trish as she'd been over after the match. Of course they did. Uh, so then we have uh, the main event. Is uh, that's only time match on the show. Fast paced heated bout with Rock and Kane against Angle Benoit with sports entertainment non finish. Show came out of layout. Kane, Rock had Benoit in the crossface for about two weeks. Shane finally broke it up. Rock chased Shane, so Angle broke it up with a chair. Benoit, Angle, and Shane all beat up the Rock in the show. After the show went off the air, Rock got up and challenged Benoit. Shane came out and talked about his new stable, which is show. Benoit, Angle, Edge, and Christian, and invited Rock to join, being that their respective families go back generations. Of course, Rock laid him out with a rock bottom, people's elbows, and everyone home happy. And this stable falls apart quickly and doesn't really become a thing. 
Yeah. Um, Wade Keller's thoughts. We hope to send a folder accomplish several goals, including setting the stage for the rest of the show in an entertaining way. Most importantly, though, it created a great sense of regret for the viewers who didn't see the preview the night before. There's nothing more important to sell the next one's preview than making those who missed the previous one feel they left out as if they missed a monumental show. After all, nobody wants to be left out two months in a row. Fold did a great job selling the high points of preview from the night before. That's so WCW definitely didn't do. <laughs> Definitely that shit. The payoff to the build up of Shane and Stephanie fighting the tag match disappointment. Nobody expects Shane Stephanie put on a full fledged match, but Shane's become such an entertaining in ring performer. It was a letdown. He left for the match began. Had fully not booked Big Show's opponent to Shane, their tag match, it sure would have been tough for Shane and Big Show to pull off their scam on Taker, huh? Wonder if Fuller was in on the conspiracy. Or was it just a convenient lap of logic? Then once finishes become much like Flair's figure four, he ends up the victim of it more often than the person applying it. <laughs> Strong point, building the preview night four. We point a lack of finishes to several bouts. Talk about a running theme. Overall score, 7.5. Entertaining but effective show. So there is Raw. Now, before Raw, we just go to the torch. At the pre-Raw reduction meeting, Lillian Garcia spoke that she didn't think Trish Stratus should be asked to be involved in a strap match on Raw because she had welts on her from Sunday's match. She got she got chewed out, and somebody told her to stick to Osei, can you see? She began crying. Shane Man took her aside and told her she was foolish to speak out like that because it's not unusual or unexpected that somebody performing in the WF would have welts or abrasions after a match. Stratus made it clear later to manager that she didn't complain and didn't put Lillian up to speaking on her behalf. Okay, here's the thing. Without, yeah. Particularly without more details. Yeah. And especially knowing how people would be talking differently 23 years ago. They did. What if she doesn't mean, oh, it's unfair because she has a boo-boo? What if she means... It doesn't really make sense because she already has welts from the night before. So why are you doing a strap match when you can't get the strapping over? Here's the thing, Bex. That's not what that means. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying the way it's written here. Uh, Lillian, Lillian is not. Lillian is not thinking that resume. No, Lillian is is showing concern for her friend. Correct. Yes. Um. <sighs> if I'm trash, I'm pissed. Yeah, I, I, I'm pissed. They pissed at Lily for doing that because that puts Trish in a bad spot. Yes, you know, especially someone like who's as much of a gamer as Trish is, to where she clearly doesn't give a shit. And the thing is, and and, and Shane told told her, you know, basically the way it is. You know, listen, we get our, our people get hurt every night. We work with injuries. I guess the you question know? is, besides that it's her friend, so maybe because she's so much closer with Trish than she is with everyone else, she's getting more of a first-hand look at it. I guess that's why, but still, it's like you've been there a year. Why is this bothering you so much? It's Trish. I guess that's why. Um, another thing, too, is... Now, here's the thing. With this going on, though, it does not... It does not... Excuse whoever said stick to Osei. Can you see that? Right. That was not good. That, I mean, that's not that's not how you handle it, right? You know, because this is then also you know just a couple of years before the meeting where, um, 
what I forget. It was just a general like talent meeting, and they were taking questions, and like Trish asked, like, "Why don't we do more things to have better continuity with the house shows? The house shows draw better." And like she got like sneered at, and people were making comments to themselves about how now she knows enough to be dangerous. Yeah, so it's like the attitude there is still shitty, even if Lillian probably should not have done that. Yeah, but couldn't you probably also say that if they were at a production meeting and like Gary Capetta was in that meeting and said the exact same thing, he would have gotten laughed at too. That it's no. not that no. I don't. No, it would have been different. nearly the same. No, it's different. I mean, it would have been different, but it. I. It seems like if you're an outside, you know, quote unquote outsider, still relatively new to the business and a relatively not crucial position, and you question something, I would think, you know, they would they would sneer, you know, on a much you know much 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 lower level. You know, I that happened once. I think when I was at some indie show and I just floated some idea about something and I got the, you know, who do you think you are? Look, Oh, that'll happen. Yes. I agree with you. That, that's, that's, I mean, I, I agree. There's extra dimensions because it's a Lillian, but I think like a guy like sort of like maybe like less important than Gary Capetta, but if it was, you know, just your like average, a Bill John, Manny Garcia, like an in and out short term ring announcer, someone without the te- someone without the tenure, so that you're really just comparing the gender gap, the difference at that point, right? Right. That because it's I think it's um I think it's so sort of interesting that Leland was actually in the production meeting because other than you know singing the anthem and being the ring announcer, you would think that per they wouldn't view that person as somebody who needs to be in the meeting, other than maybe for time cue purposes. Yeah. Well, it's WWF, so it's pretty much all hands on deck. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's the thing. Whoever, like, all the announcers, timekeepers, like, the only people that aren't normally in the production meeting are the wrestlers. That's why it would become such a big deal when a wrestler was in the production. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, before rolling on the air live in Austin, Texas, the dubs beat Pete Gass and Rodney, and then. Just Joe pinned Joey Abs in dark matches. In matches take for syndication, Dean Malenko pinned Esarios. D'Lo Brown and Chaz beat Kayantai. And Big Boss Man beat Midian. And then it goes into the uh, thing after Raw. Most likely, some going to be headlined by their three man or four man match for the title of Ollie Rock, Triple H, and Benoit. And perhaps Kane and Show was the fourth man. Uh, no. <laughs> No, that doesn't happen. Rock Triple H angle is the uh, main event. Maybe maybe Shane should have offered to make Rock the tribal chief. <laughs> maybe. Like in the UK, WWE shows now air on an hour table late, so they can be edited by the WF and then sent to Germany. In Germany, on the Triple H Jericho match, they showed the action in black and white after the blood, with the German announcers doing voiceover, displaying it by saying people don't want to see brutality on television. They also edited Rock's blood, but did show Venus's blood. They also freeze-framed Lita hitting tra- Stratus with a strap, but did show the replay of it when it aired. So there's where the blood, black and white blood begins for them right here. I guess so, yeah. So, it's really strange that Benoit's TV win over Rock was never brought up in any of the build-ups of their pay rematch. 
Particularly since Benoit wasn't being put over Rock on TV seven weeks before the show. And since he was doing the job, they probably should have had Benoit holding Rock in a crossface with Rock reached for the ropes when Hedmer stopped the match and ruled the DQ in a title switch, which followed then overruled. There wouldn't have been as much heat as far as throwing things from fans who thought Rock got screwed out of the title, but it would still be just as dramatic with the restart, and maybe more so because Benoit's near falls would have meant more. That way, Benoit could claim he was legitimately cost the title as a bitch and still done the clean job in the restart. This way, although Benoit did get the moment of leaving with the belt and the fact that Rock had him beat with his own hold until the ref made the call, bad call, then got pinned clean in the restart after tapping to his own hold on SmackDown being laid out on Raw. Yeah. Yeah, Benoit did have that TV one over Rock. Wasn't mentioned, though. Was not mentioned it at all. It wasn't clean, but yeah, they just didn't mention it. <clears throat> now we go to this for the torch. Although Chris Benoit may, may be happy with his push, <laughs> friends say Dean Malenko ate a good out on Paris Saturday and have all his second thoughts about joining the WF. Benoit's pay, given his favorite and hotshot position on cards, may exceed what he had made in WCW. Malenko, Eddie, and Saturn may not make more than they would have been guaranteed in WCW, and without question, will work more dates. Saturn said to be the most disgruntled, and he is the person who Vince McMahon has bonded with the least. Saturn is considered to be strange and not worth a ton of effort to push. Although the WF is not giving up on him as evidenced by pairing him with Terry Runnels. He has some back problems that might be slowing him down. He puts hot packs on his back for his match to keep his back loose. Malenko is happy he got to work for Vince at least once in his career, but he has had moments where he questioned the wisdom of not waiting out the WCW situation, but he couldn't have known how quickly Kevin Sullivan would be ousted from power. He has taken the matches against women in stride for the most part. Dean has even said, at least I'm not in Perry's position. Of the three, Eddie has gotten the best push, but with their schedule, his injuries might not have had enough time to heal completely. He seemed especially sore at the matches, and some of that soreness may be effects from the severe injuries he suffered in the car accident well over a year ago. But WF, you lose ground with Vince if you seem injury-prone. His push with China gathered some momentum, but recently seemed to have stalled while the focus shifted to Kurt Angle, Chris and Juan, Chris Jericho. I mean, you look at this time, and you can definitely see why these three guys would feel maybe we didn't make the right move. Now, Eddie, of course, that would change as time rolled on. But, yeah, Dean and Saturn, although Dean got the danger job for life. And, hey, WCW's going to die anyway. So, you know, in the long run, they made the right decision. But you can see at that time in real time where they thought, well, maybe we didn't. Here's the other layer we need to consider, though. You know, post-Benoit episode of Dark Side of the Ring, we need to remember... All of their wives were involved to the point of, like, basically viewing the Chris and Nancy relationship as all of them helping her escape Kevin. Yeah. So it's so but much more anyway, though. But that's the thing, you know? though. They have no idea that. That's, like, look, it's very clear. You know, when we did that week where they walked out, we kept thinking at the time, this is before the Dark Side episode, we're like, why are they this upset about it like we knew about some of the claims about abuse and stuff but still it's like we didn't know what they knew and then it comes on the dark side it's like oh yeah everyone's wife was involved in this and it was looked at as them helping nancy escape an abusive marriage so in light of that it's like it's 
you can't look at it based on just like, oh, they couldn't have known Kevin wouldn't be, you know, oh, they could have bided their time or whatever. It's like, no, you get why they felt like, especially once they had the out with Mike Graham making the comment about, you know, cutting Benoit's throat or whatever it was, why they were like, okay, we have our opening, let's leave. But you can also see to a degree why Saturn, Eddie, and Malenko were also thinking, we did this for Chris. Yeah. Because even in the old, I mean, even in the older version of it, like, you know, before the dark side, just with what we knew from the newsletters and stuff, really, they were doing it for Benoit. So you can see where it's coming from, but I also don't think in the grand scheme of things they would be that resentful. And the thing is, the thing is, though, is look how much that narrative changes after what happens in the end. Well, yeah. You know, you know, I mean, nobody would have thought that at that time, of course. Nobody would have thought that would have been a thing that would have happened. But, yeah, that makes that whole thing look uh, odd in hindsight. But, yeah. All right, uh, stay on the torch. Remarkably, neither Val Venus nor Rikishi were injured from the Superfly leap off the top of the cage. The website initially reported that Val and Rikishi suffered serious injuries as a result of the move, but by the time Raw came around, they didn't push that angle. In fact, Rikishi showed up and did a run-in. Otherwise, Val Venus wasn't mentioned, the only, and, the angle was, and the angle was only alluded to. They didn't even tease it encouraged purchase the replay in pay-per-view. The dangerous stunt was downplayed as not to compete with the top, compete with the top matches on the card. But if a move that dangerous doesn't push the next down raw, it's questionable whether that risk is worth taking. Perhaps Rikishi would, felt it would help elevate him if he began taking big full-life bumps. For the last six, eight months, they typically sets up stuck crash mats and arenas for big events so wrestlers can practice major moves. Rikishi and Val may have practiced with those before the pay-per-view, but no sources confirmed that was the case. Well, see, there, I mean, there's one thing they dropped the ball on is in not making that a bigger deal on, on Raw. I mean, you could, you can still have your your push for your main matches, but that was a major spot to happen on that show. That you know, good lord, you ain't gonna see again, especially someone so, that size with that higher risk. Yes, yes, that should have been on there. So, not a good move. And in the and Wade's asking the right question. Why should why should these guys take these types of moves if we're not going to get rewarded for it, mm-hmm. so to speak? I mean, in another era, that you would have put that at the, at the beginning of your TV show. I mean, good luck, like a snucker, <clears throat> right? You know, and still to this day, still to this day, that spot gets talked about in reverence. Rikishi's spot's more impressive than Snuka's was, but it. It's just a different time and place and how things are remembered. You know, I mean, good Lord, I'm talking about all the time on the show. I remember more stuff from 80s and early 90s shit than I do from late 90s and 2000s shit because it resonated better. Well, it's funny. Like I said, I didn't remember what was on this pay-per-view, and I looked at the matches, and I actually had to stop and think – who were baby faces and who were heels at this time in 2000? Because I didn't remember. Well, there's so many people that turned in that company from back and forth. Back and forth. You know? That's I mean, I, I had the same thing when I was watching Nitro. I was like, especially the way people were behaving on that show, you can't tell who's baby face and who's a heel, especially because Vince Russo's booking. It's like, 
I guess you, you you have to just wait for context and you know wait for them to say or who comes out first or who yeah. jeers the crowd or otherwise it's just it could be you know it, it's sort of a thing with modern wrestling it's like you know you could pull these names out of a hat from any from like this two year period and it could be uh, it could be either you could face rock heel rock face triple h heel triple h well big show big show kane the uh, val Venus, those guys like that just turned to the drop of a dime so yeah all right uh, big speaking of Big Show, Big Show right back into looking good physically, but there are questions about his cardio conditioning at this point. Big Show didn't endear himself to manager when he dozed off during the production preview. <laughs> he during the finished meeting around WrestleMania earlier this year too. He tried to earn brownie points by going to the meeting, but did more damage than good by nodding off. Show also didn't impress manager by leading the preview on Sunday early rather than staying around and studying the two main events and discussing what worked and didn't work with others backstage who were glued to the monitors. Oh, sounds like some wrestler was pissed off, Bix. I wonder if that could have been. I mean, here's the thing, though. <laughs> I'm not saying this was what was going on, but I was going to say in that era, but really in any era, the first thing you usually think when someone falls asleep at TV, especially in a meeting, is that they have a drug problem. It's a big show. That's not the case. I, well, that's what I was about to say, though. It seems like no one thinks that. Show's not, show wasn't one of those guys. Maybe his sugar was crashing. Or maybe he was just tired. But, I mean, this uh, this whole thing about staying around watching the matches and monitors and asking and, and talking, this, discussing, you know where this is coming from. I mean, it is so obvious. Oh, Who's where do you this. think, Chris? Well, it's not just him. It's who his associate is. Well. That's being at the Wade. Well. You know? Yeah. I mean, come on. Since, D- since Dave's totally huge fans of Christian and Edge's act these days, he was really worried this past week that if they go any farther, they'll be in danger of becoming too much of a caricature. Yeah. I'd almost think they were by this point. If they're yeah. still doing the making fun of local sports teams gimmick. Well, I mean, they're still going. I mean, that's the, they're still doing this gimmick for a while after this, too. So, But it was over. Fans loved it. So I guess that's all that matters. Shane Man was told by Do- Dr. James Andrews that he doesn't need surgery. Well, good news for that. Undertaker remains banged up with two or three injuries he's been working through. Speaking of, to the torch, insiders say Undertaker's conscious that he has some catching up to do for his character to be on par with Triple H, Rock, and even Chris Jericho and Angle at this point. That challenge combined with his nagging injuries has slowed his initial momentum. Taker got married over the weekend near his residence in Tampa, Florida. Their website acknowledged Taker getting married, which probably wouldn't have happened a year or two ago in his character's previous incarnation. Remember, Taker chose not to acknowledge Owen Hart's death during Raw during the Raw tribute, where many wrestlers broke character to talk about what Owen meant to him. He believed his character was all he had, and it would be too risky breaking character in such a way. Now, admitting he has a family life doesn't conflict with an American badass persona. <sighs> I'm sure if you asked him today. He would say that's one of the biggest regrets he probably ever had in wrestling. Yes. Did he also get the tattoo at this point? Um, I don't know if it's at this point or not, but it's coming. It's around this time because this is Sarah. Yeah. yeah right. Sarah. That's what I mean. So I don't know, but yeah. Acolytes were all TV due to the health of Ron Simmons' mother-in-law. So there's that. Uh, now we got Torch. Well, actually, by much- the way, 
I just realized. (laughs) Insiders say Undertaker is conscious that he has some catching up to do for his character to be on par of Triple H, Rock, and even Jericho and Angle at this point. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. Wade. Mark's conscious that he has some catching up to do for his character to be on par with me, Rock, even Jericho and Angle. I just, again, I don't see Triple H talking to Wade. I totally see him talking to Wade. He's got his... Uh, you think he's doing it through Waltman? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Hey, Sean. <laughs> Tell him. Well, well, you also have Jericho here, too. So you can get it either way. It's always good to have plausible deniability. You could go either way with this one. So. All right. Uh, but still, McKinney's even behind. Jericho and I, Angle... You know where that's coming from. Shame and continues to be behind Steve Blackman, even though his rep among other wrestlers that he's difficult to work with. Not because of his attitude, because of his in-ring style. And he could kill them all. While Rock dresses among other wrestlers, Triple H often has his own dressing room and spends a lot of time in Vince Man's office and arenas. It gives Rock an image of more of a wrestler's wrestler, and Triple H is a a bit of a brown noser. Triple H does spends a number of hours per week in production meetings working on storylines other than his own, whereas that is not Rock's area of interest. Hmm. Brown noser. While Edge and Christian are equals backstage and interacting with other wrestlers and management, Matt Hardy tends to be the backstage leader, while Jeff is more laid back. <laughs> Shock! There was a criticism of Matt for trying to do what turned out to be a botch boss with Albert early in a preview match. The moves were challenging enough for Matt, who shouldn't even try to live up to his brother's natural acrobatic ability, but especially tough for Albert, who was still considered to be very green. Yeah, he was trying to do, like, knuckle lock stuff into lucha arm drags, and it just was not the right time or place or person to try that with. Yes, yes. To further the Godfather Stephen Richards angle, Richards has hacked Godfather's WF Hose website and put an anti-host speech on the website in place of revealing photos. WF fans are being encouraged to write WF and protest Richard's censorship. (laughs) Build that mailing list. (laughs) Well, I can't believe at least Stevie at this point may have learned, known how to code and he probably actually could have done it. (laughs) If this is the time when he has his video game store. Um, maybe. But, yeah, they, they need to get some more addresses to that mailing list. Do have hired Donna Goldsmith as senior vice president of consumer products. She will oversee publications, merchandise, licensing, home video, and retail marketing. She will report to Stuart Schneider, president and COO of DoFE Inc. Goldsmith previously worked with NBA Properties. And before that, Swatch Watch USA and Revlon Inc. You know Boy, what? Boy, did I, I have a – I, I, I had a lot of swatches back in the day. I'm not a. They were they were a big thing when I was a teenager. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Go ahead, Vix. Okay, so let's see. I'm pulling up Donna Goldsmith's LinkedIn because I'm trying to remember when she left. Or is she still there? Uh. Okay, no, it has her experience as EVP. It doesn't have the years. Uh, is there another LinkedIn that's more detailed? Is it the same person? Okay, here we go. This is the right profile. So she. Hold on, I have to show. I have to expand her experience. Let's see. What was she there through? Okay. Oh, that's right. She ended up being the COO as well from 08 to mm-hmm. February 2011. Mm-hmm. But okay, here's why I wanted to check the years though. 
So under her, so we're looking at, you know, that her mandate includes publications, merch, licensing, home video, retail marketing. Home video peaks under her, right? With yeah. the DVD boom. They get the Mattel deal under her, don't they? Even, I don't know when it first goes into effect, but I think they sign it under her, right? Yeah. Out of that department. Like, who knows how much of that is her specifically, but I feel like you have to consider her stint in that job a success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she she did, she did some good work. All right, the latest Taz Paranoid Story of the Week. They made a passing comment about one of the Mean Street Posse growing a goatee similar to his, and now he might complain about it. Apparently, Taz said in jest, but rather than making fun of himself, it sounds as if, if most believe there is some truth to Ch- Taz's jest. Taz has developed a reputation for being so protectively paranoid about his look that ribs are being planned to mess with his head and to get a reaction out of him. So this would be uh, Rodney growing his Rod Rageous goatee, I guess. You gotta be, yeah. <laughs> Taz. Oh my goodness. All right. Uh, it's certainly believable. It definitely is. Well, uh, now and... to move on to someone who's violating his uh, boundaries, we go to someone from Orangeburg, North Carolina. Excuse me, South Carolina. Yeah, as we close this WF section with this. Of all developmental talent, Dave caught Shelton Benjamin, former college wrestler and assistant coach at University of Minnesota, in two of his first matches. He's green, of course, but even in early matches, you can see the athletic potential. As far as personality, they go with it. It's way too soon to say anything. Mark Henry, also at Ohio Valley Wrestling, still by WF to drop another 50 pounds. Are they trying to get out of his 10 year contract or what? They did a wrestling school shoot with Henry against Ron Waterman, all grappling, no striking, and as you can figure, Waterman tapped him out real quick. The new wrestler they just debuted called Leviathan is a huge bodybuilder named David Batista from Pennsylvania who has some training under Alpha, and they saw him and signed him up. He's been in OVW for three months, but was hampered by a torn bicep and just got back into it, doing the old Bubba Rogers monster roll where he no sells chair shots. He's not quite as big, but he somewhat reminds Dave of former wrestler The Warlord, which for his sake is hopefully a tad that won't last with him far, too far in his career. Rico Costino popped his Patel attendant in about four or six weeks. And Tracy Smothers is now the trainer in Memphis. Okay. Um, he spells Batista, B-A-T-T-I-S-T-A. Yes. So closer to the worked version of the name, but still wrong. Um, I mean, the thing with Shelton, besides his athleticism, that I feel like people always forget to mention, Shelton Benjamin was a huge pro wrestling fan. Yes. You know, which the other amateurs who were being signed at the same time, I say amateurs, I guess more so collegiate standouts, for the most part, were not. You know, like, you know, what did everyone see in him, especially once he made the main roster and became a single Sting? He was a huge Sting fan. So, he picked it up, I think he would have picked it up quicker than most regardless, but he had the fandom that a lot of other guys didn't. Um, unlike somebody else, unlike somebody else from the University of Minnesota, and he still became <laughs> great anyway. But um, Batista as Leviathan, I mean, he eventually does shed the Warlord comparisons, but it takes some time. But there's also the whole thing with him where he feels like he did not get much out of OVW at all. 
Like, he considers his real, like, development training being on the road and learning from Triple H, Ric Flair, and Fit Finley. Well, he, I can see that, you know? Because he was just a guy. In OVW, even though he was Leviathan and Bowen I mean, Services. Pu- he, he was pushed big. Yeah, but... Dave was going to see himself more with those with Triple H and those guys than Doug Basham, mm. you, uh, Nick Densmore, Rob Conway. And the other side is that it's often said that, you know, that he didn't really like to participate. He was kind of a quiet guy because he was I think he was still married at that time. And he really didn't sort of embrace the whole thing until later, probably when he got to, to the main roster. So I think. I have a feeling like the OVW thing is probably there's there's like blame to spread on both sides about why he didn't like it there and why he didn't get better there. I think there's a lot of blame on that one. Well, I mean, probably part of it is also he probably just maybe was someone who needed more personalized attention, too. Yeah. Even setting aside everything else. But also, you can also see how he would clash with some of those in charge of the instruction at the time, too personality was yeah all right let's go to the land of the rising sun now we'll start with all japan pro wrestling budokan on july 23rd drew an announced crowd of 16,300 although that was not a real number as a third decade many empty seats it was close to full and considered a very good showing well especially this is the first show since the split at budokan the tenukunichiro toshiko kawada uh, beating Stan Hansen and Akiya Mossman main event ended with Kawada pinning Mossman after a powerbomb in a match where Mossman looked good. Reports were overall this was not a good show. The crowd was very different from the usual, very smart and critical Tokyo Big Show crowd. It appeared many people came to the show out of loyalty to the company and were much easier, including huge crowd responses underneath to the Kamala to Yuto Aijima match, for example. Although they did hate the Shinobu versus uh, Shiba Lucha Libre match on the card, including Go Home Chance. <laughs> wow. The various reactions were to Hanson and Tenru, which Kawada wasn't happy about. During the main event, they teased problems with Tenru and Kawada, set the program with Kawada afterwards, saying it was a mistake to team with Tenru and it would never happen again. All right, our results of this show Masafuchi beat Shigeo Kimura, Shiba over Shinobi. Kamala Latou over Yuto Ajima. Mike Barton and Wolf Hartfield. Jungle to Jim Steele over George Hines, Jackie Fulton, and Scorpio. Yoshiaki Fujiwara over Johnny Smith. Dot to Death, Steve Williams over Jen Station and Zaki in over 20 minutes. And then Kawada and Tenru over Hanson and Mossman in the main event. Go home. Yeah, then go home to the, the uh, indie scum <laughs> Lucharusu guys, picks. They're from what? Kageki? Uh, no, they are from just all, you know, those guys were different ones. So I don't think I would say necessarily say they had a home. Mm. But good Lord. But yeah, hell of a main event, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's Stan Hansen's last truly great match. He has a okay performance against Tenru in the Triple Crown tournament later in the year, but that's where it's clear he's done, and then he retires a few months later. Well, yeah, of course he's done. I mean, the fact that Hanson went as long as he did, man, at at that high level is just amazing. For a guy his size. 
Yeah, but and, yeah, all, all Japan is is now a different beast. Well, I mean, this is, the first, tour. this is the first tour, you know. Since well, I'm getting into that. The the well, kinda. The biggest crowded tour before the Budokan was for the final show where the Noah wrestles would appear on on, on July 20th at Hakata Star, Star Lanes. Announced a sellout of 3,300. Although Dave's skeptical of that figure, as the building is very small. Dr. Death, who did the grandstand challenge from Masawa on the tour, went to shake Masawa's hand in the show, but Masawa refused and went to the locker room. <laughs> All right, our results here. And this is in order of matches listed, Bix. So you're kind of, you're kind of wrongish in a way. Monarchy no, of Austin, Jessica, you, you, I, Jim. Yeah, that's first, right, because we have all ten match opening. No, I know. It's the first tour since the announcement of the split. But Mossman, Shinzaki, and Ijima over George Hines, Scorpio, and Shigeo Kimura. So there's your all Japan guys. Now we go Noah. Yoshinobu Konamaru and Takeshi Mishima over Kentaro Shiga and Namichi Marafuji. Rush Kimura, Mitsumamoto, and Takeshi Rikio over Haruka Egan, Yoshikakuchi, and Kenta Kobayashi. Kenta. Team No Fear, Takao Mori, Yoshiro Takayama over Junakiyama and Jinzi Zamina. And Mitsuhara Masao and Yoshinagawa over Kiritawe and Masao Inoue. Then we go back to the All Japan guys. WFC Williams and Kamala 2 over Mike Barton and Wolf Hartfield. And Toshio Kawada Masafuchi over Yoshiaki Fujiwara and Johnny Smith in, in 27.49. So, there it is, which I'm sure that, that was an interesting locker room to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, I pulled up Shinobi's cage match. He actually pretty much disappears after this, at least for what we have results for. He works summer he action shamed. series. Well, he works summer action series, <laughs> then he works the Battle Royal in January. And that's the end of any results for him on Gay Trash. Yeah, and all Japan fans shamed him into retirement. I, would that shock you? So yeah, he'd been working for Kageki, CML Japan. That looks like mainly Kageki. That we have known results for. I remember him hanging around some of the other ones. I think he did some capture. Not exactly um, a capture style wrestler, but okay. Well, they would dabble a little bit in other things. But they worked uh, a DDT show at Luna Park against Arc- Archangel de la Muerte. Well, Archon Hell de la Muerte, I should say. Yeah, I know he wore DDT shows. So yeah, he was he bounced around. He was originally an IWA Japan guy, though. Yes. I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. He went back to being Al Snow. <laughs> yeah, you mean Al Sullivan? <laughs> Alan Sarver. No, Su- Sullivan right. was the weird translated back and forth version when he wrestled as yeah. Al Sarvin uh, on the what was it Buko Dojo show? Al Sarvin, male prostitute. All Japan announced for the next tour on August twenty to September second. Fine, that would be Budokan. We'll have Foreigners, Hanson, Dot and Death, Mike Barton, Giant Smith, and The Return of Sabu. Plus, we'll debut The Said Man. And then he rests from Texas, doing a UFC fighter gimmick. And Luchador's Super Kalo, Super Parker, Halloween, and Damian. The latter four being there is a risk, and Lucha, Lucha Libre style goes totally against All Japan style. And Dave can solely see All Japan fans laughing at them. Tenru and Nobutaka Araya will also work the entire tour. At this point, the plans for Budokan may have been to reunite Hanson and Tenru as a tag team. They're the top team in Dolphin 1989, known double tag belts on three occasions as part of a three-way main event program that year against Jumbo Yoshikiyasu and Doc and Gordy to face uh, Kawan and Williams. No, that's not Doc and Gordy. Not in 89. Doc's in New Japan. Um, 
90, they're, they're, they're part of that deal before 10 returns on Hanson, but not 89. Uh, bad news coming out of Budokan's that the loyalty effect only goes so far, and there are tons of tickets remaining for them on 8, August 20th at Cork and Hall. With Oko Obama's main goal is to keep the thing alive, with the goal being to at least hit the 30 anniversary, which will be fall of 2002. Well, All Japan Pro Wrestling still going today. Although with totally, totally different ownership and shit over the years, but still, still alive. You wonder if you would have told somebody at this split that the thing that would help revitalize All Japan in a year or two is Muda. What people oh, would have said? People would have, would have t- thought you were ridiculous because it's 2000 Mudo and WCW who looks like he should be retiring. Absolutely. I mean, no, people thought you were crazy if you said that. But it's what happened. Yeah. Well, th- thank God for uh, for shots in the knees. Yeah, he reinvented himself. Pro wrestler. Yeah. New Japan Pro Wrestling. I suspect it was officially announced that the weeks of working the angle that Riki Choshu and Asusha Nita will take place on July 30th. In the main event, the company's first ever pay-per-view show. There would be an electric dynamite match. Both Monsieur Chon and Hiroshi Tenzan have already challenged the winner. And this is, I think, a DirecTV Japan pay-per-view, right? Yes. They ended their current tour on July 25th of April before 8200 with two title changes. As Tenkoji, Roshi Tenzan and Satoshi Kojima won the tag titles from Yuji Nagata and Manama Nakanishi in 21:33, when Nakanishi was pinned over Tenzan's diving headbutt and Kojima's lariat. And Tatsuya Takeyuwa pinned Jushin Liger to win the IWGB Junior title for the first time in his career in 1634 with a Death Valley bomb. Liger said he now wants to wrestle as a heavyweight and challenge for both the singles and tag titles. This is when we start getting shirtless Liger. Main event saw Kensuke Saki Pentakashi Zuka retain IWGB heavyweight title in 2030 with a normal well, no, 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 bomb. No, 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 This isn't Battle Liger. This is a Black Liger. Well, Shirtless Liger does come. Yeah. Uh, this. That's a year later in the 2001 G1 when he does Shirtless Liger. Well, that's right. Shirtless Liger is not the same as Battle Liger, exactly. It's just yeah. Battle Liger is also Shirtless. All right, our results. Shinji Makabe and Wataru Inouye over Negro Kassas and Hiroshi Tanahashi in your opener. And who would have thought in this time period that the only guy that, that wasn't still wrestling at this point in time would be Wataru Inouye? Then we have Yutaki Yoshie over Dan Devine, Coach Kanamoto and Shinjiro Otani over El Samurai and Kim Nakashin, Brian Johnston over Sama Nishimura, Masaru Chono, Tatsushigoto Nakira over Samakito, Shiroko Shinaka, and Tadao Yasuda, then Takeo over Liger, Tenkoji over Nakanishi and Nagata, and Sasaki over Izuka. One thing we got to talk about, I mean, Tatsushigoto Iwa. Was you know was basically the third man in the Kanemoto Otani Takiwa deal, but what a great professional wrestler he was! It's Who's funny. It's funny. I was about to say he's kind of like the forgotten guy from this time period, and I only say that this is like tangentially related. But I loved playing as Takiwa in the New Japan video game. He was a great. He had like this great. Uh, I hate to use the word move set, but move set. And, you know, and the the triple was so was a fun thing to do in a video game. I mean, in 99, 2000, because you didn't see it all that often. But he was a guy, you know, whether that translated to, like, watching the actual person in matches, but he always was a fun video game character. And, yeah, he's, I think, kind of maybe forgotten at this point. He was like the... <sighs> I always called him like the Arn Anderson of that group where you had Kanemoto is like the, uh, the flair of Tanya Satali 
and it's like he was the arm. Hmm. You know, I mean, they they were so fucking awesome. I mean, you, you at that time at that time, those three guys, they're three of the top ten best wrestlers in the world. In fact, I've said it before in, in 1999, I'd be willing to say Kanemoto may have been the best wrestler in the world. I feel like and Otani was definitely not far behind. I feel like it's this run with the Otani tag team where he really starts to come into his own. And then I think it's... Yeah, because Kan- Kanemoto's focusing on the singles and Otani and Takiwa are the, of the team. Well, and then eventually, though, we get the uh, Kanemoto and Tanaka against Otani and Takiwa. Yeah. yeah, when they Around when Kanemoto the break. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel like as a singles, he really came into his own with zero one. Yes, he was a very key part of early zero one. And also and in was that for Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, well, he was in zero one, you know, from the infancy. Right, but also working with the Noah guys in zero one, doing the guest spots in Noah. Yeah. Yeah. All right, does, I mean, it does also feel like his career kind of never really recovered from being the guy in the ring with Hoshikawa when Hoshikawa had the brain injury, though. Yeah. It appears that Onita broke his ribs on July 13th in his match with Senshiro Takagi, but still wrestled on his own show on July 20th, doing the great Nita gimmick for the first time since the Muda match at Yogi Stadium last summer, at which point the character supposedly had died. We'll talk more about that in a minute. They did backstage angle where Nagata and Yutaki Yoshie supposedly had a fight, which means they're already breaking up the G-Eggs group. Nah, not so fast. They're down now to the G1 tournament stars. Tournament has weak advances in every city, even Hiroshima, which has never housed a G1 show in history. That's not great. Well, it, this was this was at the time considered the weakest G1, even though I, I thought it was a fun fun G1, very underrated. But it was it was the expanded G1. It was different. People just weren't into it in that year. All right, let's talk about the upstart, Pro Wrestling Noah. In an attempt to establish his style right the bat, Mitsuhara Masawa's Pro Wrestling Noah promotion announced a two-day tournament on August 5th and 6th with a new style going back to the 1970s NWA World Title Psychology. The top of wrestling the company, Masawa, Kenokabashi, coming from double knee surgery far too quickly, Junakayama and Akira Tawe will meet in the tournament. It will start as two out of three fall tag matches the main event the debut show on August 5th. The parents will be announced later this week. The winning team will then meet the next night. The original plan was to do a regular tournament where a pair of singles matches on August 5th. And the winner's advancing, but Kobashi is already returning far too quickly. And it was best to use him. Actually, it's probably best not to use him in a tag match. Well, this doesn't happen off. anyway. The tag happens, but there's no tournament. No, they don't do that, but Kobashi comes back way too fucking quickly. And gets a re-heard all over again. Yeah, well, actually, wait, they do have a... It does end up being... Uh, actually, wait, I'm wrong. It's Kobashi and Akiyama do wrestle the next night. I... Okay. I did. I forgot. Well, calling it a tournament is a little weird, though. I feel like that's just Dave learning how internet translation works. You know? But it's it's not really a tournament. I, it's just... Did they actually announce that the winning team meets the next night? Well, if they... I mean, here it is here. Uh, weeks before that match takes place, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if Kabashi Akiyama was announced in advance. <laughs> Excuse me, I guess not. Um... Masawa does a lot of experimentation with the booking on these early pre-TV deal shows, and it it 
it's not what Noah would end up being. You know, they, they abandon the two out of three falls thing almost right away. Uh, Akiyama's uh, front headlock finisher is abandoned almost right away. And it takes some time for Masawa to figure out what to do to differentiate them from all Japan while still also getting that fan base. Yeah. All right, Vader will start an October tour. Early shows will be Japanese natives only. At this point, Vader's only foreigner signed with this promotion. And Masao announced he'd be joining with Yoshimoto Productions, which owns Osaka Pro Wrestling, to help them promote Osaka area house shows. Hmm. All right, Indie Scum time. Most of the Big Japan stuff's really bad, in particular the Combat Zone guys, but they got a junior heavyweight dressed up like Jeff Hardy, who looked really good. It was really sick. It's really sick also as one of the Japanese guys did a senton off an 18-foot balcony at Cork and Hall through a table. That would be Winger, right? Yes. Okay. Junior Heavyweight dressed up as Jeff Hardy, I would think it's just Mikami in for DDT, right? Um, it, all else depends would... on which, it, all, it all depends on what you would say would be dressed up like Jeff Hardy. And the only Japanese wrestler at this point who I would think of as being dressed up like Jeff Hardy is Mikami. But Mikami's not working in Big Japan. Or he didn't at all? As far as I know. Let's see. If he did, it was one-offs. I mean, are we here, like, is this the Phil Schneider sending Dave tapes of Big Japan to try to get him to watch it, Era? Um, okay, here's what I'm looking at, okay? Okay, yeah, there are no I... Mikami matches in Big Japan. So, maybe he's taking a trade of acid. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be funny. Sense. Okay, yeah. It's got yeah. it's, it's to be Trent Acid. Yes. Because he didn't say it was a Japanese guy. No, he didn't. He's had a junior heavyweight, and he followed up on the CZW thing, which, yeah. you know, we've talked about it a million times. Dave hated him in this era. Hated it. Well, he was very turned off to American Deathmatch stuff, and right as people started trying to get him into Big Japan was when the CZW invasion happened. So it was yes. hopeless at that point. Yeah. Capture. They ran Kitazawa Town Hall July 21st. Use Kick Kaguchi over Shinichi Takata. They had a boxing match. Tanamasaka Toba defeated Yujuo Suzuki. Tomohiro Ishii defeated Kazunobu Nakamura. Then we got another boxing match as Nihao beat Daisaku. And then this wonderful match. Koki Kitahara and Yuki Kubota defeated Yusaku and Masai Genki picks. If we're going to have a Neo presence, can we at least have female Kane? <laughs> Which I had no memory of until seeing that tweet the other day. Well, you're going to get Masai Genki and Tanny Mouse, and you're going to like it. Oh. Yes. Is that like Blue Kane? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. But before, well before then. No, in a way, was Masai Genki's terrible trainer. Yes, yes. All right, uh, Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. No undercard wrestles Masai in a way. Yoshinobu Kanemaru defeated FMW's WW Tag Champions, Gato and Jado, on July 23rd. Defariaki subatata match between the same teams on July 28th at Cork and Hall between, in front of 1800. I have no memory of the Noah guys working FMW here. Well, it's Yuki. I mean, there's your... Your hookup. Yeah. Uh, the idea uh, was H would go back to being Hayabusa, and he had 10 singles matches. 
If he won all 10, he'd get the WWE title from Koto Fuyuki. So, Hayabusa beat Flying Kitachihara in 19 seconds. Chocobo Makai in 3 seconds. Mr. Ganosuke, where Ganosuke did the Sandman gimmick, drinking beers at ringside and passed out so he couldn't wrestle. So he won by default. Katara Kanemura, y- Yoshinori Sasaki, Hideki Asaka, Goemon, Ky- and Kyoko Inoue. Fuyuki made himself the ninth guy. Jin Sasaki attacked Hayabusa leading the Fuyuki pin in there. Masato Tanaka returned and made the save. No former tag team. The temp guy was FMW owner Shoichi Arai, who never had to wrestle. <sighs> World of Entertainment uh, Wrestling, the, everybody. Yeah. All right, so our results of this show. Ricky Fuji over Nahuku Yamazaki in your opener. Mike Samples, Maddie Samu in 85-2. That's right. Mike Sample teaming up with uh, Rosie and Umaga to beat Mr. Ganesuke, Hideki Asaka, and Yoshinari Sasaki. Masayanoe and Yoshinobu Kanamaro over Kajara and Ghetto. Tetsuya Kuroda over Azusa Kudo. Tetsukatsu Oyo over Kantaro Kanamura. In the ladder and match. Then the, yeah, in the ladder match. And then the Hayabusa gauntlet was the the main event of the show. So. With the uh, longest match being the Fuyuki thing, which went just over eight minutes, and the second longest was Goemon after just over six minutes. Yes. Now, the... Uh, Founder of FMW, Sushi Anita had Anita Pro at Differiaki on July 20th in front of 2,000 fans. And what a wonderful show this is. Sambo Asako, Takai Sasaki, Yusaku, and Takai Bushido V3 defeated Daisaku, Tomohiro Ishii, Kazuku, Maijin Viking, and Hitaro. I love it. It gets better. Arcana de la Muerte, Nosawa, and Heaven beat Asian Cougar Starman and Tomoyo Adachi. Yes, Heaven, of course, being the uh, guy in the blue mask and Daisy Dukes, whose uh, stick as a heel was drawing crudely crude sketches of his opponents with boobs. Yes. Barbed wire cross and weapons death match. Oh, Kutri good Gucci over the great Nita by disqualification. And a 31. In Rie's retirement match, Rie and Miss Mongol went to a 15-minute time limit draw. Oh, my God. Nobutaka Rai and Poison Sawada Black beat Senshiro Takagi and Fushitori Karasu. And then a no-road barbed wire street fight death match. Asushi Onida, Exciting Yoshida, Mizunobu Kikazawa, and Naoshi Sano defeated Great Kendo, Ichiro Yaguchi, Yase Yaguchi, and Lama Namanumi Shoji Nakamaki. <laughs> oh my god. What an indie scum spectacular this is. One of the all-timers. What a list of talent. Well, that was great about Onita Pro, was that it was a somewhat higher-profile show that had all of your low-level indie guys on it. Yes. Yes, it was a all-star game for indie scum. I mean, look at some of the guys we have on here. We've got Takashi Sasaki, Yusaku, Tokai Bushido V3, Kaizuka Maijin Viking, Yantaro, Nosawa, Heaven, Asian Cougar, Tomoya Dachi, Shiro Yaguchi, uh, Poison Sawada, Sanchiro T- President Tagaki, um, Exciting Yoshida, Kit- the future Kikutaro, Naoshi Sano! I mean, come on! Yeah. In front of 2,000 uh, people! Yeah. Yeah. Alright, Toymon! They ran a, a show on July 22nd at Ferriaki, with a lot of shows running in that building. 
where Kenichiro Ra won the NBA Worldwide title from Sua from 1522 fans. We have Saito, all caps, of so a Saito in your opener. Jin Seishizaki over Stalker Chikawa. Masaki Mochizuki, Yoshishikanda, and Susumu Mochizuki, M2K, defeated Sumo Dandy Fuji 2000, Taru and Stalker Chikawa. Genki Oraguchi over Dragon Kid, and Arai over Shua in the main event. No Shima on this show, interesting enough. So, huh, there's that. And they made poor Stalker work twice. <laughs> Although, I would say, I, in this time period, I love Stalker Ishikawa. Oh, yeah. It's like, and, and, you know, it's hard to say that you love Taru in hindsight, but, like, those guys were so great together. Well, everybody's great in this promotion. It's one of the greatest promotions ever. We have one Joshi show this week, Bix, sorry to say. Gaia. The Crush Gals return as a tag team once again. That's Crush 2000 against Aja Kong and Dadamai Kansai to head on the September 15 Gaia show at Yokohama Bunker Gym. They did an angle in front of 2200 at Cork and Hall on July 22nd where Kong and Kansai beat Chikusa Nagayo through destroying partner Sonoko Kato. And after the match, Linus Oscar ran in and issued a challenge. Four results, Devin Masami and Kira Hokuto over Meiko Sotomura and Shikaya Nagashima. Toshio Yamato over Toshiyamatsu. Mayumi Ozaki over Shikasado. Sakura Rota over Saika Taguchi. Linus Asuka over Karu. And then Konga Kansai over Nagayo and Kato in your main event. And I believe from this point until Linus leaves the promotion to take over the book in RC, and I believe they're pretty much just a regular tag team. Again. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Crush 2000. That sounds like a horrible thing, like Brian Adams joining the Road Warriors in, like, 1999 WWF. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of the more famous teams. You know, they're back together again. And they were so. good. They were both. No, it's, 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 it's just the name looks funny when you see it. Oh, Crush 2000. Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's just the way. I mean, everything was 2000. Oh, I know. 2000. So, and it's also this run that really cements them as the top women's promotion by far in Japan. Yes. All right. Well, that is it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So it's some great, I guess, 2000 commercials with fifth and a half time segment where we'll talk about our Patreon. We'll plug our streaming services and we'll uh, you know talk about dark side, all the good stuff we do at halftime. Then we'll come back. Mark rejoin us. As we go to North America, featuring a story about the Hart House, well, the guest house in Calgary, and Mark will give us the rundown of his uh, 90 Tijuana. It's all that more after the break. This TNT original race against time is brought to you by Suzuki, makers of the V6 Grand Vitara, the official automobile of the Heisman Trophy. Roden Track says the muscular V6 gives it undeniable appeal. Open Road says this SUV is an all-star player. It's the V6 Grand Vitara from Suzuki. And Motor Trend says it's a jewel. One test drive and you'll know why Open Road says the Grand Vitara is at the top of its class for acceleration. And it's only at your Suzuki dealer. Get 0.9% APR financing on all V6 Grand Vitaras with approved credit at your local Suzuki dealer. Remember Jared? He lost 245 pounds on his own diet, which included Subway's low-fat sandwiches and lots of walking. Well, it's been a year, so let's see how he's doing. Looking buff, Jared. Way to go, Jared. 
I guess that answers our question. Thanks to seven Subway sandwiches with six grams of fat or less and laying off the burgers and fries, Jared's looking pretty good. He's still a Subway fan and a true inspiration to dieters everywhere. Subway, the way a sandwich should be. The forces of nature are waging a war, and the target is your deck. But Thompson's will stop them, because when others fail, Thompson succeeds, protecting your deck like no other, guaranteed. Thompson's Wood Protector. It never takes a day off. A man's home is his castle, so maybe he should clean it. Lysol All-Purpose Cleaner wipes out dirt, meets tough grease better than 409, and kills germs. You have our word on it. What a prince. Lysol All-Purpose Cleaner. Paramount's Kings Island is the place for fun. Come out and challenge the all-new record-breaking Son of Beast. Take in more than 80 rides, shows, and attractions. Step through the magnifying glass as Eliza takes you on a guided tour of the Nickelodeon Wild Thornberry's Rainforest Insect Adventure. It's a rainforest filled with bigger than big bugs. It's one of a kind, and it's only at Kings Island for a limited time. Save $5 when you bring in a cap or can from any Coca-Cola product. In the new millennium, everything will change, except the way they do business at Dave Kale Chevrolet and Chevy Trucks Route 4 Mechanicsburg. They have a wide selection of trucks, cars, and vans. Plus, they make buying a new vehicle a pleasure. There's no hassle. We want your buying experience to be trouble-free. Come see for yourself. And at Dave Kale, you'll come back because you'll always come first, and you save money, too. Those things will never change at Dave Kale Chevrolet and Chevy Trucks in Mechanicsburg, just a country drive away from wherever you live. Original movie Race Against Time returns in a moment. Over the past 65 years, Chevy Suburban has come a very long way. Introducing the best Suburban yet. The all-new Chevy Suburban. Like a rock. Michael Johnson versus the Maytag Excellus 2X range. With its rapid cook technology, the Maytag Excellus is the only range that cooks in half the time. Who's fast now, Michael? <laughs> Witness the phenomenon for yourself, online or at your Maytag dealer. It's one of the most destructive forces on the planet, and now it's coming after your home. But New Thompson's Paint will stop it every day, every season, all year long. New Thompson's House and Trim Paint, guaranteed for life. It's the paint that never takes a day off. It takes seconds to pick up a stomach virus. Lysol is the best disinfectant spray to use because it kills 99.9% .9 of viruses. And it's proven to help reduce missed school days. Nothing beats Lysol spray. In demand. In the new millennium, everything will change. Except the way they do business at Dave Kale Chevrolet and Chevy Trucks Route 4 Mechanicsburg. They have a wide selection of trucks, cars, and vans. Plus, they make buying a new vehicle a pleasure. There's no hassle. We want your buying experience to be trouble-free. Come see for yourself. And at Dave Kale, you'll come back because you'll always come first. And you save money, too. Those things will never change at Dave Kale Chevrolet and Chevy Trucks in Mechanicsburg. Just a country drive away from wherever you live. 
Race Against Time returns in a moment. This August, it's Price for President. See Tom Selleck in the world premiere of Running Mates on TNT. All right, back. We've been joining those great 2000 commercials. That's the fifth and a half time seven to show. We'll begin to my Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we've recorded more since the last time we uh, did the halftime segment. And um, yeah, this is definitely a must listen show. Um, as we're talking about uh, part one of our look at WCW's racial discrimination history, lawsuits, what have you. And we we're to the point now where we <laughs> we covered a Vince Russo interview with Ben Miller from right before he started in WCW. He had just I think he had just started in WCW, but he was in WF when he did the interview. And yeah, it, yeah, they did the interview like. A couple days before he left, and it came out. Then, like a couple days after he left, and boy, is it explosive and full of stuff that. <laughs> I mean, this is a well-known thing, but it's not talked about that much anymore. No. Well, it was well known from back then, from that people, but you got to remember, Bix, almost twenty-five years ago. Yes. <laughs> so, you definitely need to listen to this. You definitely need to hear Vince Russo's thoughts on a lot of subjects, and especially. Uh, booking foreign wrestlers. Yes. I mean, it is, it is amazing. And we also talk about, you know, to how it dovetails with things that people said under oath about things that he said about uh, minority wrestlers. Yeah, and then we'll have all kinds of other stuff as well, as uh, we still got more to go. But the uh, show will come out um, in the next week, basically after you hear this. Yes. If you're listening to it in... Uh, on the Monday of the week that we put the show out. So patreon.com slash 20 sheets, $5. Get you access to this. I highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend this, this show. And the, the next show we'll do on it as well. It is uh, it's stuff that you just won't hear about in, in this way because of all the information that we have that is in this. And yeah, I mean, there's newsletter stuff involved, but it is very non-newsletter heavy so you definitely want to uh, listen to this and this is some insanity that was going on in that company uh, regarding um race relations so to speak so find us on my patreon.com slash 20 sheets get you access to that and all the other audio that we've done are now almost seven complete years of the patreon as we have eight complete years of the pain show and we almost have seven complete years of the patreon so um tons of audio there for a listening pleasure for $5 a month. It'll take more than a month, believe me. So do that and tell your friends about it as well. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. Now, dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks to this segment, which we'll do in just a second. $25 lets you pick a show for the week. Now, uh, when you want to do that, make sure you have a couple of shows in your mind just in case the show you may want to do as your main pick. It could be something that somebody has got on the calendar already reserved but could be something we talked about already on a previous show that you might have forgotten about so let us know why you want to do the show and uh we'll try to get you get you straightened out make sure that the show you want us to do uh takes takes place and remember all the protocol we got the 10-year rules in effect 
30 day rules in effect. Please get your show ideas in before 30 days so that when your show takes place. Uh, Wednesday, Tuesday on the timeline. Follow the protocol on Patreon website to get that information to us. Then $50 less for a segment of the show if you choose in 100, like Mark Cole did this, uh, this week, for the whole show if you choose. You don't have to do it, but it's part of the perk. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Vix, I know we're in the middle of the, well, past the middle of July now, but coming off the middle of July. So mid-month, always a slow time for uh, new patrons. But who do we have this week as our new and or returning patrons? We have one, and my voice thanks him that he's the only one. It's uh, Michael Mullins. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, Vix, Vix sounds different in this segment than he does the rest of the show. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I sounded a little worse than I did Monday on Tuesday, when we finished recording the main parts of the show, and then my voice took a turn uh, overnight. You sound like you're you're going through puberty again. Oh, stop it. I don't actually feel that bad. I just, yeah, my voice is a bit shot. Yeah, it's going up and down. (laughs) But anyway. Be that as it may, and then from there, notwithstanding. You do sound like Vince sometimes. In the early '80s, Vince will have those weeks of television where he sounds like sounds like you right now. Okay, I'm serious. I just watched one where he's very low, and he sounds like he's sick, but he soldiered on. Perhaps, indeed. <laughs> yes. So anyway, Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets. All right. Of course, we thank all the patrons. Uh, now, also remember annually, 16% off of an annual $50.40 for a yearly annual subscription. Can't forget all that. So there's that. Well, since Bix is uh, not feeling so great, I will handle the streaming services this week. Oh, this should be good. Uh, we start with Fight, and only one real major uh, kind of show takes place on Fight. Our dear friends at Fight TV, Fight Plus, uh, our Real dear friends at AIW, Absolute Intense Wrestling, John Thorne and crew. They got a show, Ether, featuring Max Caster, that will be uh, airing live on July the 28th. And it'll be airing late at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on July 28th. Uh, matches include Big Juan Tucker against Evan Ambrose, Katie Arquette against Megan Myers, Bulking Season, Arkham MacArthur and Chuck Stone against the Von Englands, Sydney Von England and Eden Von England, Isaiah Broner against Zach Nystrom, Max Caster against Derek Dillinger, Rip City Shooters, Josh Bishop and Wes Barkley against 9 to 5, Jack Burville and Louis Linden, Ronnie Rose versus Bobby Orlando versus Uncle Chase Burnett versus Johnny Patch, and Brian Carson, Casey Carrington, Ethan Wright. They will face off against members only, Calvin G. Lewis and Malcolm Cambridge, along with our dear friend, the Bunkler with Dominic Carini. We have a Golden Boot match, the Duke versus Levi Everett. Hoodfoot against Kaplan and Intense Rules. And who knows what else? I'm sure Max Castor will do some type of rapping deal. Yes. So uh, July 28th on Fight TV, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes, and because the Fight website is such a mess and I was looking at the IW Twitter, the next day they have at Great Lakes WrestleFest uh, the second annual Bill Alfonso Hardcore Tournament. And that's not even on there, huh? Yes, that's it. Uh, and I'm trying to mi- make sure my Ricola is not too noisy. I ho- hope you're not hearing it. Um, Ricola bomb. Sure. So that is at 3 Eastern time, right? So 5 Eastern, 
Yeah, Cleveland is east. Yes. Well, they're, they're, it's not in Cleveland. It's in, uh, where is it? Jefferson, Ohio. Okay, I'm going to assume yeah. that that's east. It's Ohio. Ohio's in, all, the entire state of Ohio is in eastern state. Oh, the whole state is? Okay. So from the poster, it looks like we've got, oh, there's one or two people I don't recognize, but I see Dom, I see Ziggy Haim, Josh Bishop, John Wayne Murdoch, Kaplan, and Mance Warner. All right, so, so we've got so a I few uh, friends of the show in that tournament. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, there's not any uh, matches announced, I don't think. So, yeah, but it's as live on 5+. plus. Okay, well, there you go. All right, now our, our uh, difference on IWTV. Well, I didn't even uh, give the, the URL, tinyurl.com slash Fight for a referral for Fight for both uh, Fight Plus and Fight TV pay-per-view. So it's tinyurl.com slash BTSFITE. And, of course, as always, all this stuff is linked in the show description. All right, IWTV. St. Louis Anarchy has a show on July 28th, Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Circus Maximus. 18. Uh, we have Manny Monarch, Moonshine Mantel, Casey Carrington against Charles McKenzie, Victor Analog and Billy McNeil, Laney Luck versus Nikki Victor and Billy Starks. I like how you and tell Billy me Star- to only read the stuff with people that most of the indie fans would be familiar with, and now you're reading the whole card. <laughs> well, I guess I have different rules for myself. Uh, if you're a Billy Starks fan, you might as well uh, watch all these Indian appearances while you can. Yes. Annika Murphy against Aaron Williams, Gary Che against Mike Outlaw, Brogan Feeling against Christian Rose, Mad Dog Conley against uh, Scenic City Invitational winner Manders. Congratulations hey. to him. Uh, Destination Championship, David Vega defending against Dingo. Dingo with your baby. And Gateway Heritage Championship, Derek Neal defending against Jeremy Wyatt. Not of the Wyatt family. So that is St. Louis Anarchy. All right, uh, ICW, No Holes Barred. Oh, shocking. They're running that show. Well, it's volume 50, though. Yeah, yeah 50. Uh, July 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from the H2O, H2O Center in Williamstown, New Jersey. Tommy Vendetta against Jimmy Lloyd. Dr. Redacted against John Wayne Murdoch. The Bev against Danny DeManto. Hoodfoot defends the American Deathmatch Championship against Low Life Louis Ramos. Matt Tremont against Costanova Valentine. Eric Ryan versus Akira. Not Nagami and Cruel's World of Death. Cruel against Brandon Kirk and Cruel became a big heel on Twitter this week for saying that Bucky's does not have good food. Oh, I didn't so, see this. Boo that man. Boo him hard. Well, did Cruel say it or did Logan Creed say it? Cruel said it from Cruel's Twitter. Okay. Freelance Wrestling has a show on uh, July 28th as well. 8, 8 Central, 9 Eastern. Take this to the ring. We have Isaiah Velasquez against Coda Hernandez. Cole Ratchet against Alec Price. Fans bring the weapons. Craig Mitchell against Shane Mercer. That's two names been around for a minute. Brian Keith defending the Legacy Championship against Chico Suave. And Storm Grayson, no, not a male porn star, but what a great male porn star name, defend the Freelance Championship against Paul London. Yes, Paul London of all people. That's a very right. fun-looking uh, show there. Yes. Limitless Wrestling runs uh, July 29th, Saturday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We got Tabernacle Team against Above the Rest. BRG defends Les Russell Championship against Brian Malonis. Matt Daniels against Rip Bison. Aver Ever against Becca. Alec Price against Joey Janela. And Beef 
the former Nolas Garvin could still be Nolas Garvin, but going as Beef defending his Limitless Championship against Lucky Ali. A lot of really good-looking top-to-bottom shows this week. We're not done. H2O runs Barbed Wire City Showdown 2 on July 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time at the H2O Wrestling Center, naturally. Uh, card here, Hoodsway, Alex Stretch, Remington Roar against Schwartz and the Bruisers. Jay Newman going against Jimmy Chondo Leon. Kenny Copeland, Lion Leon, who cares? Kenny Copeland defend the hybrid championship against Jimmy Lloyd. Randy West, not the porn star, against Sawyer Rack. Uh, or the Memphis, uh, Memphis wrestling uh, director. Uh, Declan Grant against Jess Moss in a Nova Barbara match. John Wayne Murdoch, anything goes against Alex Stretch. Danny Havoc, hardcore championship. Stairway to Havoc match. Brandon Kirk defending against Bam Sullivan. Sullivan and Manders from the H2O Championship against Mickey Knuckles. That's a match. And uh, IWTV World Championship, Matt Tremont defending against Austin Luke. Luke, I am your father. And so there's one, is, uh, Well, there's one more, isn't there? Uh, ETU. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Expect the unexpected. That's on Sunday, July 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So an afternoon show from the Mecca, not Milwaukee. Or in, in India, but the Mecca in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey. Summer Madness. We have uh, the Rip City Shooters against Above the Rest. IWTV Tag Team Championship. Miracle, Miracle Generation defending against uh, the SATs. Maximos. Danny Manto against Homicide. That's a match. Alan Price against Lee Moriarty. Key to the East Championship. Master Slamvish defending against Marcus Mathers. Plus PB Smooth, Jay Bougie, Akira, Billy Stars, Desmond Cole, and more. So, um, yeah, a lot going on on IWTV. Lots of wrestling. If you're into the independent wrestling on IWTV. Yes, and a lot of really solid-looking top-to-bottom balance shows this week, too. So, uh, not already a subscriber, go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So, it's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. That is correct. All right. Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. You can use incognito mode, your service providers, storing your browsing data, many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access and Chris and Russia traffic through one of its own servers, hiring your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-side privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go down uh, that list, shall we? As I pull that up on the old computer. All right. We have three options for you. You get a monthly option at eleven ninety five a month. That's your standard plan. Yearly three dollars thirty three cents a month or it gets you down to thirty nine ninety five a year. Or you can go for the A plus plan. Three years plus four free months, dollar ninety eight a month, seventy nine dollars for the first two years you later after, eighty three percent off. The best damn deal in the market, folks. You can't beat it. Why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN in the market. If you get it right now, you take advantage of private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it off 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just search for a full refund. 
How you get that, you ask? We go to private internet access.com slash between the sheets and try the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 2004. Where the WWE, the bulk of our section involves stuff outside the ring and people that were basically no longer wrestling. Well, one definitely, one partially. Ric Flair goes off the record with TSN and talks about his upcoming book. And boy, there's some controversy there, especially the guy who wrote the book. And Ric Flair is not happy about that. So we'll have that. And Bruno San Martino backstage at Monday Night Raw in Pittsburgh on a night where Chris Benoit went 60 minutes with Triple H in an Iron Man match. So we'll have that. All the other Raw thoughts. SmackDown. Uh, of course, all sorts of WWE stuff. Vincent Man, Business Ohio Valley Wrestling. So we'll talk about that. And a packed WWE-centric section. Japan, not looking good for New Japan. One of the worst cork and hall tennises in years. We'll talk about that. Pro, uh, Neo Ladies Pro Rest invades Pro Wrestling Noah, which, which uh, Vix will be excited about. But the Fire Festival in Zero One, we'll talk about that. And that's the last Fire Festival with Shane Hashimoto, if I'm not mistaken. So we'll talk about that. We got all sorts of indie scum in Japan, we'll talk about. We got. Um, Lucha, Puerto Rico, featuring a Ring of Honor invasion in Puerto Rico. We'll talk about that. Uh, we got Nostalgia Pay-Per-Views doing great and on uh, Direct TV. One of the great tag teams of all time, Reunites. We'll talk about that. Brock Lesnar signs on the Minnesota Vikings. News on the Joni Lauer, Sean Waltman sex tape. Sean O'Hare getting arrested. Um, Bob Sapp getting cast in a big major movie. TNA possibly moving outside, moving up from Nashville in a pay per view slash impact report. Featuring a pay per view report from one of our great former guests who hopefully will be back on very, very soon. All that Ooh. more next week on Between the Sheets. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zelda, K R I S Z E L N E R show proper at BT Sheets Pod, Big Set David Bix. And Bix, I mean, you don't have to do a whole lot of talking here if you don't want to, but of course we had Dark Side. And it was on Abdul the Butcher, and well, and also we learned that they moved back to the Bash of the Beach episode a week since we recorded the Yes, yeah, so Bam Bam Bigelow will be airing uh, next week. But uh, the Abdul the Butcher show—they um, spent the early part of it, you know, giving your rundown of basically Abby's career, and then spent the last half of it talking about the drama with Hannibal. Um. It's funny to say, though, that, you know, of the stuff that was in that show, the discussion after the show was about how about Hannibal and how big of a douchebag he is, and especially the part when they played it, this part where him assaulting the referee. In Texas uh, two years ago, yeah. After he sued Abby and all that stuff and and that deal there, um I mean, that's the most interesting part of the show to me was the discussion on Abby and can can he actually read and can he actually write? You know, uh, I mean, you you got the you got the perspective from people who he had been around for many many years, like Ugo and Cactus and Tony Atlas. They were surprised when they learned that. Yes. Now. So, you know, one thing I saw someone say, I forget who, but it's a fair point. 
adults who don't know how to read or write. I mean, I really, I, I guess illiterate is still the right term. Like, they, they do come up with ways to hide it. They do, like, that is a thing. So it, you know, like, since most of the things everyone else was saying was he would order off menus fine and stuff, I mean, that's, I don't necessarily buy the story, but the, you know, the people saying they saw him read off menus and stuff doesn't mean he could read it. It doesn't necessarily mean no. I mean, it does not mean that in particular, no. But I think the thing is that Abby being a successful businessman, and he ran that business, that was his business. And he would do the work. I mean, he would be at the farmer's market buying the produce and all that stuff. So he was very hands-on. That's the part I think that people were like, what? The most. So. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say yes or no because I don't know. You know, I, I, I just can't. I can't, I can't speculate. I mean, that's just. It is what it is. It, I mean, it, that's his side of the story. You know, I mean, it could be true. It might not be true. I don't know. I mean, he engaged enough with... He did, I believe, lose by default. I believe that is true. But, like, he it's not like he never engaged with the lawsuit. You know? Like, I mean, Hannibal compelled him to give a blood sample. You know? But the thing about Hannibal is here is, okay, no matter what you think about Hannibal... He was wronged. Yes, he was wrong, and they showed they showed what Abby did. And I mean, Ugo's, Ugo was like shook by it when he okay, saw it. He never I seen mean, it before. Yeah, for those who are not familiar, what basically what happened was he worked with Abby a bunch of times in his own promotion. Um, didn't know anything had gone wrong. This is his story, and it's always this part's always seemed fairly credible. Has tryouts with WWE. He's about to get signed. Does his medicals. And he tests positive for hep C and they rescind this contract offer. And because in Canada, I guess because of WWE, apparently because of WWE's no blood policy, um, Hannibal was able to sue WWE and get a settlement because it was considered discriminating against his medical condition based on how Canadian law was. So there was that too, which they didn't talk about in the episode. No, they didn't. But. Meanwhile, he had some guy shooting some documentary about him. He's trying to figure out how he got Hepsi. Obviously, he starts thinking about bloody matches and Abby. And they go over the footage and they see Abby cut himself with one of the blades that's taped to his fingers and then cut Hannibal with the same blade. And look, we know there are other wrestlers who have gotten hepatitis. It doesn't, I wouldn't say it was ever common. And, but this is like, this is the way, if you're going to give it to someone, that's going to be the way to do it. Yeah, and, then, and and you know, then you have, like, the other side of it where it's like Tony Atlas is saying, why would you even let that man cut you? Okay, so they did not actually acknowledge this in the episode for some reason. Again, who knows what they had in time constraints, etc. I'm not blaming them. When this all became a thing originally, I don't think he ever changed the story. Hannibal always said he never asked for Abby to gaff it. So, yeah, given that they had the Tony Atlas thing, it's a little weird they didn't have anything from Hannibal in either direction. As far as saying, yes, I asked him to, no, I never asked him to in the first place. Yeah, you'd think that'd be an important part of it. Yeah, it took me a second to process that, but yeah, like, wait a second. The, if you're going to show that Tony Atlas clip, 
Hannibal obviously Hannibal must have said something about whether or not he asked, right? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe not. But his claim was always he didn't ask, and that you know, adrenaline's running. He didn't even notice it in real time. I think because he was, I think he was already bleeding in the first place. Like I could find the clip, but <sighs> I mean that because I feel, and I, but I bring it up. Besides that, it was kind of weird and incomplete to not mention that and not give his side of that. <sighs> I mean, if he didn't ask him to blade him, he's not assuming any more risk than any other Abbey opponent. But see, but again, I mean that is a, it, it, that's what he claimed. That I mean that's a huge part of the story. Yeah. Because I mean that paints it a whole, that paints in a whole different light to the viewer that doesn't know the story. It's like, wait a minute, he didn't even ask this man, and this man did it. So that makes Abby come off even more of a villain in this way. I'm trying to see if I can find the right match. Uh... But it, it did seem to me, and again, Hannibal did this shit. So, I mean, he's not above reproach. But it did seem to me that they definitely focused on Hannibal and that referee to kind of babyface Abby in a way off of that. Yes. I, I mean, well, yes and no, because you have to include it. Like, you have to include it, yeah. But just the way just the way it was presented, you know, and then, and then there are other people watching it as well, talking about it, Abby's friends and stuff. It it just presented that way. Well, like, wait a minute, th- look at this guy. You know, this guy's suing Abby for this, and he, Abby did this. But look what he just did, which was he what he did was way worse than what Abby did to him. Way worse because he's done the guy. I mean, he's done the guy to the hospital. Although, like, <sighs> this is not me defending him. I'm just trying to give the context. That guy did <laughs> consent to being cut, though. Yeah, but still, didn't that guy end up in like? Staples and stuff. Yeah, no, no. I mean, Hannibal brutalized him, and it was ridiculous. Whether he did it on purpose or whether he was being reckless, who knows? It don't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. So, how about Abby's uh, family, huh? His brother and sister, that's crazy. You know, his brother looks just like him. (laughs) All right, I... You know, since I'm not... Since my throat's not hurting that much, and I'm talking, and I'm curious... I pulled up the global TV feature they did on Hannibal and all this years ago on YouTube, which includes showing the clip where Abby cuts him after right after cutting himself with the same razor. So let's hear this and also you can see it. And as I was watching this one match, I was shocked, like completely shocked when I see him take his finger and go like this and slice me in the head. This is where I think Abdullah gave me hep C. You can see here he's cutting his own head with his razor blade that's taped to his finger, right where all the scars are on his forehead, what he's been doing for the past 50 years, every time he wrestles. And now you can see him cutting me very fast, quick motions on my forehead with the same blade taped to his fingers. And now you can see the fresh blood pouring out of my head. And I'm like, what the hell? What, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? I rewind the tape. I watch it again. I'm like, he's cutting me. Even in the bloody confines of the wrestling ring, there is a code of conduct. And Devin and Seth. 
Okay, it's not clear from the video. Well, let, actually, let's finish just hearing this part. No matter how brutal the matches with Abdullah got, he never agreed to share a blade. One thing you're never supposed to do in a wrestling match is cut somebody without their permission. Okay, here we go. Or especially cut somebody with an instrument or cutting tool that has already been inside of yourself. Devon says Abdullah the Butcher broke that code, leaving him with a serious disease and no choice well, but to sue. Are you going by the specificity of his phrasing there? Yes. He said, or, you know, he didn't specifically say, I did not want, I did not want him to cut me. It's like, you're not supposed to cut somebody with the same blade. Now, was he bleeding already? It was very hard to tell in that clip. can't tell. I can't tell. But anyway, I mean, it, it was quite the show. Um, Oh, the actual match. It's in the infamous cage match. He has it on his YouTube. I'm assuming this is the actual match because it is a cage match. Um, I'm going to mute it, but... I'm curious if, I mean... To see when he starts bleeding. But... I mean, here's the thing, though. If you trust someone and it seems like they had a decent relationship... It's not unusual to ask someone else to play it, you? No. Okay, so he was already cut when they were outside the cage using... Well, there you go. So is that the bleed. fork? Is that the fork he's using on yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is this is early in the match before they've even gotten in the cage. Yeah, are they in yes. the cage at all yet? No, they haven't gone so in the cage he's once. Al he's already juicing. So that's the thing. I... <sighs> Because he's already bleeding and was already bleeding fairly profusely, I do believe him. I do believe him if he's saying that he never asked Abby to cut him in the first place, in in the in the cage, or cut him again, or or maybe he told him to only use the fork. Who knows? Or he bladed and then he, or maybe Hannibal bladed and he used it on the fork. I mean, it's it's weird. I mean, I guess we could try That's to see. Word. Weird is the word. When he actually starts bleeding here, does he... <sighs> the camera angles are such that you probably can't catch when the initial blood and bleeding is, though. So, probably pointless. Yeah, but still, I mean... <sighs> it's an interesting show to watch. That's for sure, with, uh, with all that stuff going on, that drama. And, I mean, Hannibal was very much passive voice when talking about the Texas thing. Like, things happened and it was regrettable, kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's definitely the fork. So, I mean, I'm going to guess from how they talked about in the episode, too. I'm guessing he bladed himself and then Abby used the fork on him. But this is all before they go in the cage and Abby cuts him with the blades on his fingers. Yeah. So, I just, I hate Hannibal all you want and there are very good reasons I don't like this attitude that people have of acting like of acting like he somehow wasn't wronged here I mean it wasn't I mean yeah I mean you, he was you can um, you can believe that he was wronged and you can believe that he did way worse yes you know I mean you, they both can't be mutually exclusive <laughs> You know, and Abby also can't get up the 
the stairs to the ringer through the cage door. So they had a panel of the cage undone for Hannibal to roll him in the ring. 2007, Abdul the Butcher. Well, yes. But anyway, still, uh, let's go. Oh, wait, so so here's the moment in question, too. I mean, it's it's after I think Abby cuts himself, but yeah, so it's like it is. Hannibal is definitely bleeding a lot before this happens. I mean, you can see you can see how with adrenaline going, he would not have noticed that in real time, too. Yeah, but uh, an interesting show, like I said, and Bam Bam Bigelow next week, which I'd be interested to hear what stories they tell on him and what they don't tell on him. You mean like so. the kidnapping charge or whatever it was of a prostitute or I should say sex I'm talking about him being a bounty hunter before he was in wrestling and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know. I think on one of the podcasts Evan did, he did say, though, that the uh, the truth of the saving the kids from the fire thing turns out to be less uh, amazing than it was believed to be. The thing I, I mean, the thing we can say about this season of Dark Side of the Ring, when anything else, is they've had way more family members of their subjects on this season than ever. Well, it's a lot of dead wrestler episodes, too. Mm, yeah, but... I mean, even still, here, Abby's not dead, though. And they had to say... No. Yeah. So... There you go. So that's Dark Side of the Ring, so we'll see how that goes. And, uh... Yeah, we, we talked about AEW last week. They had Blood and Guts and Punk and the Owen Hart thing. Um, ratings for Collision was down from the week before, which slightly, slightly, still, still stack show, and then uh, Blood Guts went to a nine fifty plus and a point three four in the demo, which is the high end of their average that they've been doing in twenty twenty three. So hey, I mean that's good. And plus they had a they had a, a damn good crowd, damn you know they packed in almost ten thousand fans at TD Garden, so. Very successful show there. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens uh, as we continue on through the summer. Um, got the big shows coming up. So we'll see what direction they end up in. But, again, like I said on Twitter, that's gonna, it's going to be something Adam Cole and Roddy Strong put the beat down on MJF. <laughs> because that's got to happen in that way. See, the thing is, Cole's better as a babyface, though. So I don't know if you want him to be the one that suddenly goes heel. You can't. You can't turn. If, if Max turning heel in this whole thing is way too fucking passe. He's done it so much. The yeah. way he's and got himself into this and acting into this, I think he's and got himself. He's and worked himself into a shoot. But I also think you can't. I don't think you should split them just yet. Anyway. That's because gonna be, it's going to happen because they got to have the match for. That's probably going to be the match for Wembley. But I think the dynamic between them allows you to kind of have your cake and eat it too with Max, in terms of him being a more of a heel at times and being more of a babyface at times. He's. I just. I just. I, 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 this is. I think this is what is going to happen. It, it's just. I don't know how they can do it that way. If they just if they go with a straight MJF turn again, I think that's the worst of all the possible outcomes. Oh, as far as him saying heel, yes, yes, I think that's the worst of the possible outcomes. I mean, of the two, MJF probably has more legs as business wise as a babyface than Cole does. Even if Cole is the Cole is better off in terms of what kind of performer he is as a babyface. 
something's obviously happening because Roddy is keep is all is always around in his net brace. Yes. So, although the person who injured him is has nothing to do with this program, too. I know, which is Joe. But then, you're not even talking about that, though. You know, I did want to ask you, too, real quick before we finish this up. What did you think of the uh, FTR Bullet Club match? Two out of three falls. Um, thought, I mean, it was a hell of a performance from all those guys that went to go out there and do what they did. Um, I thought it was self-indulgent as shit. To go that long, uh, you mean? To go that long, yeah. I mean, I think if, it, if the match wasn't in Calgary, that wouldn't have happened. See, I don't I think, think I don't think they I paced think they it badly or anything, though. I just don't think it, it didn't it didn't we didn't need it. That's the thing you didn't need that. I get what you're saying, but like for example, I I liked it better than the Briscoes two out of three falls match. Well, it was different, but I mean, I just don't think they they needed it. That's the thing. I don't think they needed that. I don't know. I mean, and Bullet Club didn't need a job. They didn't too many fucking jobs. Uh, where do you go now with those guys? You know, I mean, it's like, what? So, I'm more, the, the thing on that show that got me in the most was the Ricky Stars thing. I would not have turned Ricky, I would not be trying to turn Ricky Stars here. And obviously, that's what they're doing because the way they've talked about him on uh, Dynamite. About him disrespecting Liger, which is what he did. And boy, what a rib on Liger, huh? Fly the dude up there. He's out there in full costume. Presents Ricky Starks with a trophy. Starks no sells him. Runs away. And Liger's just standing like, oh? They should have brought him back for the presentation. Yeah, that that was, uh, that, well, Battle of Hell's a whole other story. One of the worst wrestling television shows I've seen in a long time. But. Oh, I see we're going uh, longer than I thought. I think we have room, but anyway. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's just that Liger thing was something else. But I would not be doing Starks as heel against Punk. I just wouldn't be doing it. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, 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 that's the thing. If you're going to keep, if you if they're going to keep MJF heel, I mean, that's the way to get the, the, the belt on Punk. Mm. So if that if they do go that direction, that's the only reason why they should go that direction. If they're going to keep pump babyface, but I don't know. I don't know. They've, they've built themselves in, in some interesting spots here. So uh, we'll see what happens as uh NFL season's coming. And uh, there's a lot, you know, Tony Khan, our, our friend Tony, he's got a lot on his plate <laughs> coming up soon. Plus it doesn't help that one of his star players from Fulham is uh, basically on a strike. Oh. So anyway, let's get back to the rest of the show and my regular voice or regular. All right, Mark's back with us as we go to other North America, and we'll start with Stampede Wrestling in Canada. Kind of, sort of. Regarding the burning down of the Hart Guest House, Police Arson Unit Detective Rod McRae, and McRae is spelled M-C, lower C, capital C, R-A-E, that's a Canadian spelling of that name, said he thought it was deliberately set to cause damage, but said he didn't believe it was meant to burn the house down. Surprisingly, Stu Hart was quoted as saying, it's in the family, you might say, but I haven't got the guts to make a big deal out of it. <laughs> Lord. Uh, did we ever, I mean, what, what was the deal with that? 
Dicks. I don't remember the the closure of this situation. I mean, I've read Heath McCoy's book a bunch of times. I don't remember it being explained to uh, who was responsible for this. Yeah, I don't remember either. So uh, they didn't. They never found out, or just never pursued it, or whatever. Although Stu said he thinks a family member. I mean, let's be realistic. I think we all know which family member he's probably referring to. Well, that's the Hart family pick. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of choices. There's plenty of choices. <laughs> Still. Who are, you, who are you thinking? Smith, of course. I mean, you, Teddy's right there. Oh, there's a six-year-old Teddy Hart setting fire to a house would not. Uh... Oh, he's six. He's wrestling. Oh, okay. He's, he's an active wrestler here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like 18 or 19. Oh. Yeah, Teddy. Yeah, Teddy just was in the news as we record this for uh, being arrested on you know, TMZ Sports. Yes, on his way out of a Chase and Ranch show. <laughs> Where of he course he was. Him. Of course. Ugh. I'm guessing this time though he did not uh, try to explain to the, dri- to the driver to the cops that it was okay though because his cat was telling him where to go. <laughs> no, I don't think that would have worked on this one. Yeah. I have more Stampede here, actual Stampede proper. There's some shakeups in Stampede. Ross Hart quit after a board meeting on July 17th, although he's still running the house show on July 21st. There's been some unrest among the wrestlers because Stampede has drawn poorly and many are behind on pay, but Stampede still flew Sabu and his honorage in, including Josh Lazy, Lazzy of XPW. It appears Sabu, Lazzy, and Bruce Hart are trying to put together, uh, put together a sort of international alliance where they make Sabu an old-style touring world champion. He'd work XPW, Stampede, and Lincoln promoters in England and Australia. Sabu has done business with Bruce and Stampede TV producer Graham Owen. Graham Owen? Okay, excuse me. Okay, I, wait, Dave had it. I read it wrong. And Stampede TV producer Graham Owen, that's another Canadian name, went to the XPW show this weekend in Los Angeles. Stampede's also jumping together a combined show with DWF on September 8th at the Corral, which may be official by the time you read this. This will be the same show they were going to do in May that flamed out because of all the negative publicity from other wings of the Hart family, since it was to involve a birthday for Stu and some sort of memorial for Owen. At least that's how it was sold to some of the wrestlers. It meant the top WF wrestlers immediately signed up for that reason. The idea now is to make the show some sort of Brian Pillman benefit and keep Owen and Stu's name totally out of it. And on July 21st, Dodd TV taping to Calgary before just 80 fans. Phil LaFon, Dan Crawford, but Phil LaFon, uh, 39, wrestled for the first time in the year. He did nothing risky, but was said to be in decent shape. Dave Moore Smith did a run in when son Harry was getting double teamed. Jim Neidhart was there in his new role as a WWF scout. Best good way to keep him on the payroll until the Owen case is settled. It is what it certainly looks like from the outside. And the rest of Frank Einstein in that group is Carl the Duke. Jim Neidhart, by the way, just got fired in Memphis. That's why Tracy Smothers is going there as the uh, trainer. You mean fired as a trainer, yes, but fired still as a trainer. under yeah, still contract. On the yeah, still on the payroll, yeah. As a scout, which, uh, as Brett explained in his book, uh, Jim's scouting reports basically consisted of just names that him and Bretton would make up over lunch. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> and, I mean, Brett says in the book, though, like, this didn't bother him. All he asked everyone was to not talk about the lawsuit publicly and rile things up. 
Jim didn't do that. Jim needs a job. He didn't have a problem with that. I mean, yeah. Brett, I mean, Brett knows the deal here. So, yeah. It, it's interesting they're talking about doing a Pillman benefit show because we are just a month or two after the third Pillman show in 2000. Yes. The one the, that I was at, I was actually at that one. Uh, for the Benoit Regal match and assorted other things that happened on that show. So it's, I mean, it's definitely, we're still in the time when they're doing them. So them doing one in Calgary is not, not outlandish, I guess. It makes sense. Is Phil LaFond his real name? I guess. That's how Dave has it here is LaFond. And then parenthesis ex- explaining that that's Phil LaFon and Dan- Danny Crawford. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he couldn't go as Dan Crawford and Stampede. Well, first he was Phil LaFleur. Yeah, he was Phil LaFleur for a long time. That's mainly what he was in Stampede. He was Phil LaFleur. It's what? funny. We didn't, we didn't mention it uh, in the first half of the show, but this is in the era of The Observer where Dave goes real name crazy. Like during the oh, paper. Yeah. During the pay-per-view, everybody's name has well, to be... Well, the pay-per-view, he always... I mean, he still does that to some degree, I think. Today? <sighs> if it, if he does it anymore, time? he only stopped doing it in the last few years. Yeah, because... That'd be crazy if he still did that. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, I just well, found on YouTube, he worked as Phil LaFond in Portland in 85. I don't have any recollection of him in Portland in 1985. Uh, it, that's that how the YouTube brief cup of coffee him and mike miller did it have a date for that well i'll click on it again it did have the date the date is may 14th 85 all right let's see here what i have three, it was three days before the 60th anniversary show that don owen did okay may 14th may 14th <laughs> close all right, uh, I'm going to have May 14th in that list. All right, let me go to this list. Okay, here we go. Um, okay. Oh, he's Rocky Ventura. There we go. Right there, that, there you go. There you, There it is. It's the, it's the YouTube video has him as Phil LaFond. But that's yeah, right. Rocky Ventura. Yeah, as soon that's as Rocky. I saw that on Cage Match, I'm like, yes, of course, Rocky Ventura. Yeah, which um, Joe Lightfoot uh, wrestled as Joey Ventura. I think they did them as like a brother team. What are you telling me? Wait. Joe Lightfoot was not a genuine uh, Native American. <laughs> are you shocked at that information? <laughs> no. Well, it, 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 hey, Stampede, the territory that made uh, <laughs> Junji Harada into uh, Sunny Two Rivers. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Sunny Two Rivers. Yeah. <laughs> what what a group of opponents that Phil Lafon had in Portland. Tom Jones, Jerry Gray, Ed Wiskowski, uh, Kendo Nagasaki, Mike Miller. Interesting territory at that time. Yeah, look at oh, a Battle Royal with Billy Jack, Billy Two Eagles, Bobby Jaggers, Don Running Bear. Don Running Bear, yes. Uh, Bob Delaceres, Carl Steiner. Yeah, they had um, Don Running Bear and Billy Two Eagles, a tag team. Of course, they're both Mexican. Of course. Oh, Ricky Vaughn, <laughs> too. Yeah. In the Battle Royal. 
Ricky Wait, Vaughn, Eric. Who's Tiny Anderson in Portland? Tiny Anderson was a was a just a local guy. I just watched him on TV the other day. He was a Portland guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he only worked in Portland. Because didn't Luke Brown also use the name Tiny Anderson at one point? He used Tiny Brown. He may have been Tiny Anderson way back, but yeah, it was some Portland guy. All right, I digress. All right, let's go to Mexico now. Triple A, Triple I, Tate TV at the Plaza de Toros, Ciudad Juarez on July 23rd. We have Mascarita Sagrada, Dosimil, Altocasito over Mini Abismo Negro and Rocky Mormon. Sito Moreno and Estradita over Mrs. Janeth and Rossi Moreno. Mascara Sagrada, Triple A, and Mascara Sagrada Jr. over Bismo Negro and Electro Shock. Then we have some of the locals here Crazy 33, La Parca Jr., Latin Lover, and Sangre Chicana with against uh, the Consagrados, Cobarde, Espetro Jr., Io de Cobarde, and Tejano. And then we had a cage match where the loser got their head shaved and kickboxer. Lost the match. He got his head shaved. It was basically a tag match. Him and Tor Irisan against Hector Garza and Evi Metal. That's where deep in that era, the uh, the fighters, the kickboxers and stuff in AAA. Yes, 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 yes. Lovely. A lovely group of uh, talents there. Tor Irisan. All right, let's go to CMLL. Remake on July 21st. Siconcito Ramirez and Otto Dragoncito over Eferito and Perofito. Astro Jr., Mascara Mágica, and Solar went to a draw with Dr. O'Borman Jr., the future Dr. X, Io de Gladiador, and Rico Latino. Bubantum, Vazgarera, and Violencia over Anti 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 Falta Note, Rico Mendoza, and Safari. Dr. Banda Jr., Riva Canor, Otto Guerrero over Atlantis, Io de Desmarque, and Harry Disco Jr. And Pedro Aguayo and Viano Tercero over Mascara Año Desmil and Pedroff in the main event. And uh, if you want to watch the TV from this week, it's on my YouTube channel. So there you go. Featuring the main matches here. That is a great heel trio in, in 2000. Dr. Wagner and, the, and, and Ray and Ultimo. That's a, that's a great team on paper. Yes. Probably in the ring, too, but I'm just saying when you see it, I'm like, wow, that's a great team. Yeah. I was refreshing my memory on the whole Sagrada timeline, too, as you were going through the CMLR results. I forgot that after the final new Sagrada in AAA, after he was Mascara Divina, eventually he took over for the previous Mascara Sagrada as the new Ale Brihe when the first Ale Brihe went back to being Cranio. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Which I mentioned just because it's that kind of thing that makes this all very confusing all the time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like how last week in Arena Mexico you had uh, Mascarita Mascara, uh, Dorado as his under as Metallic teaming with the new version in the same trios match. It, it's like you read the results and you're like, hmm. <laughs> it's like you make sure you're talking about the right guy. Yeah, it's Mexico. I mean, that's all you can say. I mean, that's how you can explain it. <laughs> it's just the stuff they do. Like the ever-growing uh, image of the different Mysticos doing the Spider-Man meme. Yeah. Which eventually turned into what? Uh, you know, you know, Caristico Mystico, uh, Juarez Mystico slash Second Sin Cara, uh... Draw list to go. Well, I mean, 
and a well, Mr. Jr. So there's four. But the, <laughs> the thing is, though, now there's only one. The original. He's back to be Mystico again. Well, he's the only one that's Mystico, but the other three are still around, aren't they? Well, they're around, but they're not Mystico. Yeah, well, what's his face? Um, second Sin Cara, Unico, is... Um, what is he now? Santa de Oro. Yeah, I mean, they're there, but there's only one Mystico. Yeah, but Santa de Oro is the Name. only one that doesn't use a gimmick inspired by the past as Mystico, though, too. Because Drillistico well, is Drillistico, and Mysticese Jr. replaced Mystico being Mysticese in AAA. Yeah, but there's only one Mystico, like I'm trying to say, in Mexico right now. I know, but it's still very <laughs> confusing if you try to explain the history to anyone. Yeah, so there's only one. All right. Back to CMLL, 2000. Sankara Steka beat Picasso in a Mascara Culture Mascara match on July 23rd in a Coliseo. Picasso and Master Vilhan Silva's Carlos Guerrero Morales, 35, of Guadalajara. Then we have uh, the rest of the matches on this show. Los Arroyos Tapatillos and Zeta beat Nimico Publico, Heke, and Reyes Vellos. Filoso Neutron, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Neutron, and Super Kendo over Merico Roca, Damiano Guerrero, and Moguer. Then we have Rayman, Jorge Mendoza, and Tony Rivera over Gran Marcos Jr., Aco Negro, and Zumbido, Zumbi, 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 Zumbi then we have the mass match, and then Apollo Dante, Satanico, and Shoker over Emilio Chavez Jr. You'll do this mark and Viana Tessero by disqualification. Pedro got hit by a bottle thrown by a fan on July 19th in Acapulco and got so mad, he got on the mic and gave a speech saying the fans should respect the wrestlers more. I mean, he's right, but... But good luck with that in Lucha. Yeah. <laughs> now, I forget, have New Infernales already split or are they just teaming with other guys at this point to set up who's how the battle lines are drawn when they do split? Um, I'm not sure if they split yet. I don't think so, but I'm not 100 no, percent sure. Yeah, no, they haven't because the turn takes place with the split takes place. So Tarzan Boy is still technical here. Okay. So yeah, we're not there yet. All right, IWRG, only one match during our week listed and on the Sunday show, run knock up on July 23rd. Fantasy and Starboy won the IWRG Intercontinental Tag Titles from Mega and Super Mega. Hell of a match, if I remember right. It's a Sunday show. Did that? I don't think that made TV. Usually a Thursday show. Maybe shows. I'm thinking of something else with the same with Well, the I'm same sure guy. they probably wrestled yeah. more than one match. <laughs> so I'm sure you probably saw a match. But yeah, I mean, have, right? Like, how think about how many, how many uh, Alan Stone and Motocross versus the Megas tags were in this era? So I'm sure yeah. this got repeated too. Yeah, probably so. All right, St. Roberts has been reported will, will return to Mexico for the new MVS promotion that airs on TVS Taca. Roberts has worked for AAA and was phenomenal heel presence, although he was way past gone as performer for AAA several years back. Does this happen in any way? I think this. I think this was supposed to be that uh, uh, Gwas promotion. If I remember correctly. You think this becomes Gwas? Yeah. Which ran a pay per view. The one yes. where Fishman lost his mask. And never I got think, his full payoff. 
Yeah, I think this is it. I, Bahari or one of them will, will correct me on this because I cannot remember. Yeah, Global some, Wrestling All-Stars. So many upstart promotions over the years or tr- want to be upstart promotions. And the timeline is right for it to be Gloss. Yes, yeah. So it's possible. And now let's go to the reason why we're doing this show. Tijuana. Promotion is Mora. July 21st at Auditorium Municipal de Tijuana. Neon, Shamu, and Spark. Rooming is Exorcist for the Savaje and Sangre Guerrera. Mascarilla Sagrada and Suki went up against Expertrito and Mini Coco Verde. Arandu, Lismark, and Tarzan Boy went up against Depredador, Misterioso, and The Keys. Super Parka defended his WWE Junior Lightweight title. Yes, that's right. Junior Lightweight title uh, be, uh, against Pimpinella Escalata. And our main event. Ilda Santo, La Parca, and Super Porky, Brazo de Plata, went up against Bestia Savaje, Scorpio, and Shocker. The Guapos, the main event. Although, so, I think, we'll, we'll get to it in a second, but I figure there's an asterisk in that main event, although I'm not 100% sure about that. Well... In, in the hindsight of history. You were there. I was there. So, alright, so... Talk about um, you know the, the whys and wheres and how you end up in Tijuana and going the show and just the whole experience here. <clears throat> okay, so every year, so this is this is 2000. This is the fourth year that I had been going to San Diego for Comic Con. Once I was sort of like I was working in a shop and I had also written some conference papers that got presented at panels and I presented some panels. So this is like, I'm heavy into going to San Diego and I really hadn't been into Lucha like in the first couple of years of that. But as I wrote, I wrote about this in an issue of the magazine that I cannot find, unfortunately. And it's so long ago, I could not find my file copy of the magazine. This is how old it is. I think that when I wrote that magazine, those files are on zip drives. Oh, that's old. So, so uh, I have a actually it's funny. I have a zip drive player that I can like. That's a USB now, so I could get to them, but I wasn't able to find them. But anyway, but uh, I wrote about this online. I don't know if if this is uh, the Wayback Machine can find the if I wrote about it when I worked for. WrestleManiacs or WrestleLine, whichever it was at this point, but I did write about it on CRZ's site, so we do have some notes from when it happened. So anyway, so the big thing every year at San Diego is this thing called the Eisner Awards. These are like the comics Oscars, and there's a big there's a big award ceremony. Everybody dresses up. It's a big deal, but it's always it's Friday night. It's Friday night in the convention center, and so you kind of had a choice of what you wanted to do, whether it was go to the awards or go later to Tijuana or late in later on later years. So we get to 2000 and for whatever reason I decide, because I had started watching Galavision on direct TV when CMLL was on. So I had been getting into Lucha. So I decide, okay, this is the year I'm going to go to Tijuana if I can, instead of going to the Eisners. So I'm told, I ask around for people that I know that are local or that I know are wrestling fans that have been going for a while. 
because this is actually, I think, years before I become friends with Dr. Lucha. Yeah, little, I mean, Dr. Lucha very well could have been at the same show. I don't know. But uh, so I find out that the guy I'm told, the guy to talk to about going to Tijuana is a guy named Eric Caden, who runs Hollywood Book and Poster, who uh, I later learned was friends with Kurt Brown. And when Eric died, Kurt wrote an obituary for him in an issue of the magazine. So I go to I go down. He has he's a longtime uh, guy at San Diego, uh, uh, exhibitor at San Diego, and he's got all these movie posters and scripts and all that kind of stuff as you would expect. So I go down there and I'm like, you know, hi, my name's Mark and whatever. And so and so said, if I wanted to go to Tijuana for the wrestling tonight, you're the guy to talk to. And he's like, yep. He's like, you know, we leave at seven or whatever. The hall closes at six. He's like, come back to the booth at the end of the night and we'll all leave together. I'm like, okay, fine. So I go off, do whatever I do that day. Come back. There's about eight or nine of us that go. Nobody, nobody I know. And there's the funny thing is there's a couple, couple, three guys who are Italian that go with us. And then we're riding down in his van and we're, we're all crammed into like his station wagon, minivan, whatever. And so we get down there and as we're going down there, we're talking. And if I find funny that nobody in the car speaks any Spanish or at least nothing above like token Spanish. So I'm like, Oh, this is going to be interesting. So we get down. So it's, you know, 15, 20 minutes, half hour, whatever it is to get to the border, go across, no issues. And this is 2000. So this is before nine eleven. before nine eleven. So I'm basically told, bring your driver's license, bring whatever cash you want to spend. Don't bring your wallet. Don't bring any jewelry. Don't bring any credit cards. I'm like, okay, fine. We go over, we get through customs, no problem. And then I learned this is the trick that you have to do. There's always taxis right outside customs. And so the trick is, you, at least back then, you just go out, you go up to the first taxi that looks reputable or, you know, that has all the stickers or whatever. And you just say, Auditorio Lucha Libre. And they know exactly, because again, it's a bunch of American tourists. So they know you're going, you're probably there. If you're not there to, for the debauchery in Tijuana, <laughs> you're probably, you're probably there to see the wrestling. So you just say Auditorio de Tijuana, Lucha Libre, take you right there. And then like the guy says in sort of broken English, you know, when the show is over, just come out, look for a taxi, say, go to the border and you're fine. So we get there. There's a line outside the building. And the first thing I notice is, well, <coughs> sorry about that. Um, the first thing that you notice is there's all of these people selling all of the stuff that you expect. Loads of souvenir masks, loads of souvenir dolls, videotapes, what have you. Uh, I didn't buy a mask that night, but I ended up buying like two or three little figures for like a couple bucks a piece. I bought like a Dr. Wagner and I think a parka and then a sort of classic tiger mask that may have been like a dollar more because it had a cape. 
like a cloth cape, not like a plastic cape. But these are like seriously old school, like, you know, LGN era, one solid hunk of plastic. No, no points of articulation, none of that stuff. Just a figure that's painted to vaguely resemble the guy you think it is in that. So we, we wait through the line. We get up there. We get to the front. They have the prices posted or whatever. And we're paying in dollars. So they're just like, okay, front row seats are like, I, they're either, they were either 20 or 40. But the problem was they didn't have enough seats for all of us to sit together. Uh-huh. So half of us sit in one section, half of us sit in the other section. So we're either sitting in the front row or the second row. So we're right up in the action. Yeah. Um, go there, you know, lots of guys, you know, everybody's drinking their cervezas or their Coronas, whichever, which, and, uh, a lot, I remember there being like a lot more women than I expected. Again, cause I'm still relatively new to Lucha. Um, lots of, older ladies scattered throughout the crowds and in the front row um at least two or three well-dressed older guys with very much younger and prettier women in the front row <laughs> again i don't think you would call that a surprise <laughs> no so we go through um i really don't remember a lot of the matches i remember there being a minis match i didn't remember who it was until i saw that list i wrote at the time or I wrote then that the best match of the night was um, Super Parka and Pimpy, which which I wrote because, again, these, these guys are all new to me, except for the guys I see on TV. So to me, I am amused by the fact that you have a guy who is dressed like La Parka, but wearing red and blue and having a Superman logo on his chest. Yeah, that feels to the comic fans. I, uh, yeah, again, we're there for Comic Con, and you know, I knew of Exoticos, but I don't know if I had like you know, usually you didn't see them on TV. So certainly, probably the first time I had seen Pimpy live, and you know, you know, the great act and everything. But yeah, so I thought it was funny that the best match was between the guy dressed like La Parka as Superman and an Exotico, although. Being 2000, I didn't use, I didn't say Exotico, but I would now. And then we get to the main event, and according to what I wrote, El Hijo del Santo was a no-show. <laughs> but I got to see La Parca and two-thirds of the Guapos, Shocker and Scorpio Jr. And they said the best match was between Super Parka and Pipinella. And since we made it across the border with no incidents... Amazing since no one in our party spoke Spanish. It was all in all a successful trip. The thing that I remember most about the main event, which is weird because in my memory it was Santo, but reading what I wrote, it may not have been, was so it was a two out of three falls match, naturally. And all of a sudden, we're in the third fall, and we're getting towards the schmaz at the end. And as this is happening, I notice there's suddenly security guards in every aisle and they're slowly working their way down to the ring. And I'm like, uh Oh, the Rudos are winning here. And yes, the Rudos did win. And then the beer started. I think the guy who was sitting next to me got like doused by a beer coming over his head. 
I think I got some of it because I remember smelling like beer on the way home, but I didn't get the full blast of it. So, I mean, all in all, I would say a very, uh, not stereotypical, but like pretty much everything I think you would want to see at a Lucha show, I probably experienced on my first show there, which to me makes it a big success. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> that that's a, a good time to go down there. Log, I mean, Log could tell on the show. You know, Santo wasn't there. But um, it makes me wonder, like, who who it was, because I don't have it written down who who replaced him. So I don't know if it was, like, somebody came up from the under, you know, like if you would put Tarzan Boy in that, or if it was just somebody <coughs> somebody else that may have filled in. It's Tijuana. I mean, if you thought the guy looked like Santo, it could have been Super Astro. I mean, who knows? We don't have yeah. the full results. So no, I'm curious. I'm curious to see like if I can find more because it's funny because when I initially told you about this as an idea, and you sent me that picture of the poster, yeah, or the the handout, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that picture is probably from me when I posted originally, cause I kept it cause I kept that and I kept the ticket that the ticket actually has a picture of Santo on it. Like yeah. it's, I mean, it's a paper ticket. It has Santo's picture and then it has, you know, like the generic printed number on it, like, you know, zero, zero 20 or something like that. Yeah. So I think, I think, that, I think I've posted that online voice. That picture is probably out there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure that, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that push is probably from me. That 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 handbill that is. Well, th- well, there you go. I mean, that's a, a Tijuana is definitely a place I would love to go see a show, and uh, it's not the same as it was back then. This era, but uh, yeah, it sounds like you had a interesting time to say the least. That's for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I went. I only went one other time when I was still going to San Diego regularly, and. I don't think it was a Morris show then. Like, I'd have to go back and look it up. I'm sure probably if I could find, like, the Observer from around then, I, I'm sure I probably sent the results in or somebody sent the results in if I could figure out what year it was. But I think it wasn't Morris because I want to say it was a different promoter. But I don't think it was AAA. So, but again, I think in that era, it was like, there were like three different promoters, I think, and they ran like every three weeks. So yeah, there was a a glut of promoters there in the early to mid two thousands. A lot of them. It, it got to the point where you had, uh, I mean, they were in this, they were running separate buildings on the same night. They were competing head to head. Right, because you look at the list, there's no. There's no Ray Senior on this list, so you know I'm sure he was with a different promotion at that time. Well, they, they he had his own promotion that would run the yeah. Palenque. Yeah, but, they, but, they, but also, I mean, it didn't matter a lot a lot with the uh, promoters because they always used a lot of the same guys. You know, there, there was, I mean, there was that, but Tijuana wrestling politics is just like other wrestling politics. You know, I mean, you have. Sometimes people are in with certain people. Sometimes they're not. But, uh, yeah, because I think that because the last time I went to the con, I wasn't there on Friday. It was like 2014, 2015. But even then, that's when like Doctor Lucha said, "Do not go to Lucha when you're in San Diego." He's like, "It's not, 
it's not safe to go even to see Lucha because this is when the time when he said he stopped even going to get the magazines. He like he didn't even feel safe going down there long enough to go through customs, grab the magazines to come back. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other reason. Like, I'm glad I went when it was still safe to go. I mean, even with you're in a, you know, you're in a group of 10 people, you're probably safe. But, like, I'm glad, you know, no straight bullets or anything weird or any kind of thing like that happened. So, it's definitely as, like, a wrestling fan, something, because, you know, I'm probably not, as we said before, I'm probably not going to go to Mexico City at this point in my life. So, I'm glad I've at least gotten to go to Tijuana to see Lucha there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, let's go to Puerto Rico. So we have a little bit of that before we close the section out. WBC is still headlining with Carly Colon and Rick Gonzalez in, in their program. And wrestlers have been paid since July 16th. So there's a lot of bad morale due to that. Carlos Colon left after the anniversary of shows for a vacation in Canada visiting his in-laws, but returned over the weekend. Luis Davila, who played the role as the head of the championship committee in WBC, jumped to IWA, where he debuted on July 22nd in the same type of role. Well, that's an interesting uh, deal there, Bix. The, the guy <laughs> was the head of the championship committee in one promotion, then goes to another promotion and is the same, guy, the same position. He must be very good at administrating championship committees. <laughs> so, Did he bring Dieter Crap with him? <laughs> Mr. Chicago. That makes me wonder if, uh, if any of Carlos's wrestling children are dual citizens or this is a wife who is came after all the kids that are in wrestling now uh i think that's his wife was from canada because he I'm pretty was... sure that's the kid's mom yeah because he yeah. Met, oh, okay he, he met her in calgary when he was carlos belafonte right either calgary or vancouver one of them but yeah he, he worked in western canada all right well, that's younger days. right so that's i mean that'd be interesting if you know to see like carlito or the other colognes like working in Canada and then being like working in angle where they were where they're half Canadian. This was like part of the angle. Well, you know, I mean, Puerto, Puerto Rico sent a lot of people up to Canada and, and, you know, when they were young. So there was a, there was a relationship between WC and Stampede. Yes. So for many years, I'm going to say you could have TV, you could have Puerto, you could have WWC TV in Canada and it count as CanCon. <laughs> in a way, <laughs> although every way them wouldn't be too thrilled with WWE television, I can tell you that. Ah, they're all bleeding. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> all right, let's go to the uh, indie scene now. We start with Combat Zone Wrestling. They had no rules, no limits on July 22nd at Champs Arena in Sewell, New Jersey, where we opened up with the Rock and Rubble beating Nick Burke. Mercury or Nate Hatred. Backseat Boys retain their CCW tag titles being Rick Blade and Nick Mondo. Fans bring the weapons for the CCW Iron Man title as Nick Gage beat White Beater to win the title. And CCW World Heavyweight title match, Justice Payne defeated Zandig to win the title. It's a year one CCW show with basically yeah, all but, of the people you would expect. It, uh, but the big names are all on here at the time, and we got two big title changes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, a lot going on. I had no idea until recently that CZW actually ran in Maryland now, like 
15 miles from where I live. Oh, I was no like, one talks about those current CZW shows at all. That's why. <laughs> yeah. But, it was, but, but you would have thought just by accident I would have hurt or, you know, people at work who know that, you know, I know wrestling or I worked in wrestling or however you want to say it, would say something like, hey, have you ever been to that wrestling that they have in Havity Grace or something like that? And I, you know, I would have been like, what? It wasn't until like I read it online and I was like, I had no. And then it's been happening for a while. I mean, I have no desire to go, but I was just like, because I the closest thing that I knew that had been anything local were the quote unquote fake Baltimore shows that NXT ran a couple of years ago? It's well, like MCW. that's no, no NXT. No, but doesn't oh, NCW oh, run near you? Uh, I, I guess near me, probably not near me, but as I would call near me. Mm. I mean, if, I mean, if they run a Baltimore, that's not necessarily. I mean, that's an hour away. I think they're running Joppa or something like that. So that's, yeah, like 45 minutes away. Whereas, you know, it's like Aberdeen is like where I work and Haverty Grace. I drive through Haverty Grace on the, to get to Aberdeen. Hmm. You know, so like other than like the shows that they had in the NXT shows in Bel Air. And then, you know, I think TNA, this is so long ago, TNA, I think, ran at the Ironbird Stadium once. I think, and that's really that's been all this local. But yeah, I was shocked that it's just funny to think that CZW of all people are running in Maryland, knowing the. I assume the athletic commission is still Maryland State Athletic yes, Commission. Yes. We all know and love. But CZW so, is not a deathmatch promotion anymore. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And at this point, they are mainly a deathmatch promotion. So. Their their following is mainly people who are into that sort of thing. It's not until really later in 2000 into 2001 that they start to diversify more regularly. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to Extreme Championship Wrestling. Oh, God. I feel like throwing things already. And it's the Pro Wrestling Torch. <clears throat> Industry sources say USA Network is still interested in ECW programming. That's bullshit! <laughs> The network is said to have ruled out airing the show during a primetime week at night time slot, but still interested in airing ECW. You fucking mark! And a late afternoon, early evening time slot on Saturdays. Source said that part of Paul Heyman's sales pitch was comparing his youthful roster to that of WCW's. Other sources say that the network told Heyman they only interested in airing the show with visually appealing talent and strong production qualities. Sources say Heyman spent all but one day in Los Angeles last week, presumably searching for a TV deal. Those who know say he spent his only day in New York producing the TNN show. Heyman did not appear at this weekend's shows, but did return to his home in New York last Monday. Heyman is expected to appear at this weekend's TV tapings and fly back to L.A. earlier this week. Staying with the torch. There, those who know... Again, those who know say that Fox Sports Network, ESPN2, and E remain interested in acquiring ECW programming. The word on E is that they want the show, but ECW officials don't believe they have enough money to upgrade production and give the show proper advertising. There's also talk that Paul Heyman's interested in striking a deal with a network that's willing to pump money into the company. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. Just imagining if they would have been on E like following the Stern show and what kind of cross promotion we could have gotten. Well, here's it's bullshit because I mean, 
we have all these TV networks that are interested in ECW, but ECW is dead in, in a few months. Why don't they put ECW on their, on their television station? Yeah, ECW's last national television presence is paying to be on Farm Club. I mean, what's up? Where's all these networks? In just a matter of months, when ECW does have a TV deal, you know, we talk about this at length on the uh, ECW TNN Patreon shows. It's, and it's the just, death of ECW shows. Yes, it's fucking ridiculous how much Wade comes off as a mark. Well, is this Wade and, or Jason? Well, I mean, you don't know. It's Tor, so you, you don't know for sure. It doesn't always say. Okay. And never well, the only time they had their names there is when they have when it's by TV reports. Mm. So just yeah. Because I mean, if you Jason have this, is the point person on ECW at this point, but doesn't mean Wade's not doing anything. But again, if you want to listen to more about this and more in depth discussion of all this bullshit, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And the big thing that still drives me crazy though is like this idea that like Paul is just magically gaining meetings just by being in L.A. Those in the know, or those who know, get the fuck out of here with that Paul shit. You think Maybe he's like Eugene Baffa, Eugene Sharkowski, and Steve Carroll? Get the fuck out of here with that shit. You think he's like driving around L.A. like in a Randy Newman video in a convertible on his phone making deals? No, he is. No. <laughs> It's so stupid. No, he's got a map to the stars' homes, and he's trying driving by executives' houses and just being like, "Mr. Eisner, have I got a deal for you?" You should have went to the Eisner Awards. Mm, da, 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 da. All right. <laughs> well, more about ECW Television. Uh, there's nothing new regarding New Deal with TNA for the fall season. I wonder why. November to Remember will take place November 5th at the Odium in Villa Park, Illinois. Five weeks between pay-per-views as Anarchy Rules is October 1st. will be the shortest span between pay-per-view shows ever for ECW. They put tickets on sale for Anarchy Rules on July 21st and are $1,600 pay for $90,000 gate. It's important to get an early jump because WSO will run Nitro in the same city on the next night. Alright. ECW did an angle with rock star Billy Corrigan of the Smashing Pumpkins. Who's a big fan has been in several Raws in the audience in recent months. So the TV tapings in Peoria, Illinois, on July 22nd. Corgan went to sing the national anthem when the entire network crew came out to bully him. He ended up smashing his fake looking guitar on Louis Daniels' head. Before he could be attacked, Tommy Dreamer and Jerry Land came out for the save. Set up a tag main event in the show against Steve Carino and Scott Anton in a false cut anywhere death match. It was your basic ECW brawl. Ref was taken out. Jack really tried to interfere with a bull rope, but Corgan ran out for the save, grabbed the rope to get victory a low blow, then counted double pin as Dreamer and Lynn used their finishers. It was then announced that Dreamer, Lynn, and Corgan were the winners. The angle at the beginning came off really good. Corgan said it looked unathletic. Oh, <laughs> you think? But his guitar shot looked great, and his three count didn't look good. They was talking using him again. Reports from the show are that crowd reactions were weak, but the effort from the wrestlers were strong. With almost every match good, but not much in the way of new angles. Just Incredible was totally cheered in his title defense against Danny Doring to the point that Francine had to tell the crowd to stop cheering for him. It was also said to be Just Incredible's best title match in the ring and his strongest weekend as champion. Had a very good match previous night with Kid Cash. Doring has bleached his hair blonde and said to like Owen Hart. Tony Mamaluke did in order a springboard drop kick, tope, and rolling body block off the apron, all to no pop before Tajiri took over and destroyed him. 
Big Sal and Guido laid out the gear after the match. They also did an angle where Rhino beat Chili with a Frazier. Sandman ran in and speared Rhino through a table. While Bill Wiles, now apart from C.W. Anderson, is called the king of ECW, Bilvis Wesley. Now, many regulars, including New Jack, the Baldies, Balls with Honey, Domery, Mikey Whipwreck, Center Minister, Cyrus Joel Gertner, and Joey Styles weren't flown in for budgetary reasons. Reasons. Lynn missed the Decatur, Illinois show because he was doing first autograph signs for St. Paul. Sarkosis was only in for a second night and said it looked much better against Guido than in the pay-per-view. Where he looked a little rusty and nervous. He also got a real big crowd reaction. We've heard good things about the look of potential Texas indie wrestler Red Dog, who has been working openers. Now, Torch has more on the uh, people not on show. Joey, Styles, Will Gurner, Cyrus, Sister Manager, Balls, Money, Mike, Rip it, not the shows. Since nothing was booked for them, management decided to lead them home as a cost cutting measure to save on travel expenses. All but Mahoney is said to be working on their agreements that pay them a weekly salary. All but Mahoney are scheduled to appear this weekend shows in Texas. Paul Hammond continues to deny that he is punishing balls. For what? And <laughs> who knows? It's Balls Mahoney. In Heyman's absence, last week's syndicate show was produced by Tommy Dreamer and Heyman's cameraman editors, Ron Buffone and Charlie Brissetti. Heyman faxed a group of very specific production sheet, which laid out his plans for the show. Although there have been reports claiming Joey Stops had produced a show, that doesn't appear to be the case. Oh, I wonder who reported that. Was it perhaps OneWrestling.com? <laughs> Oh my god. Although goodness. there had been reports. To me that's a although it's the torch, so I feel like if it was one wrestling.com, they would have said, although there had been reports from a pro wrestling news website owned by Joey Styles. So <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I, this I, company. Cost well the money. good thing the good thing is that Billy Corrigan did this angle, got his fill of wrestling, and never did anything again. I don't know, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to jog my memory and give an idea of where we are in the timeline. I didn't pull up the Patreon notes, but I did put Extreme Championship Wrestling into the one-file search. So remember, we're either still in the middle of or we're just past the USA Network WWF civil trial. Here's yeah. something I forgot about. Um, let me make sure I'm looking at the right article. When they're talking about the discovery, because, and remember, this was all expedited. You know, all this stuff happened very quickly because of the timeline. Uh, USA subpoenaed documents from HHG Corp, parent company of WWF competitor Extreme Championship Wrestling. USA told ECW to turn over documents relating to whether or not ECW met ratings and financial performance targets in TNN's deal with ECW. Hmm. So... Two things I'm wondering there. One, is there a legitimate reason for them to want that specific to the lawsuit? And either way, if it's out there that they subpoenaed that, why would anyone think they're actually negotiating with the ECW? It's fucking Paul Heyman working Wade and, and Jason. I mean, it's exactly what it is. Well, I mean, we came to the conclusion doing those shows that the sheet writers did not read the trades as much as we thought they did, right? No, of course not. That's a multi-channel news. Or they just, they read them and they never processed it, because we've seen plenty of that, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they can't remember what they all, they report themselves. 
Oh, yeah, the lawsuit ended uh, at the beginning of July. All right, TNN show on July 21st was taped for the pay-per-view in Poughkeepsie. It wasn't one of the better shows. They had the ball decent against Jerry Lynn and Tommy Dreamer, which was one of those standing walk-around brawls that was pretty bad. Dreamer is banged up as he has did a Pescado through the table. After a match, Dreamer and Lynn won clean. Network attacked them. Just incredible pin to Jerry to keep the ECW title. The most memorable part of this match was a miscommunication which led to Jerry kick incredible, whose head was in the wrong spot and wasn't ready for it. Oops. With a kick right to the side of his head. This looked like a knockout blow in a kickboxing match and not credible silly. Everyone in the building knew they had messed up. They did some great near falls, but the finish of credible catching him with an attempted quibarata and turned into a spinning tombstone was a little sloppy. TV main event saw Rob Van Dam over Balls Mahoney. Mahoney juiced. It was worse than most of their matches. Lots of attackers spots for both men, but this match didn't gel at all. Van Dam used the Van Terminator for the pin in 1028, making it the longest TV match of the week from a major U.S. office. 10 minutes, 28 seconds. So it's there's that your era. It's the era. Yeah, it's Crash TV. ECW on TNN drew a point .9. And maybe TNN admitted to the trade. It's the they canceled ECW because they couldn't get a 2.0. Yeah. All right, back to the tour. Psychosis verbally agreed to a $1,500 per week deal. The idea they would be given a raise was the company secures a new TV deal. Good luck with that. You fucking mark! Yeah. Story, and back to a story from earlier in the show. Stories of Taz's pettiness aren't exclusive to the WWF. Oh, I love it. Several sources confirmed that Taz sent word to the ECW locker room that he took offense to Johnny Swinger crossing his arms during ring introductions. You fucking mark! Apparently, Taz feels Johnny Swinger does so in a manner that is too similar to the way he crosses his arms. Taz is said to have called several of his old ECW contacts regarding the matter and was more or less told to fuck off. Despite this incident, Taz and Paul Heyman are said to be on good terms, mostly due to Taz's willingness to come back for Mike, the Mike Awesome match a few months ago. Thank God that guy, thank God that guy mellowed out. Good Lord. Yes. He was, he was miserable, as Joey Styles would say. What the? Jesus. All right. Now we go to the ECWA. Jip. Peterson, Peterson, the Florida-based indie wrestler who was stricken with cancer, came to the ECWA promoted by his uncle, Jim Kettner, for, for the show of the weekend between treatments to a huge fan ovation. The show was at St. Matthew's Parish Hall on July 22nd in Wilmington, Delaware, in front of 615. Low, this is our opening match. Low-key and Vincent Goodnight defeated Ty Street and Patch. I forgot Low-key worked there before Super 8. Yes. What a match. Mark Deschart, Schrader, Andy Valentine defeat the Inferno Kid and Benny Stosfus. Glenn Osborne and Johnny Max are a Viper and Stud. Felipe, the pool boy, and Ristano. Felipe beat the Persian Prince and the Japanese pool boy. I Holy forgot shit. that there was a second pool boy. Felipe. In a very early match in their, their career. J.M.R. Briscoe defeated Mozart Fontaine and Mr. Ooh-la-la. -la. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm curious, actually, how early this is relative to their actual debut, based on what's documented. And in our main event, Russell Charlie Haas retained the CBA tag titles, beating J.J. the ring crew guy and 
the Cheetah Master. Okay, so based on what's on Cage Match, this match predates everything that's on Cage Match. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff missing from their early time because I think at least a couple of the shows I saw them in ECW aren't on Cage Match or Wrestling Data because that came up when when he passed away. Because I was trying to, I couldn't figure out if it was a false memory or not that I saw them wrestle at their high school in a tag match for MCW, like where the vice principal was like it. It was like a six man or the vice principal was like their manager or their football coach or whatever. Right. One of the, one of those deals, but like none of the regular places had records. And I talked to Jeff Amdor and he's like, Oh yeah, it was this and this and this. Cause yeah, we were both there. So he confirmed that it did happen that I wasn't just misremembering it. This is their earliest match on wrestling date at least though. Yes. So like I said, very early in their career. I mean, it's, before the Haas Brothers feud, so I gotta think this is in maybe their first half dozen matches, if that. Yes. Well, <laughs> and who they're wrestling against? I mean, you know, it's gonna be all stick mainly. So that's one good thing for them. And I probably would have been at this show had I not been in California and Mexico this week. So. Well, there you go. All right, now let's get to the true crime portion of the show. Oh, boy. Jim Cornette has warrants out for his arrest on charges of aggravated assault and disorderly conduct stemming from an incident that took place on July 21st in Knoxville. Cornette has had a long-standing hatred for Terry Landell, a Knoxville promoter, based on warring over that area in the day of Spooky Mountain Wrestling, and recently nixed a work promotion versus promotion feud angle with Landell agreed to with K-Down Showtown promoter Ron Fuller, because Cornette was able to supply Fuller with the vote on talent, which ended up having the best matches on most of his Friday night shows. The incident apparently started with Cornette, who was in town scheduled to work for Fuller, found out Landell was running a free show down the street in competition. Cornette drove over to Landell's show. Exactly what happened at this point is in question, although there were many witnesses. One report said Cornette was in his car yelling at Landell, who was standing there with a security guard, and the guy who runs the merch table, and Landell sprayed pepper spray at Cornette. From all accounts, Cornette then went for a a baseball bat. (laughs) And while the other two men struggled with him, during the fight, Cornette apparently hit one of the men, identifying police reports as Mike Lynch, several times with a bat. While this was going on, Cornette's girlfriend, Stacy Goff, sin in Ohio Valley Wrestling, yes, her last name was Goff, (laughs) although not spelled as in G-O-T-H. G-O-F-F. Yes. Well, it was Chase Landell was apparently running away trying to spray her with pepper spray. When she got back in the car with both starting to feel the effects of the pepper spray, Cornette allegedly ran over Lynch, who was treated on the scene, and sped off. Now, the torch has uh, police uh, reports here. Foster Arnett, if that is his real name, of the Knoxville Police Department told the torch, the charges filed alleged that Cornette swung a bat at Mike Lynch, presuming the real name of promoter Terry Landell, and hit him with his car. The sheriff in the city where the incident took place is in charge of executing the warrants. Doyle's sources indicate, indicate Cornette's stand with Doyle is in jeopardy. Since by retaining Cornette, it would appear Doyle condoned his method of avenging a rival promoter. There was local news coverage of the event. As a result of the incident, the major angle plan for the K-Town show that night was ruined. Bob Armstrong returned as a Georgia jawjacker, but Cornette was not there to work the show against him. Landell at the show the next night 
made little mention of the incident other than the claim there were four warrants off of Cornette's arrest and that the local Channel 6 News will have a story on the incident. And also mentioned in 1996, he bought the old Smoky Mountain Ring from Cornette, claiming it was so Cornette would have the money to get out of town. Regarding the counts against Jim Cornette, in regards to the incident with Terry Landell, it is believed he simply won't return to Knoxville, at least until when and if the charges are dropped. Now, as expected, after losing a lose leave town match, Bob Armstrong returned to Knoxville on July 21st under the mask of Georgia Jawjacker. Armstrong spanked Sin, who did appear at the show. Cornette was not there due to the legal issues. When the assassin attacked him to set up the match with the loser at the mask, leave town, and all the OVW wrestlers we borrowed for the building. They tried to put over the assassin was the famous one, Jody Hamilton, but Armstrong probably wrestled a million times since the late 60s, but it wasn't. Sin did a promo early in the car regarding the incident, claiming that Terry Landell maced her four times. There was extra police security at the show, which was a free show down the street in the parking lot of a muffler shop, as well as a reporter from a local paper covering the show. Fuller announced besides Jawjack and Assassin, they would have a 12-man tournament to create a USA Heavyweight Champion, the singles belt used in the 80s when Ron ran the territory's USA Wrestling, and that Terry Gordy and Bill Dundee would be brought in. At this point, Ron Fuller is only planning to run on five more Friday night shows before closing up shop. Bix? Yes? This is the part of the show where I go, Bix? <laughs> I'm not trying to start shit, but um, in his words, as I believe he said once, he was trying to quote-unquote kill the motherfucker. Well, I mean, it's Jimmy. How does he get resolved? <laughs> I don't know. I'd just like to remind everyone, by the way, that Chris picks the week and the notes and everything on the main show. Oh, I didn't pick this one. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Chris does the notes. Well, it's going to be in there. I know. That's a major story in newsletters. I know. I'm just saying. I just want everyone to know I'm not trying to start shit. But it feels like there's something missing here, though. You know what my biggest question is? Mm. What? Why is Bob working as the Georgia Jawjacker and not as the Bullet? <laughs> because it was so obvious who who the Bullet was. That well, it, would was be, it wouldn't be as obvious as who the Georgia Jawjacker was. <laughs> no, it would be less obvious than the guy nicknamed the Bullet coming back as the Masked Bullet than it would be if the guy who's finished was the Georgia Jawjacker came back as the Georgia Jawjacker. Which he had done Georgia Jawjacker years and years ago. That was the original. What? I was wondering if he was the Georgia Jawjacker in Southeastern. He sure was. Volume one. So He was Georgia Jawjacker in both versions of Southeastern, North and South. It would have also been funnier if instead of the assassin, uh, the fake assassin, it was a fake flame. And then <laughs> well, he that would have made more sense. <laughs> and, then he and then that flame could have been packing a gun to shoot it the Georgia Jawjacker based on that great angle from Continental. Well, I mean, Bob Armstrong versus Flame was one of the first feuds. I mean, that Knoxville would have gotten from Continental, right? Uh, no. When, wait, when did they start in Knoxville? L- late 85. Flame's gone by then. I thought, yeah, the, that, that, back. that, that flame angle is like the second or third episode of Continental TV. But yeah, no, the but, uh, El Fuego thing is in like June. El Fuego's in 86. That's what I'm talking about. But they, no, they've already been there. I thought they they've started been there for, more like the spring. 
Oh no! And that, that's why, and that that's why the like the Les Thatcher and TV, Friends thing TV starts airing on. late. TV starts airing in late '85. When do they start running shows? Uh, February. Okay. And when was the and when was the Les Thatcher and Company thing? Uh, December and January. Okay. And what was that called? I forgot. I can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, the the Nosfell. Yeah, the first Knoxville Continental show is either late February or early March. That's right around that time. Um, God, what was the name of that promotion with uh, that they did before then? Well, the good thing is Bo will fact check this and let us all know what the answers are anyway. It was so- – oh, was it Southern All-Star? Was the Southern All-Star. That's right. Southern All-Star. Yes, and uh, I'm getting you to Knoxville in a second here. I'm pulling yeah. this file. I mean, obviously, we're not going to play uh, Cornette on his podcast talking about Terry Lantel, but it's on YouTube if people want to. Yeah, if you want to hear it, here is uh, March 21st is the earliest I have. Um, that was a mass versus mass match with Bull against Wrestling 2. Dutch gives his side of it, too, on his podcast. Which nobody nobody lost that match. Well, they lost it, but they never a mass. So there you go. <sighs> they ran that match around the horn. Never had a and never had the winner. I mean, never had nobody take a mask off. How about that, huh? All right. Let's go to the SoCal. Rep Pro ran uh, July twenty first Anaheim. Buddy George over Gaginero. Nosawa over Disco Machine. Mr. Excitement over Kikuzawa, Kikutaro. Rising Sun and Super Dragon over Excalibur and Ultrataro Jr., our dear friend. A handicap match, Buddy George, Gaginero, and Rising Sun over Matt Sinister and No Sour, Mr. Excitement. Hmm. So there you go. People working twice. Interesting show. This is presumably at the marketplace if it's in Anaheim. It didn't have a venue, but I guess. Now, XPW ran the sports arena on July 22nd. Uh, in Los Angeles, Jordan estimated 1,100 fans, roughly double what they've been averaging. But it was also mostly papered for the Sabu Terry Funk match. They handed out tons of free passes for the tapings and were totally paranoid about ECW fans in attendance. One fan said he was specifically told coming in that any pro ECW chance would get him ejected. <laughs> XPW himself wrote all sorts of anti ECW and Paul Heyman signs, most of them crude, and encouraged people to take them. Give the impression they were more concerned with blasting Paul Heyman than put on a wrestling show. Have you met Rod Black? Jesus, it's very it's very WCW in that way. I mean, it's very Rod Black too. But yeah, Rod Black, Vince Russo, they have a lot of mindsets in common. Um, I mean, they're both fa- like Italian beardos. Yes, four fans chanted ECW were asked to leave early on. Owner Rob Black cut a promo on Paul Heyman, claiming they're going to sue ECW for assault, and went on for ten minutes. The cameraman during crowd shots specifically told the fans to chant "ECW sucks." The storyline for the main event was Rob Black was bringing in Terry Funk for WCW to get his Sabu. Rob tried to get Funk to participate in the anti-ECW festivities, but he just stared across the ring and looked like he'd rather be somewhere else. And they had their usual match. So reports we got from people who got freebies said the show was terrible, including some non-ECW fans who felt that instead of putting on a good show, they're intending the crowd. They felt used by promotion, trying to use the crowd to be their Hollywood extras. 
Supreme versus the Messiah was praised for trying hard, risking maiming themselves with thumbtacks, light bulbs, bed and nails, barbed wire, anyone to bump on whether like a circus not a barbed wire. They're moving their next big show from the sports arena to the much smaller Shrine Expo Hall. Not a good sign. All right, here's the results. Pogo to Clown over Nassawa. Big Rock, Chronic, and Carlito Montana over La Familia de Tijuana. Halloween, de Mercedes and Rey Mysterio. Chaos, when I quit match over Steve Rizzono. Johnny Webb won a three-way over Homeless Jimmy and John Cronus. No rope barbed wire, better light bulb, better nails, better thumbtacks, death match for the king of the death match title, Supreme retained over the Messiah. Lose leaves hound match, Kid Chaos beat Tracy Smothers. And then Sabu retaining the SPW heavyweight title being Terry Funk. Speaking of booking your shows for 2% and not 98%. Oh, absolutely. That's why I said there's a lot in common here with these mentalities. And this emotion, Rob Black and Vince Russo, very similar type people in ways. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Rob Black, though, and this continues to a degree to this day, though, it seems like his mentality, for whatever reason, was always, I am going to go to war. Here's somewhere I want to go. I'm going to be the only game in town. I mean, he didn't do that in L.A., I guess, because it was a different scale. But, like, you know, he goes to well, Philly. Well, there's nobody that with, really. I mean, there, there, there was nobody. He's competing with ECW, but he's based out of Los Angeles. Right. And then once he moves, you know, most of the shows to Philly, he's competing dead, with man. all the Philly indies. Yeah. He's competing, yeah. ECW's dead, so he's competing with all the Philadelphia groups. Well, except for Heritage. ECW mainly. Well, it's ECW and the heritage became uh, XPW developmental for five seconds, but that's his thing. He's always just declaring war. And you know, for people who don't know, this is the immediate aftermath of Heatwave, which was right before our week, right? Yes, because saw some of the anniversary stuff. You know, right we before did. We we, well, we did that. We did that week. But that's when uh, Rob Black bought a, bought a bunch of front row seats. I think on hard cam. And tried to make a scene, and it led to a big fight that spilled in the parking lot. Yes. Um, one thing I do wonder, though, is, like, it's an interesting what if, because I don't think it's something any of us have ever really considered before. If he doesn't have his legal troubles with the porn company, does XPW just stick around indefinitely? It's Probably. back now. It doesn't go away when it does. And it's, you know, it's, look, Rob Black is who he is. Even if you don't exactly like the kind of things he was putting out, it's absolute bullshit that he was brought up on federal obscenity charges. Yeah. You know, at the peak of, you know, John Ashcroft bullshit. You know, there are th- whatever you want to say about him, that's not what he should have been financially ruined over. Now, yeah, presumably hiring someone to uh, cut Messiah's thumb and potentially other appendages off, that's a different story. Yes. But, uh, what a wild promotion this was. Good Lord of mercy. And I think that was the goal. I mean, that was, of course, that was the goal. That was where Rob Black's goal was, is to be, you know, in your face, to be, you know, 
hardcore extreme in a different way. Yeah, so, well, because he wanted to get involved with ECW, and Paul said no. So he's like, okay, I'm the guy who does the extreme porn, so I'm going to do even more extreme wrestling. Exactly, yeah. Death matches and porn stars and John Wayne Gacy-inspired wrestlers and all that. Yeah, what a mess. And now let's close with everyone's favorite world championship wrestler. The country of Australia, apparently a wrestling star, banged out amazing business when tickets went on sale for an October tour of world championship wrestling, which includes four television shoots. On July 21st, the first show that went on sale, a Nitro taping in Melbourne on October 13th sold out the Rod Laver Arena. Capacity for Nitro taping would be probably close to 10000 with tickets priced from 300 Australian down to 65 Sold out in less than three hours. Reports of a 90-minute sellout are exaggerated, but only slightly. No figures were available at press time because the majority of the seats were priced at $150 to gain even in U.S. dollars. The Australian dollar is worth 58 cents U.S. They closed in on the magic 1 million mark that no WCW event in history has topped. Probably fall closer to 900000 but we have been given breakdowns. Three WCW shows in history all during the hot period during the six-month period of July 98 and January 99, topping $900,000 mark, record being January 4th, 1999 in Georgia Dome, which did a $930,000 gate, whereas it turned out Kevin Nash laid down Paul Cook with the dreaded one-finger blow. Can you imagine the next time in that same building they had to paper like crazy? And since they've had to move to Phillips Arena, where they have to heavily paper as well? There's a lesson to be learned from all this, but maybe it's finally been learned. If if not, that's a broken record at this point. It is. So WCW was 20 years ahead of its time by running in a tennis arena. It's not a tennis arena. It's just named after a guy that played tennis. <laughs> well, that's not where they play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's not where they play. That's not where they play the Australian Open. Uh, don't think so. It's not an outdoor building. Well, it doesn't have to be outdoors. Well, let's see. I'm looking at it now. Uh, let's see. Is it a tennis stadium? It is. You're right, Mark. Thank you. I thought so. Yeah, you're right. It's it's a it's it's a uh, it has a roof. Well, so there so you go. You are now, so. Yeah, you're correct. Good. It's a good call. Good call. I did not know that or remember it. It's possible it may not have had an arena. Or a roof. No, it did. It was. 19, I mean, they taped TV. Okay. Yeah, it was in. Yeah. No, no. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if it's retractable or anything, but it's indoors. It has to be retractable because they play out. I mean, they'll show an opens played in sunlight. Okay. <laughs> so it's a retractable roof. All right. The Australian tour will be a gigantic moneymaker. Nitro will be taped on October seventh, like Friday night, in Brisbane for the next Monday, while Thunder will be taped on October 9th for two days later. For the Australian market, the ticket prices are amazing. That's the biggest regular season Australian rules football game, which took place July 21st and sold out the 95,000-seat cricket ground in Melbourne grows quite a bit under 1.5 million Australian. 95,000 seats and just under 1.5 million. That's some low prices for tickets there. There was some trepidation going in that the local promoters, the Paul Dainty organization. Oh, Paul Dainty sounds like it would be like a homophobic <laughs> Australian slur. <laughs> Paul Dainty. You think oh, like, oh he's, he's an old Paul Dainty over there. <laughs> <laughs> There's old Paul Dainty over there. 
Oh, where? Friends with uh, James E. James E. Barnett. Yeah, had priced out the shows that the price shows out of the market. The group paid WCW a flat 1.5 million fee for the five days, plus had to cover expenses for all major stars coming abroad for a week. And October 7th, I show taping at Brisbane for two days later. October 9th, Thunder taping in Sydney first, airing two days later. Which also a first day sale of a 10,000 seat building. House show on October 11th in Perth, which had the weakest advance of the shows, and a double shot in Melbourne on 13th and 14th, which sold out about 4,000 tickets at last word for Nitro and Thunder, respectively. So local promoters made the call to charge prices well above what anyone would have thought possible to get, particularly as WCW television in Australia isn't strong. It's a cable show, but cable's in less than 1 million homes total nationwide, so it's barely a blip along with a strong show. A 55-minute edited version of Nitro with C-Team commentary over dubs airing Monday nights on a network station, which airs after midnight. It was a good call, at least for the first-time effort. Because it's clear the country, which has a rich pro wrestling heritage, was star for major league promotion after roughly a full decade since the last WF tour. Apparently, the tour used the former WF for some years back, headlined by Dennis Rodman, who was supposedly in Australia a few days earlier in the week and overslept his promotional appearance by partying too strong the previous night, which starts on July 28th, didn't fit the wrestling fans' bill of major league pro wrestling. However, charging those kinds of prices, it becomes imperative the company delivers super shows or they'll kill the market in one fell swoop. Hmm. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. Australia had a major pro wrestling history for most of the last century, and many of its biggest name Americans have toured the country. Its peak period was in the late 60s under Jim Barnett, which was the original World Championship Wrestling promotion. By the late 70s, after Barnett returned to the United States, it had faded down and never came close to recovering. Although WF did some good business in what we consider C-team type tours during their first boom period. Originally, Australian promoters had only a uh, October 13th date for Melbourne, a house show at the 54,000 seat Colonial Stadium. It was moved indoors where WCW wanted to tape two more TV shows on the tour. Tony Schiavone and Mark Madden and Mike Tenet will announce all four shows during the tour. And, you know, these all drew well and on theory a success, but before we talk about this further, let's go to the October 23rd Figure Four Weekly. The day before the WCW tour of Australia began, Australia began uh, Sharon Sadello and the Australian promoter Paul Dainty got into a huge Dainty. argument about the seating configuration in the arenas and the number of seats being blocked by the production equipment. According to one source, well, one source, but whatever, Sadello and Diana Myers screwed up and signed a contract which required WCW to buy back all of the unused seats on the tour. Because four shows were being taped for TV, many of the seats were unusable because they were blocked by production equipment. Apparently, WCW was forced to buy back these seats even though... There was no way they could have been sold to fans. The source claims that due to the buyback, WCW ended up losing $400,000 on a tour that would have otherwise been profitable for the company. We'll try to follow up on this in next week's issue. WC, everybody. How? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> what do you mean, how? It's, it's WCW, WCW I everybody. Know, <laughs> this is what happens. I am curious to see if there was a follow-up in the next week's issue. This is what happens. It's Diana Myers and Sharon Sadella. What do you expect? There has to be a standard kind of contract for that kind of thing to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, again. (laughs) World Championship Wrestling. And, well, we'll hear more about Diana Myers on uh, this month's Patreon show, too. Oh, yes, we sure will. But... Yes, this is what WCW does, so not surprised. 
But yes, but I mean, Australia was starved. And I mean, think about the correlation. This is World Championship Wrestling. The Australian promotion that was so famous was World Championship Wrestling. And it's Jim Barnett's. I mean, it's where Jim Barnett is working at the time. Yeah, he's still there. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's like the the spiritual promotion here, you know? Yeah. If you think about it. Yes, indie talent scout Jim Barnett. I'm sure he was more of a talent scout than Jim Neinhart was. Well, no, he was actually going to indie shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was how he became friends with Brian Alvarez and ended up calling him the grandson I never had. <laughs> I was going to say, what kind of talent was Jimsy scouting for at these shows? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual, spiritual uh, promotion for WCW, so, of course. Yeah. I wonder how many wild side and NWA worldwide shows he went to in that era. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he attended a few. I'm sure he attended a few of uh, Burt shows as well. All right, WCW adjusted their house show scheduled by canceling dates on October 2nd, the Cow Palace, and October 3rd, in the Sports Arena in Long Beach. With the fear that run the Cow Palace with a 4.30 p.m. start time for Nitro, if the product stays cold, could be scary. Brad Siegel made the decision at the Australia tour, and he wanted everyone to get a week off, which is when the 12 or 13 shows were made TV tapings. Nitro and Thunder tapings in Melbourne were originally set for the 16th or 17th in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Fargo, North Dakota. Those cities have been moved up to October 2nd and 3rd. St. Paul's show comes one day after ECW's pay-per-view in the same city. ECW will be in the smaller 7,000-seat Roy Wiggins Auditorium. In the first pro wrestling show in the new state-of-the-art home of the Minnesota North Stars. The XL Energy Arena, which that's wrong. Because no, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, the, it's the wild. Yes, yeah, Minnesota Wild. Um, which, because the new arena in, big, in the central as opposed to Pacific time zones, it's be much easier building the rhyme. The entire crew will have off from the second Melbourne show for nine days till Nitro's taping on October 3rd at Little Rock. Well, at least Brad Siegel had the heart to give him time off from Australia. And made sense so, of it and was like, well, let's tape some extra TV and. That way we can give everyone a week off and not miss anything. Yes. Sid Vicious represented W7 in the promotional tour and was considered a success. The media liked it because he didn't try to pretend pro wrestlers to shoot. It was the usual turnoff for the media when it comes to dealing with pro, with pro wrestlers. <laughs> well, if he did try to treat the shoot, they weren't going to say nothing to him. I only hope there were like promotional pictures of like Sid with a kangaroo, Sid holding a koala bear. <laughs> All the other Australian stereotypes. I haven't seen anything of of, of this whole deal, so I, I'm I don't know. Okay, and by the way, I did just check. The Observer did also have a thing about the ticket uh, conflict, although he didn't get into as much detail as Brian B said. Uh, WCW got a flat fee of one and a half million, although there were last minute negotiations for the tour got underway last week with controversy because of how many seats were being bucked off. For TV and that not and not being able to see those seats that cut cut greatly into the profitability for the show for Paul Dainty, the Australian promoter. Paul so Dainty, had that too, just not written the same. What but a name! You don't want to mess around, Paul Dainty. I tell you that he's a real ruffian. One stand. Yeah, there's cousin Bob Foppish. Bob Foppish. 
All right, um, let's move on now as we go to television. Well, not in television. We missed, we have one more thing. As things stand, the company still projecting losses between would be around sixty million dollars this year. If the losses are only thirty million, which would really be difficult to, to impossible to get to, it'd be considered a huge success. Yeah, when you lose thirty million dollars, it's a success. Considering what you were projected to lose. Oh my god, this company. God. It is amazing they lasted as long as they did. Yeah. All right, let's go to Thunder. Highlights from Thunder on the 19th. It was a Kevin Nash interview, which was positively brilliant. It was a new work deal. Well, hold on. All right, so... All right, I'm um, looking at the, the full show rundown, and the Nash interview is later in the show. So... I guess I will, uh, let's see how, okay. So, okay. So Dave starts with, with, with the Nash interview first when it's at the end of the show. So we'll just go ahead and, I guess go ahead and talk about it because it, it goes to the beginning later. Um, uh, we're machine because WCB spends far too much time booking for the 2% than the other 90%. Nash Barry Goldberg for getting the big head. They're paying his dues. Basically saying the company gave him everything, which only serves a weekend Goldberg to the average fan. Talking about his contract expiration date and ending with Scott Hudson doing the new work idea that they have another problem with the finish. And Nash was out there saying he never lost a bar fight in seven years as a bouncer, and he was going over. He even gave Booker T the ultimate backhand of compliment, saying he was happy when they gave him the strap because he'd been with the company so many years. Basically telling everyone watching the show that he was a hand-picked company champion, rewarded simply because he'd been around. As for again, because they had to create a new star, and he was the best candidate they found since they wanted to keep him from Goldberg or Scott Steiner. And the political student members would understand whoever got the title was only there to put Goldberg or Steiner over strong later. Not to mention the complete change of face of WCW in the wake of the racial discrimination lawsuit. As opposed Patreon, to someone. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yeah, we're getting there. As opposed to someone who, in any sense, had earned his spot. Oh my God. Next thing you know on TV, they're all going to say it's a shoot. All the talk about Scott Hall and Brad Siegel seems to make it clear that nearly every bit of info from WCW is an angle. Actually, people in the company still swear Scott Hall isn't coming back, but why would they spend so much TV time building up Scott Hall for no reason? Since everything's work, it may actually be Nash and Russo constantly having his name brought up to create a demand, figuring that by that time, Siegel will have to change his tune. If that works, it speaks of all strange things Brad Siegel sets down for the future. Either that or Brad Siegel's part of the angle. Nash, for his part, was tell the wrestlers since he did the job for Goldberg in the last review, he's been the one who has sacrificed for the company. So he's insisted on winning, which is no doubt another example of the same thing. An idea that's been batted around is for Steen to make a save for Nash under the ski mask, but when he takes the mask off, it's actually Scott Hall. Love the mythology about Hall and Nash being the ones to pop a territory, not Hogan. Not that it wasn't something of a combination of numerous things. Hall and Nash being among the major components, but all the real baby shows were headlined by Hogan. Usually against Ric Flair, Randy Savage, Sting, or Ronnie Piper, or the Ramen shows. But Nash is smart enough to work both sides, and at that point, if there's real competition or if I this up stale, he'll be right place, right time, and be able to command a lot of money. Or if not, he'll bluff that being the case and get huge money given WCW, you know he'll be 43 by then. The bottom line in this business is that it's not how you conform or even what you can draw or have drawn, but how you can manipulate yourself and convince the people what you have done, even if you haven't, and blame others when things go bad. Well, we talked about it, Bix. I guess we need to go ahead and play it. So, all right. The Nash interview is... Uh, I mean, I have it up. 
I have a cue. Okay, okay, so you found it. Okay, well, let's go to it then. Are we going to play the whole thing? Or? I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how long it is. So At least it's, it appears to be several minutes, but let's see. Best Kevin Nash. He, he's with Scott Hudson, and they're in some type of restaurant. Everything that's gone down has been tough for you emotionally and physically, but the toughest had to be losing the match to Goldberg and losing Scott Hall's career in World Championship Wrestling. Well, I mean... If you watch the tape back, it's, it's clear that there's interference. If uh, if Scott Hall's uh, contract was really, if they wanted Scott Hall back, they would they would put the match in a cage and say, you know, no interference. Let's have it for all the right reasons. But this company had no intentions of bringing Scott Hall back. Uh, management, Brad Siegel, TBS, TNT, and anybody else that has a, a say so, including Goldberg, didn't want Scott Hall back. So Scott Hall wasn't coming back whether I won or lost. Well, those are some strong comments, but. Let's assume they're correct, and I'm not doubting you, Kevin, but if they are correct, you have to understand what's going through the mindset of, of Brad Siegel and, and the muckety-mucks at TBS. Scott Hall is muckety a bit mucks. of a loose cannon. He's got a reputation and well-deserved. Yeah, so is Val Kilmer, he's a great actor. The thing is that, you know, the only time this, this place has been popped since Ted Turner's owned it is when, when Hall and Nash came from New York and and the Outsiders uh, came on the scene here. Uh, Hogan was here, Flair was here, Sting was here, Luger was here. Everybody everybody that's currently here right now that's a star was, Hall and Nash was here before Scott Hall and Kevin Nash came. So the only the, the ingredient that popped the territory was the outsiders. And you've got half that equation sitting at home with a chance maybe to make the magic happen again, and they're not doing it. I, that's What you've got is people that don't know the wrestling business running the wrestling business. Well, with all due respect, Scott Hall's injury situation has been rather chronic, to coin a phrase, over the last six to eight months, maybe over the last four to five years, and, and currently he's not 100% from what we hear. Uh, a chronic injury, I mean, yeah, is he injured occasionally? Yeah, does he work injured more than most of these guys? Yeah, is he injured right now? Absolutely not. He's at 100%. He's <laughs> that's funny. On Monday. He's 100%. He's now, 100%. That, that flies in the face of what we heard, that it's the shoulder, the knee, the back, and everything else that, that, that's injured on Scott Hall. And who's that, who's that coming from? People that are trying to cover their own tails that don't want Scott Hall back. He's not injured, and that's that. What what do you attribute that to? Why don't they want him back? We, we know what, what the Internet says. We know what the locker room rumors are. Kevin Nash, tell me why Brad well, you know, one of the things that, One of the things I always hear is he's a locker room cancer, you know. But, you know, I guess you're a cancer in this business if you go up to somebody and tell them the truth to their face. If they have a horrible match and you go, how's my match? And the, and the guy says, it was brutal. You should have had it in an iron lung. Then that guy's a cancer. You know, Scott's, Scott's what he, he is what he is. He's a, he's a real human being. If you ask him a question, he tells you exactly how he feels. If it hurts your feelings, then don't ask him a question. Scott Hall's gone from World Championship Wrestling. How much longer will Kevin Nash stay with World Championship Wrestling? Well, uh, I've got 17 months left in my contract, and I honor my contract. So I've got 17 months. I'll be here for 17 months after that. Who knows? Free agency to the highest bidder? Not to the highest bidder. Uh, it won't be at this point in my career. It won't be for money anymore. I've got enough money to, to live happily ever after. So now it's going to be for fun, and uh, I have I have a real good time with Scott Hall. So he, they're not going to let him play in the sandbox here, and somebody else lets him play in the sandbox. I guess I'll have to go to that sandbox and play with my buddy again. Bill Goldberg, there's a history between you and Bill Goldberg that dates back to his first World Championship reign back at Starcade 1998. 
Now, apparently, this situation has gotten way beyond what happens inside the ring or in front of the cameras with you and Goldberg. The situation with Goldberg is these, that the company let him have too much power too, too soon. And it's like giving a five-year-old kid a, a, a Beretta automatic with no safety. He doesn't know how to use the gun. So it, it's a bad situation. My job, I, the way I look at it, is that, that I have to disarm this guy. So I have to do whatever I have to do, either, either politically in the ring, whatever I have to do, I have to make sure this guy's kept in check. He was a good guy at one time. He's not anymore. Hasn't paid his dues. <laughs> Nine years from now, he probably won't have paid his dues. I mean, you pay your dues when you walk in the door, you know. He hasn't had to pay him from day one, so who's going who's, you know, to hold him accountable? He doesn't like the business. You know, he thinks he's going to be an actor or something, and it just... Well, we know sometimes that, that what we necessarily see on television isn't what we get, but you really don't care for Bill Goldberg, the man, do you? No, he's changed. I mean, he's changed, he's changed dramatically. He, he walked in the door, humble bumble, helped me out, and, and guys like Scott Hall, who took him under the wing, are guys now that he's trying to do whatever he can politically to, to, to keep out of the company. Uh, anybody that's uh, a threat to him and exposing him or whatever, it, it's, it, he's got to be kept at, at, at arm's length. And uh, like I said, Scott says it how it is, and that's a guy he doesn't want around. The world heavyweight champion is Booker T. Tell me a little bit about your respect level for our current world champion. I like Booker. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a re he's a real deal. Uh, and he has paid his dues, unlike Goldberg. Yeah, Booker has paid his dues, and it's it's good to see guys like Booker make it. It's good. It's good. when he got like when they put the strap on him uh, in Daytona Beach. I, I when I watched the screen from the locker room, I thought to myself, even though I had had a bad night, I looked at it and I said, you know. Because I remember when I got the strap the first time, and, and, and no matter what you say, man, there's not a feeling like that. And I thought, you know, he's put in probably 10, 12 years, and tonight he's at the top, and it's a good feeling. I was happy for him. And he earned it. He earned that spot. Yeah. Kevin, I'd be remiss, remiss if I didn't ask you this question. Internet, full of rumors. The hotlines, the dirt sheets, full of rumors. Well, the, number one, let me just make a, make a point known about the Internet. All the Internet does for people like me is invade my privacy. But go ahead. Fair enough. Point well taken. However, the rumors are rampant that come August 13th at New Blood Rising on pay-per-view, there's a three-way dance. There won't be no dance. But oh, no. Three-way match. Three-way brawl. Three-way massacre. Kevin Nash, Goldberg, and Scott. Three-way massacre not to be confused with a four-turnbuckle massacre. <laughs> of the uh, Ready to Rumble fame. Yes. Steiner, the winner to get a world title shot at Fall Brawl on pay-per-view in September. To put it delicately, there apparently is some problem with who's going to come out on top in that match. And I guess the question is, is that going to be your final match? Oh, God damn it. <laughs> this is some segment. can only imagine how the Shenanamaki Post would have covered this. <laughs> Just keep it going. <laughs> if things really don't go your way. Well, number one, things are going to go my way. I mean, it, it, no matter what this, you know, no matter how it's booked, laid out, argued, lobbied, I'm not going to lobby for a finish on this one. I'm just going to go out there. I bounced for seven years before I got in this business, and I never got my ass kicked once. And I don't see it happening. 
I'm bigger than both those guys. I'm definitely meaner than both those guys. <laughs> what, can we, what can we expect at New Blood Rising, then? I'm going to go over, because I said so. And I'm, and I'm not going to cry about it like the rest of them. I'm going to go over. It's my time to go over. It's my time period. You know, I got 17 months left here. I was one of the few guys that, that I gave my blood for this place. It's time for me to get mine, and then I'll go off in the sunset, but I'm getting mine. That comes up August 13th at New Blood Rising in the three-way dance. You're, you're going over? I'm going over. Like Bre I'm going to do the Bret Hart. I guarantee I'm going to win. <laughs> that uh, that was fascinating. It's fascinating to, to see that type of segment on a wrestling television show. You know, I mean, it's full of a lot of stuff that was true and stuff that was going on. But as Dave said, it's the new work. He's telling the truth about his contract line. He's telling the truth about a lot. <laughs> that thing. <laughs> But just the, the lingo and the verbiage, I mean, you can see why, even though there's a lot of bad stuff going on, that the internet fans were into 2000 WCW because it catered to them. But they weren't the, that much. Not all of them, let me tell you. A lot of them were. I'm, I'm so happy I had stopped watching it by this point. I like, I will get to Nitro and how bad Nitro is, but oh, I just want to throw something at my at my monitor. I mean, the way it's just the, this one, okay. It's just the way they they the way they were doing their stuff like that 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 there that is totally for people that are following on the internet. But it's the thing though. It makes it's not no about making sense. money. No, well, no. Yeah, it's not about making money at all. But it makes no sense. It's like what? Okay, the TV show you're watching is now suddenly fake. But just I mean, for this the, part, I mean it, that's just the way that's the way it is. But that's that's the type of stuff that internet, internet fans at the time ate up, because I mean ECW would buff it to the internet, but nothing like this. No, they wouldn't do this kind of thing. And it, and the best way I can put it is, maybe you could get away with something like this if you tried to do like a pro wrestling version of its Gary Shandling show. Like, a weird, self-aware, like, not parody, but you get where I'm going with this. But no one's done that. So, until you do something like this, like that, it makes no sense to do this whole, oh, is there a planned finish, brother? Storyline. But you, you could tell that this, I mean, this was something that definitely appealed to a, a certain fan base. Scott Hudson being in that segment definitely is <laughs> initially part of it, too. You know, because, like, like you mentioned the Shinomaki Post. You know, this would be something that would be talked about in that and, 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 the, and stuff. I mean, it's just... And is, it, is, is Hudson but, supposed to just be a straight-down-the-line neutral yes announcer because it seems like he's favoring that yeah like he, well, he took a couple of snipes at goldberg too goldberg's heel here see again we were talking about this before we started that one of my problems when i was watching this because i watched it without when i watched nitro i wouldn't watch it with the sound on and i honestly 
because since I didn't watch it the first time, I'm watching it. I honestly could not remember who was heel and who was uh, face at the time. It's sort of like what we talked about with the WWF. You just if you randomly watch an episode of wrestling television this time period, there's no guarantee you know who is what and without context. You don't yeah. automatically know. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically what it is. Is that Goldberg is now he's new blood, Goldberg. So, yeah, I mean, I also love nine-year vet Kevin Nash saying that in nine years Goldberg still won't have paid his dues. It's like you know, Kev, you've been around for a while, but it's not like you're not Corsica Joe or something, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but again, back to what I was about the booking structure. Right now. I mean, this is they this regime from the beginning of Russo being there. I mean, he immediately aligned up with Bob Ryder and Jeremy Borash, and and all the WCW Live stuff, OneWrestling.com. I mean, that is a heavy part of the wrestling internet at that time, and WCW was like their I almost said their promotion, but that's what they, that's the people they were trying to cater to and all the stuff. WCW live was the, the audio show was like watching the TV show, you know? And cause I used to listen to all those shows and they definitely catered to their fan base. Problem was they killed off everything else. I mean, <laughs> the, the fans that didn't care for this type of shit just quit watching. Well, it's like, that's you- the problem. If you book for two percent and not ninety-eight percent, is it any wonder that you're losing thirty yeah, to sixty million dollars? You sacrificed. They sacrificed to do that. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. They sacrificed the the broad fan base to do these things for the internet fan base. And that's the thing that any type of rest promotion today needs to think about as well, is if you're booking too much towards a certain section of people you're totally losing the other the other part it just depends on how much disposable income the minority has and is willing to spend on your product and if that makes up how much you're losing from the average person not spending on it it's probably not it's probably still not going to have you come out ahead but it's i think nowadays you're probably Catering to the dedicated fan with disposable income is probably a smarter move than in 2000. Yeah, but you also have to consider, you know, are you trying to go for a broader fan base? Or are you trying just to keep your hardcores happy? See, that's the other thing, too. But WCW at this time was was feeding a different fan base than any wrestling had ever done. You know, up at this point in time, and just the way they talked on television, all that stuff you heard, all that insider lingo going over, you know, booking, all that stuff. I mean, that's what they were at this time. It's uh, it was something to watch in real time, absolutely. I just hope that Kevin Nash and his IU baseball cap is going to be one of the show images. <laughs> yeah, Indiana University. Yeah. Uh... 
All right, Thunder overall is pretty entertaining. They gave Mike Sanders a surprise win of a crowbar using Jeff Jarrett's guitar. This led to a show-long angle where Mike Sanders was first set out by Jarrett's guitar, mad at him for gimmick stealing. Then as he recovered, was hit with a weak chair shot by Daphne for screwing a crowbar. And then when he was recovering, there were several segments later, was many on the show, including Jimmy Barron, who Dave misspells his name here, doing the road report, that Canyon used a diamond cutter on. So we're in the Canyon era here. Diamond cuttering, everybody. Last story interview taken almost exactly from the Shane Douglas story in the NWA title interview on ECW years back. But this is putting a Canadian Maple Leaf in Sydney on the U.S. title and declaring himself Canadian champion. Which is also an idea to recreate the Bret Hart deal from 1997, particularly with the baby in Vancouver. Oh, yes. The Canadian champion. Not the U.S. champion. The Canadian champion. And the Saskatchewan Hardcore International title. That's right, yes. Because it's Russo, of Russo. course. Yeah, Russo at its yeah. finest. Yes. Bro, 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 it's an acronym for shit. No, it says he wouldn't call it an acronym. There's no way that Russo knows the word acronym. He probably saves an abbreviation. He saves one of the, one of those words that's made up of other words. But one thing that Dave didn't mention in this whole Lance Storm thing was uh, during the semi, he brought an overweight woman into the ring so he, pick, so he could pick on her. Mike Awesome ran out and attacked Lance until Positively Canyon ran, ran out and attacked Awesome. Buff ran out and saved Awesome. Then we get Jerry hitting Sanders with guitar. Lenny Lane beat the wall in a tables match. Well, Lenny uh, Lane uh, but, had been running around the crowd with his Use Me sign. Yes. Also, we uh, forgot uh, with, the uh, Canadian 100 kilos and under title. Too. Yes. But... Um, it came out after the match that Wall lost on purpose for his buddy since Lenny needed to win and get his job back. And the oh, cat fired Wall. The, match, brother. the cat fired him because he threw the match. And obviously you can't have anything like that in wrestling. <laughs> All right. Um, they did set up a closure of a match in the pay-per-view with Miss Hancock and Major Guns off a Lieutenant Loco Cruiserweight title defense over David Flair, where Loco won. The now returning the wrestling last of Lieutenant Loco. Um, David now wrestles an expensive No, clothes. Lieutenant Loco's Chavo. That's right, Chavo's. Last right, right. is Corporal Cajun. That's it. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Uh, David now wrestles an expensive clothes. Major Guns went to do mouth-to-mouth and like she was going to enjoy it when Miss Hancock did the attack to set up their angle. Yes, David Flair is in a uh, shirt and tie here. Like He's not dressed up like he used to be. Tank Abbott <laughs> uh, then faced a great Muda. Destroyed him and left the 90 seconds. Sure. With a KO punch at the, at the Muda sprayed the mist at the cat. Wonder if WCW put Nash or Goldberg to Steiner or Steiner to Japan and New Japan asking them to do a job for Kazuki Fujita in 90 seconds. How did WCW imagine would react and how badly any of those wrestlers would cry about it? It was too obvious how Muda fell since he got right back up immediately after the pin. <laughs> well, Bix, patreon.com slash 20 sheets and you'll hear how Vince Russo, what he thinks about booking Japanese wrestlers. Yep. Oh, I found the canyon cutter on uh, Mike Sanders. All right. Tonight, an upset. Unbelievable what the man. Oh, what? Wait, it's Canyon! Oh! Oh, I can't believe that! Good night. (laughs) Uh, Corona destroyed uh, 
the filthy animals, Rey Mysterio Jr., Juventus Guerrero, and Disco, with Disco getting his net messed up from Kronos' finisher. That makes two guys they've almost killed with it. Total squash, but Conan's commentary was so good that he not only made Bobby Heenan seem interesting, but almost was able to cover for just how much his guys came off like jabronis. As it turned out, Brian Ounce was really upset taking the commentary seriously, which actually was since Russo tells wrestlers to go out and shoot. And other wrestlers who are shot on get upset because they know it's said as a shoot, <laughs> forgetting that this whole business is the work. <laughs> this company. This company. Yes, I remember this. Conan was, uh, he was biting in his commentary for sure. <laughs> um, Shane Douglas and Tori Wilson cut a promo on Kidman. Kidman attacked Shane. D- Shane came back leaving Kidman laying. Uh, Gene Oakland interviewed the artist backstage. She said Paisley wasn't with him because she has issues, which leads to uh, Big Vito beating the artist to retain the hardcore title. Then we have Pacific Canyon and Lance Storm against Mike Awesome and Buff Bagwell entertaining TV match with Canyon painting Awesome using a diamond cutter. He did a very funny segment with Awesome and his large woman talking to Bagwell about bringing her to the ring because he thought about he thought having a hot woman would help him get over. But Bagwell told him she was too hot and leave her in the back. <laughs> Let, let's hear some of this Conan commentary based on okay. uh, what you said. Uh. I'm going to start this off early by saying make yourself useful and leave. Me and Bobby will take over. You like that, Bobby? The Conan and Bobby show. I'm on and here. Tony has to go. Now, you can come back, Tony. It's okay, baby. It's okay, Wonderbread. Can you come back? We may need cokes or coffee or something. Or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, obviously, K-Dog and the filthy... What, what was this grand plan? Was this to make the... Was this to make we're just letting Kronik know it's our time, our day. Look at these two jabronis. They come out straight out of the 80s. Every time they come out, I expect Mr. T, Cindy Lauper, and the cast of fame to follow them out. They're stuck in the 80s. You know, that could happen. You never know. This is a handicap match. Three of the filthy animals. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh. Listen, don't worry about that. We're playing with them. This is Mexican One, strategy. Two. Higher learning stuff. Bobby would figure it out, right, this, Bobby? This is, well, you know, I... I that's just the graphic for new blood rising yes that's distracting (laughs) yeah i didn't remember that ray was one of the ray was what a hillbilly at this point no he's got the devil horns and all i know but he's wearing overalls i'm like crazy gonna team with hillbilly jim and stand for that was uh that was culture at the time wearing overalls yeah i that 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 sound was so distracting with the graphic. It's like you're watching a wrestling match, and then boom! All of a sudden, here's the current affair sound, just dominating. As these men are, as strong as they are. Bobby, Bobby, I know you got to put them over, but let's say the truth: they're physically sound, but you know what? Technically and charismatically deficient. Bottom line, they you know ain't got you're no right. business. You know, you know, you're right. You know, Bobby, I yes, like you. You're right. We need to yeah, we, we need to group up together. You know what I'm saying? Now, rumor has it that the guy without the mustache, Chronic One Two, whatever his name is, he's a lot stronger than the other Chronic. That's Brian Adams and the quickness of Ray Junior is going to have to come into play here. Oh, I just, Ray, oh wow, he is so explosive. 
He is. He is. These are the originators. Even to the Rey Mysterio are the originators of high-flying Lucha Libre wrestling. Everybody else is perpetrating. You know what's good about being quick? You make the other person make a mistake. Exactly. And look at Disco Inferno, the innovator of hip-hop, the new ass to kiss in wrestling. The guy's got charisma oozing all over him. And you know what? We're telling him to burn his disco record. Oh, my goodness. Scrape him up off the mat. But like Conan says, don't worry, they're gonna come around. Again! Strategy, Cranberry, strategy. This is Mexican strategy again. Yeah, because you know what? If we beat him, who's gonna want to see us against him in the pay-per-view? You know what I'm saying, Bobby? You you make sense. You know what You make sense. There will be four teams going at it. It's wild, by the way, just how much 20 years of living in San Diego has changed Conan's speaking voice and accent. Yeah. I love uh, Conan El Barbaro putting over big muscle heads that can't work. <laughs> well, Conan can work. He just chose not to. <laughs> but there's at least a taste of uh, the K-Dog commentary. It's not not his best Thunder commentary in 2000. The best is when he and Big Vito are on commentary together, and uh, it's a Norman Smiley match, and they start talking about the history of the CMLL World Heavyweight title. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It was a lot of bad shit in this promotion, but it was entertaining to me. <laughs> it was entertaining. Yeah, like it's this. They're, they're, if you're going to be bad, be entertaining while you're bad. Right. How, how can you top Conan being like, oh, yeah, Norman Smiley, he was a world champion, world heavyweight champion in Mexico. And then Big Vito all people is like, oh, that was in CMLL, right? But the, the thing is, is that, okay. If you ask me my current, you know, ask me my opinion on this, I'd rather watch 2000 WCW than watch 1999 WF. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it's you more know? entertaining. The bad stuff is more entertaining, even, and there's more weird stuff. Yeah, it's just so out there, but it's entertaining. Now the uh, tougher call, though, is okay. Which would you rather watch, 2000 WCW or 98 WWF? I feel like well, the one I'd rather watch right now is still 2000 WCW. WCW but go I ahead. think I'd rather watch 98 WWF because you still got Austin, the Austin stuff. But that would be a, you know pretty much about it in a lot of ways, though. You know, is is the Austin stuff which. Austin is not there in 99, except for, you know, after a certain part, point of the year, so. No, he's there until November 99. He's there most of the year. It just don't seem that way. No, 2000 you know? is when he's gone for most of the year. Yeah, but it just doesn't seem like he's there, you know, because, in hindsight, because we never really talk about Austin in 99. It's always rock and stuff like that, and Triple H, yeah, and 99. Undertaker. Undertaker. He's just, he just, it doesn't seem like he's. His views aren't as engaging. I get what you're saying, yeah, but that's like. Right. But he's feuding with Jeff Jarrett, right? No. You know, that never a, happens. Well, that was what's supposed to happen. Yes. But that, but he, but he, it's obvious that he is st- kind of starting to, you know, phase down. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, TV main event was Harlem Heat over Jeff Jarrett and Rick Steiner when. T pinned Jerry with inside cradle in five at nineteen, but Jerry hit him with a guitar shot afterwards. No heat in a dull match. 
The original plan was to book as a match where the world title would go to whomever scored the pinfall in the match, which is why it was booked for Booker to score the pin. But just before showtime, the stipulation was dropped, perhaps someone arguing that doing so only cheapened the title. Oh, my God, Chris. Tell everyone just happened while I was skipping ahead here. Uh, was, <laughs> Vita was supposed to DDP the artist through a table, and the table, of course, broke as they were standing on it before anything happened. Yeah, so, I mean, you can tell that table is not going to hold up before he even does anything. No, it's it's, it's one the <laughs> and then as soon as he plants to do the implant DDT, they go through the table. Yeah. Whether or not this aired this way, I have no idea because it's a 2000 Thunder. And as we've learned in the past, a lot of 2000 Thunders have stuff that were edited out of the TBS version. But for whatever reason, the version WWE has has it as it was taped. So yes. It's possible that was edited out on TBS. It wasn't mentioned by anybody so in the newsletters. Yeah. The good Lord of mercy. Thunder, everybody. All right. They did a 2.44 rating. Meanwhile, WCW Blastoff did a 0.64. WCW Blastoff? That's right. They're Saturday morning TV show. Oh, oh this is uh, the replacement for WCW Saturday night slash morning. This is Saturday on TBS? Show, yeah. I think so, yeah. I have no memory of it being called Blastoff. I remember it being called WCW Saturday morning. Dave has his blast off. So, are you sure he's not confusing it with the former WWF blast off on uh, WGN or whatever it was? Uh, just what he calls it. So, okay. it it was a short lived show. But uh, I mean, two point four four is still a decent rating for Thunder. So, yeah. All right, let's move on to Nitro. The Nitro Good Show streak ended on July 24th from, from Cleveland. Lame skits and a lot of bad wrestling. The only thing close to a good match was the opener, where Lance Storm added the hardcore title to his U.S. belt, beating Big Vito in 431, blocking a German suplex turned into a half crab. They worked hard, and the crowd was into the near falls. Highlight was Vito going to pull out a table, and it got stuck under the ring. After four table problems in a row, this has got to be a rib. Before the match, Lance did an interview straight out of the Bret Hart's 97 angle. Well, everything Vince Russo does is right out of a movie or something from the past six years of wrestling. <laughs> yeah, this was this. I mean, I like Lance, but this opening went on forever. Yeah. Including, including them playing the Canadian National Anthem. But, you know, it only went one quarter hour. The, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it just seemed like it was long. But the match is only four minutes, 29 seconds. Mm. So it wasn't a long match. Of course, it's Russo. And it just it just went to the quarter. All right. Uh, so next we get uh, Booker do an angle with Goldberg. Booker only got polite response going in. Goldberg worked hard at being a heel. That's a typical pull-apart brawl. So the cat said they would let the fans phone on the internet for Booker's challenger. It wound up with Sting getting 35%, Goldberg 30 and Vampiro 10%. The rest of the guys are way down the line. Hogan did a great job elevating Billy Kidman since he only got 1%. There are a total of 11,000 votes cast and assistant crashed due to overload. So that may be a very low level of what it would have done. That figure represents equals less than one-third of the 1% of the first-hour viewing audience, which is 4 million viewers before Raw started. New Japan before the Shinyashimoto Naoyagawa match did a similar phone poll. And granted, that TV show peaked with 34 million viewers. 
and they got 465,605 responses by telephone. The company is so concerned with kissing up the internet fans that they missed a golden opportunity to do the same thing and actually make a little bit of money doing the same poll in their 900 line. And making money should be the prime importance to a company whose losses are high, which is what I was trying to say. You know, they, Vince Russo's focus is to make the internet fans happy. Yeah. Or at least WCW internet fans happy. All right, so the full list of candidates was Goldberg, Sting, Kidman, Mike Awesome, Canyon, Storm, Buff, <coughs> excuse me, Shane Douglas, Steve Ray, and Vampiro. Kidman announced it was Tori Wilson's birthday. Uh-oh. And he promised to reveal a videotape of himself and Tori later in the show. Speaking of segments that won't age well in 2023. Which they said they spent, a, they spent the show teasing a sex tape of Kidman with Tori Wilson as a tend to keep the audience from switching. What they delivered, which was nothing, was so lame they were back crying wolf. Even by David Flair's standards, he took one of the most mistimed bumps with a delayed reaction to a major gun slap. That was in a match with Lieutenant Loco and Major Guns against David Flair and Miss Hancock. Wade called it a bad match. <laughs> Lieutenant Jared, Loco. Uh, Lieutenant Loco. Yes, and along with Corporal Cajun and uh, Major Stash, because he refused to be named Private Stash, because he did not want to have the lowest rank in the Misfits <laughs> in Action at Van Hammer. And of course, they served under Captain Hugh G. Erection. Yes. Which do you remember how we got the reveal that uh, Hugh Morris's real yes. name was? Uh, yeah. He was yes. like, I have a confession um, to make. Yeah. I, I, my real name is not this stupid gimmick name, humor, humorous. It's Hugh G. Rection. Yes. And then he became Captain so Rection and eventually General Rection. Yes. The funniest thing about this mixed tag that we're watching is it starts off. Like, you know something's going to happen because Stacy comes out wearing flats, not heels. <laughs> but then eventually, eventually, eventually she's just wrestling in her bare feet because even, like, the flats she was wearing were probably too hard to work in. And Tylee Buck has got, like, six-inch heels on her wrestling boots. Always did. Yeah. All right. Uh, so next we get Jeff Jarrett pissing and moaning. Uh, he wants a title shot. So the cat decided to book him in a handicap match for the tag titles against Chronic. However, when Chronic was supposed to come out, Brian Clark was laid out on the ground with a guitar next to him. Okay, if they had to do that angle, why did they do it with a guy who could have possibly had a decent match? Jarrett may be a good worker, but he couldn't even come close to having a match with Brian Adams, as this had one missed time spot after another. Clark finally came out with a bust-up guitar after Jarrett. They teased him the double choke cell on Jarrett through the announce table, but referee Martin Johnson stopped him. So they put him through the table, and Jarrett ran off. <sighs> after that non-finish, um, in the Mood of Empiro match with Cat as referee, saw everyone. Mood of Empiro, Demon ICP, turn on the Cat, lay him out. Cat made his own comeback at the Mood of Empiro at left and clean house on ICP with some bad-looking kicks. So who is our masked man that's being interviewed by Pamela Paul okay. Shock in the middle of all this? Supposed to be Sting. Pamela Paul Shock interviewed Sting wore a black ski mask. Sting declared he was it is a real Sting. And it was, Wade said. And vowed to remove the mask regardless of what the booking committee thought. I have no memory of this. I just want to see a not necessarily the whole thing, but that is really you under there. You are one of the superstars on the WCW.com poll tonight. And if you win, you will face Booker T. It's one of the questions the whole world is asking. Is that really Sting with yes, that mask? 
Well, I can speak for Cleveland, Ohio tonight on Monday Nitro. This is the real sting. And as far yeah. as you go, Booker T, I hope the fans vote me in because I'm going to take the world title away from you. And oh, yeah, the booking committee, I don't care what you say about this mask. This ridiculous thing is coming off tonight. It's Whoa. coming off! What? Booking and committee. <laughs> and then it turns out it was Jeff Farmer. But that was really Sting talking, though. It'd just be funny if they took it off and actually was Jeff Farmer, not Sting. <laughs> All right, so anyway, my tonight toss to Goldberg. Goldberg said, like, the fans are choosing Booker's opponent because he knew it would be him. He said, the fans would choose someone else. That person ended up in a body bag. All right, so we have all the Sting and the event, the Muda Vampiro ICP shit. Um, so there's that. <laughs> all right. Okay, so they announced uh, they're going to reveal the winner of the internet poll after the break. Pamela interviewed Booker. The announcers won the, the announcers said Sting won the internet poll when Russell Booker led the show. Sting walked out, but Goldberg followed him and attacked him from behind. Booker ran out for the save, which led to the start of their match. Which was Goldberg. Uh, okay, so Goldberg jumped Sting. This is Dave now. He went on a stretcher. Since fans of the house this weekend saw, saw him in a mask, and since he's got out of shape, nobody believed it was Sting. He did interview so everyone could tell it was, and found the mask later in the show. Since he was stretched out, it was another undelivered tease. Goldberg then beat Booker by destroying him, making him juice, and trapping him in an arm bar. Steve Ray threw in the towel, but Goldberg threw the towel out before the ref saw it. Cat came out stopped the match at 241 and awarded to Goldberg, but said he couldn't win the title because there was no pin. The announcer tried to play it up as heroic that Booker then tapped the armbar, which may have meant something if anyone had ever tapped an armbar on WCW telecast in the last 20 years. Hmm. All right. Um, I'm looking. Okay. So... <laughs> Here, I'm, 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 I'm ticking down later in the notes for this because I want to talk about this now. Bill Goldberg suffered a shoulder separation in their match. Delivered a hard spear, but it's popped back in. There was even more skepticism than usual this one since Goldberg's dressing room rep is so bad because he fully doesn't understand the business. But he understands enough the part about a lot of the wrestlers on top being jealous of him and the manager makes a lot of mistakes based on those wrestlers' suggestions to where he's overly cautious about his own career to the point he doesn't want to lose or sell much. Booker's knees a lot worse than being let off stem from the spot where he leapfrogged Goldberg's spear, but Goldberg still clipped him running from a few weeks ago. The first uh, match on 24th was totally botched up. Goldberg was supposed to dominate, but the match was supposed to go considerably longer. As the segment was booked for 10 to 11 minutes, which indicate 8 and 9 in the ring, but it went 241. The finish was supposed to be a lot more dramatic with the ref continually asking Booker if he'd submit, but he kept refusing until finally Steve Ray threw in a towel. So this match was uh, <laughs> something else. But they're going to wrestle again later in the show. <laughs> so let's continue. But Bagwell goes against MI Smooth. But then Canyon's music playing. Canyon never came out. Well, let's take it from here, shall we? Oh, is that where I am? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah just go from here. Okay, because I already skipped past something. Okay, well, Bagwell's in the ring with Judy. Or is that not where you wanted me to be? Well, fans were booing Bubba, who brought his mom out, which is probably why they were booing. Okay. okay. Yeah. You mean tag team champion Judy Bagwell? Former. Chris, get your chicken shit ass down oh. here. <laughs> Good night, nurse. Does she kiss her son with that mouth? Mother, this is TNT. You can't say that. You can yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> you can in 2023, but not in 2000. 
Yeah, the only one who can't say it is Chuck Taylor. <laughs> he can't say the S word. Marcus, I say what I want to say. Chris, you are one son of a bitch. Get your ass down here. If my mom's watching, mom, turn it off. Don't listen to his mom. Don't turn it off. Well, obviously he's not coming, so Buff Daddy wins. Let's play Buff Daddy's music one oh, yeah. more time. Where is Positively Canyon? I, I don't... I, oh, wait, book signing. I bet that's where he's at. That could be it. Yeah. Have I mentioned the book, Positively Canyon? Yeah, and that's not all you've mentioned in this telecast. Oh, Mama! She's going to throw something out. I thought I'd seen it all tonight. But Judy Bagwell doing the buff strut. What's this? What happened? The cameraman has put his camera down. The cameraman the? just wiped out Buff Daddy. That's one tough cameraman. What the? That's no cameraman. Wait a minute. That, that posit- that's positively Kenya. You mean this company pays him so little he has to work as a cameraman too? No. <laughs> it wasn't. It was a. It was a swerve. Up yes. and down goes Kenyon. Can you believe how conniving positive? Well, I guess you can't. Positively Kenyon is. No wonder we keep losing cameramen. He went over the top. Buff Bagwell. Positive, positively Kenyon's back in the ring. Come on. Checking on each mother. Oh, Kenyon Cutter. Kenyon Cutter. Bang. And he still has the fake nose on. Wait a second. He's he's making eyes at Judy Bagwell and not in that way. Well, that's. The- and Jackie Crockett or whoever has his finger over the lens again. I've got to stop. He can't dive. He can't can cut Judy Bagwell. Please, no. And please, if he attempts to. Somebody help her. Seriously, this, this is too much. The it. She's throwing everything she can to get away from Positively Canyon. Well, she called him out. Man, those shoes cost four bucks a pair, and she's throwing them. Oh, this is horrific. Chris, Chris, come on, forget it. Please, let's... This is live TV, and I don't know what's going to happen in the backstage area. The backstage area. Settle down, settle down. Settle down and say... She can't get away from it. No, don't, Chris. We just look at Chris, she has a bad neck. Let her go. This isn't the shiny. This isn't the shiny, for heaven's sakes. This is really frightening. Imagine you're Judy Bagwell. You got a bad neck already. The man's attacked you more than once. What can be going through your mind? What's he doing? He's got her. What's he doing to Judy Bagwell? He's... Good night, Doctor. That's a man's mother, and he's put her in a trunk of a car. Hey, she did swear before. That's so what? That they doesn't just... make it all right. Where are they going? We're looking like uh-huh. Bagwell has hopped into his rental car, and obviously he is in pursuit of Canyon and his mom in the trunk of the car. Billy Kidman. And I love for all this, they like Judy and Canyon have to go back the production truck, past the production truck, and no one does anything to save her. Of course, past security guys. Yeah, who are just standing there? It's amazing. This company. There's uh, Dave's thoughts. Uh, it's stuff like Buff's mom that makes WCW like an amateur hour. They brawled the zero heat. Canyon put Duncan on Buff, chasing Judy, run backwards in that brace. Somehow the elusive and speedy Judy was able to outrun the menacing Canyon until he caught her and threw her into the trunk of a car and drove off. Buff drove off after the break. 
that's like those things where guys are chasing somebody like Abdullah and they have to swerve back and forth so they don't catch him. Oh, man. All right, so Mike Awesome <laughs> beat Shane Douglas in a bad match. Awesome had three overweight women with him. A fast chain ECW. Awesome got the Panther hitting Shane with a rubber dumbbell. Shane had a match one when Kidman's tape started playing. It was just a tape of Kidman going under the covers with Tori there. The other the boys and the people in the crowd could see it. Oh, the fans at home couldn't. Mike Gossel found a last story ran in for some reason. Kidman came out holding black lace panties, which Hudson and Alana Knight told Madden that Kidman had his underwear. <laughs> Even though Nitro was terrible, Dave did enjoy the byplay with Scott Hudson and Mark Madden. Although Madden also gets too overenthusiastic, and his singing on the Canadian National Anthem was a little too much. Oh, there were some large women. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you think that you, you makes you think that Russo enjoyed the Rosati sisters? Obviously. How are we defining enjoyed? He thought they were funny. That's yes. why he, he, yes. he did. Yeah. Yes. Lord have mercy. Kim and, uh, announced he made copies of the tape for everyone in the locker room. We're separate shots here to Young Dragons and Kiwi watching the tape. Inside production truck, Shane said he was going to kill Kidman as a cage lowered down on the rink. <laughs> you know, if, yes, if, WCW, but, if WCW is losing so much money, there's one way they can make some of it back. <laughs> well, we go from that to caged heat in a terrible cage match where the match continued until everyone but one team escaped, and that team wouldn't be wrestling pay per view. Hoovy and Ray were the last men in the match that went 940. Can you believe that was the longest match in Nitro in months and also one of the worst? You have four guys. Sean Stasiak, Chuck Palumbo, Mark Jindrak, and Sean O'Hare, who are totally green when it comes to working cage matches. Too many guys in a small ring and a show. At one point, a ladder was involved. Ray, Disco, and John Rexion were on top of the cage, and a table was set up. Rexion in the afternoon thought about taking the McFoley bump off the cage to a table. Keep in mind that Bill DeMont has very bad knees, and has already had too many concussions. And oh, the this bump. is that show. Okay, I'm going to cue this up then. And, and, Funk heard, and Fo- Foley hurt himself really bad. Anyway, he was up there. I'm supposed to say something to Mysterio like, out of my way. If the crowd adrenaline would give him the guts, Dave wouldn't use the word guts. Because when he looked down, it was awfully high and scary. As it stood on the step of his way, he's taking the bump. He screamed it, but thank for him, Ray didn't hear it and didn't get out of the way, and probably saved his career in the process. Corporal Cajun took a bump onto the table for no reason, and recognized it had been set up, and Rexon wasn't falling. Yes. I totally forgot about this. Yeah, let's watch this. Yes. See exactly how much time stands still, or uh, whatever. Then he should not be- I was just going to say, like, it's different from Foley, because it's controlling your own bump. But, still. In ringside, Corporal Cajun... And they're still brawling atop the cage. The cage teed on Nitro. Oh, through the table goes 
Corporal Cajun. That was good, uh-huh. Okay, if Ray makes it down, then the filthy animals will advance. It's not quite as clunky as I remember it being in real time, which, oh yeah, the way he got to the roof was that they tore a hole in the roof and had a ladder. Yes. The best thing I could say about this match is that one of the participants has been on my podcast. <laughs> and that's Mark go. and that's Marco Corleone. There you go. Alright, um Conan and, and Tigerson on commentary basically Conan threw more shoot funny shoot comments. But Tigerson didn't say much. Dave, Wade called us the biggest cluster of fucking wrestling history. How about that? Mm. The goal of the match is to enter the cage to win, but not get out of the cage for the Fiamma's only team that failed to qualify for the tag title match. No words could describe how bad this was. Next, we get uh, Goldberg throwing Steve Ray through a plate glass window as Dave was to be a man, the brother of a main event baby face. And then we get Booker and Goldberg again. Booker beat him this time at 228 with Yuranagi Suplex when Jared attacked Goldberg. And now she's explained this by saying Jared would face, rather face Booker on the very view for the title than Goldberg, thus bearing Booker once again as champion. And Cat came out and, and kicked Goldberg to set the pin. Goldberg got right back up and speared and jackhammer Booker. He took the, almost the entire match until interference. Let's see what all this accomplished. Goldberg lost for no apparent purpose other than Booker to get a pin on him, but Booker isn't really over as a champion. For the scenario, the pin only served to hurt Booker, since Goldberg treated him like Hogan treated Kidman. And after Kidman and Vampiro's wins over Hogan, we've seen how much that affected their respective careers. They gave away a much stronger main event twice for free on TV, established their champions in Goldberg's league, and they spent fans paid $30 for Booker to win Jarrett. I know what the idea was on paper to get Booker over, and that Goldberg was cooperative and decided to lose like Hogan and Nash. And if they understood how to book, this wasn't a time or place for him to do it, but that's a fruitless argument. After a very long period of haggling, the end result is that they just wanted Goldberg to lay down for three for the Urinagi to get Urinagi over as Booker's finisher. And then Goldberg could kill him afterwards. But the way it went down, they didn't think they accomplished that either. After Johnny Ace was a savior, you think Johnny Ace of all people would understand how bad the book in this show really was and not just the execution inside the ring. Yeah. But there's reasons for all this, as we're about to get into. The reaction of Goldberg changed things around to agree to do the job and strengthen the resolve of those in the booking committee that everyone who is a cooperative needs to be sent home. That was Dave. Let's go to the torch. Goldberg complained about booking plans Mr. Russo made for Nitro this week, and as a result, the two butted heads for most of the afternoon before finally agreeing to a compromise for Goldberg's matches with Booker T. Goldberg quizzed Russo on how his short-term plans at Nitro fit into long-term plans. And apparently, he didn't like the answer Russo gave him. Goldberg's telling his confidants he just wants to be part of the cohesive plan with goals and vision rather than just being thrown into a hot shot matches to pop TV ratings that aren't part of a larger scheme. Russo wants to portray Goldberg as being a pain in the ass on and off camera. Some wouldn't argue with negative portrayal of Goldberg's disposition. After apologizing only, to a couple of we- only a couple weeks ago to several wrestlers for his recent attitude, witnesses say Goldberg act like a prick to everyone at this week's Nitro. Goldberg, though, may be more distant and less socially unusual because for the first time in his life late last week, he had to put one of his dogs to sleep. He was said to be, an, to be an emotional wreck as a result. And suppose what was going to happen in the poll was that whomever got the most votes and they figured it would be Sting would then be laid out by Goldberg set two matches. They're still going to do Booker versus Sting somewhere down the line. I don't know if they ever end up doing it. It sounds to me like in this whole Goldberg-Russo thing that both parties are at fault. In what sense? You know, and they're they're both they're both being Russo. Goldberg wants 
everything to be meaning something. And, and he's right in that way. Yeah. But and like a jerk and and not handling yourself the right way, is it going to win you any friends? Sure. Which is what sounded like was going on here too. Yeah. So, so it sounds like both of them are in the wrong, in their own way. You definitely shouldn't have thrown Stevie through that plate glass window. Well, I just think years from now, everyone will think Goldberg super kicked him through it. The thing, the thing is, Goldberg. I mean, he had that negative reputation for many, many years, and it wasn't until that that first WWE comeback where everybody changed on him. You know, the the first one with, with Brock. Yeah. So. All right, well, paced by a huge second-hour pickup and one of the most watched matches in cable TV history, Raw drew a 6.89 rating. 6.1 in the first hour, 7.54 second hour, and a whopping 11.4 share on July 24th. Nitro improved to a 2.83 rating, 3.04 first hour, 2.64 second hour, and a 4.7 share. The total wrestling audience grew to 10.4 million viewers, the best total in several weeks. It's really impressive the Raw rating has sizable growth this week. That's why having competition from Nitro the previous week weren't went unopposed. Raw's Rock and Kane versus Benoit Angleman event drew an 8.4 overrun. That translates into approximately 9.866 million viewers, making the sixth most watched match in the history of cable television. The all-time record remains June 28, 1999 for Undertaker and Austin that drew 10.721 million viewers. Booker and Goldberg drew a 3.1 rating. Head-to-head quarters saw Raw to 5.65, which is fully an interview with Benoit and Shane, to 2.52 with Goldberg and Booker. 5.96 for the end of the Foley segment, 2.47 with Bagwell and Canyon. 6.17, Shane and Steffi against Big Show and and lead it to 2.73, Douglas and Awesome, which had to be drawn by the T-Sex tape of Tori Wilson. And that's probably true. Raw, 6.63. just keeps going up. Godfather began in the beginning of Undertaker and Angle to 2.62, Caged Heat. And Goldberg throwing Stevie through the window pane. Wow. That's impressive. I mean, that's some impressive numbers for WWF this time. And, and WCW's not doing bad. But it's just, it's against WWF's amazing numbers that it makes them look worse than what they were actually doing. And boy, does that sound familiar today. Yeah, although WCW <laughs> also has had such a big slide because it's only two years earlier that they're doing yeah, I know. very similar numbers to WWF. I know, but we have that today where, you know, AEW's numbers, I mean, no matter how you look at them, with WWE doing what they're doing, it makes their numbers not look as good. And one's kind of, you know, rising and peaking, and one's kind of stagnant. Yeah. But, again, it's 23 years ago. Almost 11 million people were watching wrestling. 11 million. On Monday nights, insane. But that's it. But again, TV. You know, it's we talked about before in this show. It is just the way TV was. TV was more prevalent back then. All right, so let's give some. Let's give some more. Um, you know, um, context. 
thing about this ratings. Yes, context. That's the word I'm looking for. All right, so on ABC, they had a Monday night movie, which drew a 4.1. King of Queens did a 6.1. Big Brother did a 7. Everybody Loves Raymond did a 8.9. Becker did a 8.2. And this is the first season of Big Brother. Family Law did 5.7. Opposite Sex on Fox did 3.3. Alimate Bill did 3.2. They're in repeats. Mysterious Ways on NBC did 8.4. Law and Order in a repeat did 8.5. And Third Washington Repeat did a 5.7. So, I mean, Ross not that far off of the networks, you know, and beat well, a lot of the networks. Remember, it's not like now where we're usually getting directly comparable ratings. These are the... It's the coverage area for the cable versus out of the whole country for broadcast. Yeah, but so that's the numbers we have, so that's what we go by. I know. So, you know. I mean, have still a percentage we... out of how many people with the option are picking each thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, we already read the Goldberg stuff. So back to the beach. Early estimates had a 0.19 buy rate, which is a $1.22 million company gross. More than half of the total would go to Hulk Hogan. $675,000 base. Yep. <laughs> you had a good contract, brother. Man, man, man. Now, let me see if I can find the exact pay-per-view arrangement here. Okay. Um, each year, Hogan's to appear on six pay-per-views for which he'd be paid 675000 or 15% of domestic pay-per-view cable sales received by WCW for each event, whichever was greater. So he was guaranteed $4.05 million annually in pay-per-view payoffs alone, paid as uh, $1.35 million advances every four months. Not too shabby. <laughs> Not too shabby. Alright, uh, to the torch. Wrestlers watching Nitro backstage cringe when Chronic gave referee Martin Johnson a high times to the announce table. The wrestlers didn't feel Chronic protected him well enough. I'm shocked. They would never do such a thing. Vince Russo said to be keeping a lower profile than usual. Observers say he watched some matches on the backstage monitor, but otherwise stayed inside his office. Most of the wrestlers attributed Russo's behavior to his battles with Goldberg throughout the day. Hmm. Nash did not appear at Nitro because he was in Los Angeles filming a comedy series in which he plays a pro wrestler. What would that be? Uh, it was the Nikki Cox show. That's oh. right. And his character was apparently named the Big Easy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Brett Harmus has to appear at Nitro. It must like to do something in conjunction with Lance Storm. But he was caught in the last minute and already been booked to do a, to tape a television show called The Immortal starring Lorenzo Lamas that day. He's got a recurring role in the series playing a biker-like hitman for the devil. You get it? Hitman? Dave doesn't notice the certainty, but he's expecting him to wear some form on the August 13th to 14th, 15th loop in Canada. Regarding his return or retirement, as so much has been speculated on, a final word is expected on August 3rd, when the results of all of his tests will be given to him. The doctors that examined him are under the impression his problems are caused because he suffered between five and seven concussions during a two-week period. And it's not definite the kick by Goldberg with Starcade was even the first one. You've talked about that. If you read Brett's book, he's pretty sure that was actually the third concussion he got in that match. That's insane to think about that. Yeah. Oh, look, here's uh, Kevin Nash on Nikki on YouTube on, of course, uh, NWO Wolfpack TV 2016's channel. Well, there you go. Folks, say hello to the brightest light in the... Why did this skip past the beginning? 
And now, an all-new Nikki with special guest star, Kevin, the Big Sexy Nash. The, the Big, Big Sexy. sexy. Oh, yeah, the, also, that's right. I forgot her husband's character is a pro wrestler on that show. That's right, yes. That's the whole thing. Why is every, like, TV or movie version of a wrestling promoter in this era They're always, like, the same character? Because that's how they thought of him. Sleazy. Yeah. No, I'm not going to be Dan Scrollers, though. Oh, it's, hey, it's the big sexy. It is. Apparently, this is championship wrestling from Florida. So I don't know where Eddie Graham is. Yeah, it's a CWS. I guess that guy's, I guess that's Gordon Soli. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, it's CWF, it could be Continental. But anyway, there you go. All right, uh, the situation regarding house shows is this. The shows on the books through September are going to be kept. No house shows booked through October, through the Australian tour. There will be any November and I. There were three dates in the UK booked and one date in Germany. November 15th in Oberhausen, which will be a paid TV show in Germany. As far as December goes, that depends on where business is. The feeling is that it doesn't make sense to go on the road for non-TV tapings and draw $40,000 houses. If the product gets hot enough to where the grosses can be higher, they'll start booking arenas again. Let's talk about those house shows, shall we? And we have some TV taping stuff. Uh-uh. Third on the 19th, Phoenix Lansing drew 46.33, which was 2,088, paying 41.026. Toledo, house show, the 20th drew 759 fans for an $18,509 gate. Dayton on the 21st drew 1796 for 40,557. Louisville on the 22nd drew just 1138 at Freedom Hall. For 26,815. Evansville on the 23rd drew 683 fans for a $16,805 gate. Cleveland Nitro drew 5503, which was 3184, paying 83,440. This was the worst house show run for the company in probably seven years. And no matter who wants to make up excuses for this one, there's only one administration that could take credit for it. In Toledo, they had literally had a 20-second Steam Vampiro match after about a 40-second Steam Demon match that the crowd crapped on, largely because they didn't believe the mask guy was Steam. He was. Oh, so and they the didn't have was so him do the promo, I guess. Yeah, and it was so short. In Dayton, they went five minutes with the crowd seeing Sting in the mask, didn't believe it was him, and booed that and the shortness of the match. In Louisville, Vampiro was replaced with a great mood in the same handicap match. Uh, it's noted here. That fans chanted the F word at Kiwi on the road. Well, we're in 2000, and look where you're at. Booker defending against Shane Douglas and the main event on the road, although Booker and Jeff Jarrett was advertising Dayton and Toledo. Booker and Jeff headlined Louisville and Evansville. Oh, I'm shocked they had, that that match happened in Louisville and Evansville. Lex Luger appeared for some reason in Evansville to do a run-in during the Sting match against Demon and Vampiro, and Rat wanted them to help Sting win. Yeah, Lex Luger's not on television. Well, Jeff at least Jeff at least Jeff at least would have been used to working Louisville and Evansville with such small crowds, so Yeah. At least in the dying in the dying era of Memphis. Yeah. yeah. Sting towards somebody Sting appeared at the house of the mask. You fans believe it was him. WCW feels that even though he wore the mask, fans would have known it was him once he had a few of his signature moves. Mm. And that's just not necessarily the case. Well, and the Toledo. I mean, with Sting under the mask, though, you know who got to be the biggest star on those shows? <laughs> Man, look at, and look at those great attendances. Uh, the, the show well, Toledo he wasn't the people. local promoter, brother. 
Shudger told 759, and the third or less than ECW last time. They ran the same building. Those officials are attributing to low attendance to the show being booked less than 50 miles away from where Thunder was the night before. <laughs> Lord. Excuses, excuses. I was say, I wouldn't consider East Lansing and Toledo being similar markets having lived, no. in Bowling, having lived in Bowling Green for two years. I wouldn't consider them the same market. No, they're not. Moon has stayed with WCW for six months. Well, no. Vampiro changes face fame because, uh, not because of the Misfits legal threats, but to have the look as ICP had, which is true. Vampiro Canadian say ICP. Yes. Vampiro Juggalo Casanova. Uh, Mike Austin's personal like act. Not Vampiro on, uh, Clown Nadiense. No, it's Juggalo, but it's ICP. Mike Austin's personal gag on the subject of his leaving ECW has expired last week, and he was free to talk. If it actually had not, so he's pulled from all the shows. Apparently, WCW Legal has so many more important issues to worry about, so they didn't want to add it by getting into an ECW again. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. Speaking of, Mike Awesome and the Torch doesn't care for his new gimmick of being obsessed with overweight women, but he ends up complaining. Friends of Mike describe him as a team player, despite his bad reputation he earned when he left ECW. What bad reputation? He wasn't getting paid. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, when you complain about that, Bix, you have a bad reputation. Mm. Because you're supposed to sit there and take that. You're supposed to sit there and, not, and take not getting paid, because pa- Paul will get you that money eventually. I'm a fish. You know, I, <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought you were about to do the Heyman voice bearing awesome there. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Steiner, once again, for his outburst on Terry Taylor, was suspended for a Zeka two TV shows and with pay. His suspension after the Ric Flair interview was also with pay. <laughs> and people wonder why WCW has so many problems. Supposedly, Scott's been warned that one more problem and he's gone. But with the push he's getting and the fact almost every entertainment company is going to have a different set of rules for stars, Dave doesn't buy that one for a second. And he's right. Evan Courageous is believed to have a sprained ankle, and the last word was he'd be okay with the pay-view. He missed the house show, so Tank Abbott teamed up with Shannon Moore and Shane Helms. The woman always with Kiwi is now a red-headed Kathy Dingman, who was BB in the WF until getting released recently. And probably going to name Papaya. She's also engaged to Bob Holly, who WCW is apparently going to make a play for when his contract expires. Originally, the role with Kiwi was going to be played by April Hunter. Who was one of the original in the Bill girls with Jeff Jarrett earlier this year, but some were squeamish over how revealing her photos were on her website and she wasn't brought back. Well, I mean, <sighs> April Hunter did show, did show things. She was, she had some, you know, some, some, um, explicit nudity. Well, she had her playboy stuff too. I, I think by this point, yeah. Um, I'm trying to pull up the Bob Holly book because I want his exact words on uh, this little thing that's discussed here. <laughs> um, let's see. So this... Imagine all these people with anger management issues in WCW, and you're going to add in Bob Holly, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go. Hardcore Truth, Part 18, The Internet. It's no secret that I have my issues with the Internet. I'm not the only one. A lot of wrestlers go nuts because so much of the so-called news is incredible. Rumors go around and around until people believe what they've read. Anybody can say anything on the internet. It seems that you don't need to be accurate anymore. Now, it's not like I go out of my way to find out what people have been saying about me, but it tends to get back to me in one form or another. Take my Wikipedia page, for example. 
I've had such trouble with that. At one point, it says I was born in Grants Pass. I was born in Glendale, California. But if you believe Wikipedia, I was born in Oregon, as well as having been married to Kathy B.B. Dingman. I have no idea where the marriage rumor came from. I don't kiss and tell, but I definitely wasn't married to her. You can check any marriage record at anywhere. And I have a whole bunch of other crap and a whole bunch of other crap of questionable accuracy. Okay, so he doesn't he doesn't deny they were together, but they were never married. As was the belief for a long time. But also she is gone from WCW in like a week. Yeah. The next week she's gone. Yes. Yeah. I was gonna bring that up. <laughs> so yeah. Not long for the company. Management gaining more confidence with Pamela Paul shock has been letting her conduct some of her interviews live on Nitro. Oh, well, that's nice. Scott Steiner missed Thunder Nitro. He's one was on his honeymoon. So his, I guess that was his suspension. <laughs> that? Is that like you're going on your honeymoon? So you're going to throw a fireball at Ronnie Garvin so we can suspend you. I guess. Most feel the reason Booker T got booted Nitro in Auburn Hills was because he was programmed opposite the Steiners, who, like Nash being from Michigan, got biggest pops. Well, as we all know, if you're running in Michigan, you got to have the Steiners. Well, maybe not anymore. <laughs> uh, in 2000, yes. 2023. Well, if it hadn't been for those damn people on the internet, Bix. See, Bob Holly was right. People on the internet <laughs> saying all these things. <laughs> so, you know all those rabble rousers on the internet causing trouble how dare they how dare they sully the name of Rick Steiner yeah he has a sterling reputation he has a sullied his own name in recent years and various things and this is the I mean and that's just you know people don't know about all the stuff he's done in Georgia as a politician you know, yeah, that's some I mean, of it, but yeah. I, I think I've said it before on the show. I mean, he he is like a, the Marjorie Taylor Greene type faction. Yes. So, uh, yeah, there's that. But anyway, all right, we continue on. Let's talk that Bobby Heenan's position in Jeopardy when his contract expires. Yep. Well, needed to be because he was it was past time. Yes. After this. Again. There was legit heat with Brian Azzergar on the comments by Conan on Thunder during the Chronic match with uh, saying that Chronic was stuck in the 80s. Brian was so hot, I was talking with family and friends, that he wanted to fight Conan. And they had a conversation at Nitro before Conan talked to Adams about being so hot. <laughs> Conan, uh, he worked him. He got him down. How about that? There's been some talk doing something with Skippers or Cruiserweight as well as Christopher Daniels, who should be on TV with him in a few more weeks. Well, one of those things happens. He's good, becomes Canadian, yes. Because they decided to pretend he was on a Grey Cup winning CFL team? Yeah, because he's black. Hey, bro, let's put let's put Elix and Christopher Daniels together. I got a great idea. <laughs> well, that, that, would, that would happen eventually. <laughs> he was ahead of his time in that way. He, he remembered that thought and would bring it back in a couple of years. Bro, bro, who's the other little guy? The... the, uh, the that, that idiot who thinks he's bigger than he is. <laughs> Vampiro and ICP headlined a Juggalo Championship wrestling show on July 22nd, which is why Vampiro missed the Louisville show, replaced by Great Muda. ICP ran two shows over the weekend as tapings for JCW Volume 3, with Vampiro and ICP beating Man Man Pondo, Leatherface, and Pete Madden in the main event. 
<clears throat> so there's that. Reports are with, uh, and now we get to the Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff portion of the, of the segment. Reports are with Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff gone. The morale is the best it's been in years since the young wrestlers finally see them getting a fair break. Although there's a lot of worrying about Scott Hall and Kevin Nash back together with their savvy putting a stop to that. The morale did take a major downturn among the crew that worked the house shows over the weekend with a reality check of where the company still is. A lot of the big stars were mad to be on the road in front of such small crowds, complaining that the show should have been canceled. In a sense, that's understandable. But if you think about wrestling history, is it too much to ask people to make an extra effort to put on a great show to rebuild the markets, figuring going on the road and doing house shows as part of the job description? If all the Ric Flair's and Terry Funks and Jimmy Snuka's and Bruno Sorrentino's and even Hulk Hogan's and Roddy Piper's of this world during the 70s and 80s had that attitude when they drove up to a bad house and complained about having to be there and tanked it, literally there'd be no industry today. And Dave's right. I mean, I do a lot of results research. In the 80s WWF, there are a lot of big markets that have bad attendances. Mm-hmm. A lot. It ain't always, you know, flowers and candy. But they, but you didn't hear about them making any of these types of, you know, complaints or stuff. That's like an odd choice of people too that Dave cited as examples. It well, is, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, it is an odd group. But it's big. I think he's going through like a a, a mixture of the big stars in different places. I think he's saying like the real draws didn't make all these excuses and stuff. They made a point of having a great show. So they draw next. Exactly. As it regards to Hogan and Bischoff, the question now becomes who's working who and how universally it's agreed. The work rate and product has improved with Hogan gone. And if they bring Hogan and Bischoff back, morale will plummet even more. Oh, and by the way, uh, I, I, it, you know, as this comes out tomorrow night is the, uh, Dark Side of the Ring about Passion Beach. That's right, yes. Yes, and then Thursday I should be on, or is it Wednesday or Thursday? I have to check because we had to re- reschedule when the episodes got moved around. I should be on Pollock and Thurston on uh, Post Wrestling. There you go. To uh, talk about that and Hogan's litigiousness and plug the Patreon show and whatnot. All right, for what it's worth, Fox TV announced their fall lineup and there were no holes available for pro wrestling. I'm shocked. The journal film event WCW right now is that either Eric Bischoff is laying low before returning to WCW this fall for a major invasion angle, or Brad Siegel sent Bischoff home so Russo could work unimpeded for around three months. If Russo fails, Siegel will call Bischoff in to head up the new creative committee. There are some in WCW though who think Eric Bischoff will find the project in Hollywood and and never return to WCW since he decided he wouldn't be able to return WCW around again. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> Bischoff's got some bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. Or try to fry. Former producers Craig Leather and Annette Yothers haven't attended any live shows in recent weeks. Meanwhile, new production chief Keith Mitchell is being praised by several sources. Neil Pruitt, who also works in production, is also being praised for the video pieces he's put together in recent weeks. And again, it's Annette Yother. Here's it, but it has the Yothers here. Like she's <laughs> well, called it Tina, Tina Yothers, yes. Yes. Leathers and Yothers. Yother. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a bad... Uh, a vaudeville act or something. Leathers and Yothers. Leathers and Yothers. Or Shields and Yarnell. Oh, Shields and Yarnell. Great mimes. Yes. All right, back today. From WCB's Daily Discount calendar for Christmas for the date of July 25th, it covers in 1996 in a bizarre final. No one was ever declared a winner in a match which pitted Kevin Nash, Razor Ramon, and Scott and Hollywood Hogan against Sting, Les Luger, and Randy Savage. 
things like that. Razor Ramon will just do wonders for WCW if the WF lawsuit ever goes to court. Uh, WCW, everybody. <laughs> yes, indeed. And to close, to the torch, Johnny Ace is being praised for coming up with creative finishes, but is being criticized for not remaining open to change. At last week's Thunder, sources said Cronin told Johnny they didn't know if they would be able to safely execute the Doomsday Device finisher. Johnny shrugged off their concerns and insisted they use it. Cronin did as they were told and ended up injuring Disco Inferno in the process. Disco's feeling better by the time Nitro rolled around and did work the show. And, and to Dave, who would have thought who would have ever thought that Mitsuhara Masawa causing the All Japan split might have ended up being the saving grace for WCW because it led to Johnny Ace retiring from the ring and laying out the matches All Japan style here. No, trust me, Sid, you can do that move. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to bring up. Boy, do I sure believe Sid's version of that even more than I did before. Yep. It's laid out right here. That Sid was like, I am not a rope guy. This is not a good idea. And Johnny's like, eh, oh, you got him. I can't do the Laurenitis right now. He's like, you got to impress the new owners. Sid, Sid, don't worry about it, brother. We got to impress new owners, man. You want to know the contract? If, if Mrs. Baba had only kept Johnny after the All Japan split, how wrestling history would have changed. Well, it wasn't <laughs> even that. It was he saw the tea leaves and decided to get out of Japan. Yeah. Well, go to WXO. Well, that was months earlier, but oh, that's after the split. I mean, why well, no, all that was going? Split. Yeah, but it's after he leaves. Mm. Hold on, Johnny Ace Cage match. Let's see matches. Okay, no, he works all Japan through June. Oh, okay then. His last, but he was... knows what's coming. His last match, well, everyone had some idea what was coming, I would think, right? Yeah, it was already out there. So... For months. His last match in All Japan is Ace and Barton losing a World Tag Title Tournament semifinal to uh, Tawai and Kawada. Not a bad uh, loss there on your record. All right, well, that is it for us this week on the show. Mark, go ahead and plug away, my man. What's going on with you and your world? Okay, we've got the Winter Palace podcast. Uh, that's the interview podcast. And there's also the plot podcast that I do in conjunction with Carl Stern's When It Was Cool site. That's the short form, one subject, uh, solo podcast where we uh, talk about a variety of pop culture things. Lately, we've been doing a bunch of comic book stuff. Um as this comes out, probably the next thing on the plot will be baseball related because uh, after this drops next week, I will have just come back from the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Unfortunately, I was misinformed that it, that I thought induction weekend was this weekend coming up when it's actually going to be the weekend that I'm there. But luckily, I'll be out of town by the time the circus comes to town for real, although uh, you and I, I'm sure, I sh uh, I'm sure, we're both happy to see the Crime Dog being inducted into Absolutely. the Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Among others this year, um, we were working on a bunch of guests for the Winter Palace. Some in wrestling, some in pop culture. Got some irons in the fire, and sometime in the fall, I'll probably go back to doing some streaming on Twitch or on YouTube. 
primarily when uh, Starfield comes out, the big uh, Bethesda space game. So that's what uh, we've got going on right now. And guys, thanks a lot for having me on the show again. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, putting down the money and being on with us. We always appreciate it. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, year nine begins. And what a doozy. Get ready, Bix. We go to the year 2004. Now, <sighs> here's why. Here's why, Bix. Here's why. We have covered this week so many times in, in, in past years. We're getting to that point where we're gonna have, we gotta start doing more in the two thousands. Mm. I mean, we're starting year nine, Bix, of this show. Sure. <laughs> so we're we're getting to that era. We 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 front loaded or we back loaded way too many of the eighties and nineties shows. So now it's catching up with us. But anyway, we go two thousand and four, and holy shit, what a week! All right, so in TNA, we have uh, Impact and a pay-per-view to talk about, featuring uh, reports from to Brian Alvarez and a former guest of this show in the in the Figure Four Weekly. Plus, we'll have news on possibly TNA moving out of Nashville and other assorted TNA foolishness. We have uh, Sean O'Hare in legal issues. We'll talk about that, which uh, stems from a UPW show. Brock Lesnar signs with the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, we'll have that. We have a one of the greatest tag teams in wrestling history reunites. We got uh, news on Canyon for our show next week. We got news on a wrestling pay-per-view that's not a current wrestling pay-per-view that is doing extremely well. So we'll talk about that, a series. We got a Ring of Honor invasion, IW Puerto Rico, to talk about. We got Pedro Guayo Jr.'s Saga Landa de Plata tournament, which is interesting to talk about. Is Latin Lover Lean AAA? We'll talk about that. We got a little indie scum to talk about in Japan. And we have the Fire Festival, Biggs. Ooh. An in depth look at the Fire Festival in 2004. We have that. Uh, Noah, we got a, a pretty interesting Noah show to talk about. Featuring one Rick Steiner on the show, so we'll have that. And I got—I don't—I was going to hold off on this, but I'm going to spoil it. Neo Ladies invades no Pro Wrestling Noah. We'll have that. <laughs> I can't wait that for that. I mean, it's New bad Japan. enough that this week Twitter fell in love with Masai Genki doing a cane gimmick. <laughs> New Japan has won their worst attended shows in the history of Cork and Hall. We'll talk about that, but. The majority of the show, um, pr pretty much 15 pages, is WWE-related. Vince McMahon shows up to Ohio Valley Wrestling. So we'll talk about that and their, uh, what's going on there at the time. We have Rey Mysterio throwing out the first picture at a Dodgers game. We'll talk about that. We got the update on um, JBL and trying to win over a locker room. We got injuries. We got television to talk about. Of course, Ron SmackDown. And we have a pay-per-view to talk about. No, we don't. We don't have everything to talk about. Um, I thought we did, but we don't. Uh, but it basically was pay-per-view. Raw, 60-minute Iron Man. Chris Benoit, 
Triple H. Uh, yes, with the a special guest appearance by Eugene. That's right. And backstage, Bruno Sammartino. Oh, it's in Pittsburgh? We'll have, yes, we'll have the news on that. In fact, the bulk of the WF se- WA section mix is that, the store of that, and Ric Flair on the record on TSN, and all, off the record, excuse me, and this is the middle of his book drama with Keith Elliott Greenberg. You want me to ask yes. Keith if he wants to be on the show next week? <laughs> it's a pretty big show. I don't know if you want to have any guests or not, but uh, yeah, lots going on. So it should be an interesting show next week on Between the Sheets, covering 2004. So uh, no guest book, but hey, big for some big bring Keith, Keith Elliott Greenberg on. I won't uh, object. I think he'd be too diplomatic about it for it to be. Uh worthwhile with that topic i would think okay well there you go but anyway that's next week mark thanks again for being on with us this week we definitely appreciate it Vix, thanks you as thank thanks you thank you as always you're the rock of the show this is chris saying <laughs> so long in the peace state of georgia thanks you very much